Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nazara. Infinite blessings on this Thanksgiving weekend. Much love and gratitude to each of you as we begin today's program. We go into our heart centers and give thanks, giving thanks for being here on the planet at this time and going in to your sacred portal of the heart. We enter into the higher realms and call forth for the full merchants with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence. We see, sense, and seal our pillar of light surrounding us, bringing in both the violet and the gold as we transmute anything that we no longer need to carry with us into the higher realm and see everything turning into gold, into good, into God. Seasons and seal your pillar fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. As we call forth all of our multidimensional being and call forth all of our brothers and sisters across the planet to join us in divine service in unity consciousness. As we once again serve to be the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and be the open door that no one can shut. We can act by affirming that we are I, our, our I am present and connecting at that level. So please affirm after me. I am my I am present. As my I am present, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And we connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, with every man, woman, and child, and see them in their mighty pillar of light as well. Empowered by the energy of this Thanksgiving weekend and this new moon this previous week. And so we call in for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive all that we receive. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, 
the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels and the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome as well all of the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the raisin rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, the Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healing teams. <clears throat> we welcome all of our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service and welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, individually and collectively, in divine order, in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth for one and all, all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well all in divine order, the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively and receive it multidimensionally and easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all of these gifts and frequencies and blessings with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium and love and light and laughter. And we call for it that this time the all of everyone in our circle of support. Every man, woman and child, every family member, every loved one. Every group, every organization, every situation, every condition of life, every institution, every nation, every government, every military, every weather pattern, everything that has been placed in the circle. And we call forth all of the energy around Thanksgiving and all that we've celebrated this month into our collective cup of consciousness to create the transformation of all on the planet. And thus we invite Mother Earth to join us to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, every 
portal, every vortex, every monument, every place of power, every sacred site, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue with Gaia up this spiral of evolution, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Thus, we give thanks for this opportunity to serve as we call in the highest frequencies of divine love, divine peace, divine harmony. We're going to begin with what is called the Vedantic Prayer. You'll recognize the prayer. So join with me heart to heart as I say for us all and for every man, woman, and child. O thou infinite holy presence of God, divine source of all life, hallowed be thy sacred name. We bow before thee in gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving for thy supreme presence in the universe. Because thou art, I am. We return to thee, Almighty One, all the power and dominion we have ever vested in any imperfect manifestation, visible or invisible. For thou art the all power of the universe. And there is no other power that can act. Let thy will be done in and through us now. Let thy kingdom of harmony be manifest across the face of this earth through the heart flames of all who are so blessed as to live upon her now. O Supreme Beloved One, as we lift our hearts, our vision, our consciousness toward thee, Release the substance of thyself to us, each according to our requirements, that as we move forward in thy name and upon thy service, we shall not be found wanting. We ask forgiveness for all the transgressions of thy love, love, and harmony, for both ourselves and all humanity, the forces of the elemental kingdom, and the kingdom of nature. Endow us now with thy power and desire to so forgive all who have ever caused us distress back unto the very beginning of time. Because we are one with thee, we fear no evil. For there is no power apart from thee. Thou art the strength and the power by which we move ever in the path of righteousness. And now, O Mother, Father, God, show us the full glory we had with thee in the beginning, even before this world was. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. O thou mighty supreme source of all life, I am. 
as I entered deep within the balancing flame of love, wisdom, and power within my heart. I consciously accept thee as the creator and giver of all things, and that thou art in all life. And I know that I am, is the light of the world. I relinquish now in thy name all the power I have ever given to the outer self, all the power I have ever given to others, all the power I have ever given to the shadows I have created. I dedicate and consecrate my conscious mind and feelings to knowing that as I think, speak, and walk, the presence of God, Goddess, within me is widening the borders of a kingdom of harmony. I am a light bearer. I am the light of the world. I am the master presence grown to full stature, clothed with the immortal, victorious, threefold flame of God I am. And through the power of the almighty presence of God I am. I have spoken. I have decreed. And I have commanded with authority. For I am that I am within these invocations. I am that I am within these affirmations. I am with that I am within this cosmic power, supplying, sustaining, and fulfilling at each hour. As God Goddess's most holy name, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Let us focus on the energy of divine love. See that comprehensive divine love of our Mother, Father, God, filling us in every cell and fiber of the planet, every molecule of life, molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, every aspect of life filled with divine love, the highest frequency that we can hold ever expanding to perfection. Mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light, great angelic host, angels, angel divas and archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and the great lords of the flame from Venus. Come forth in the mightiest power of divine love the earth has ever known. Establish thy unfed flame here, in every sanctuary, in every home on this earth, and keep it forever sustained. Teach and show every human being the fullness of its mighty power, perfection, and dominion. Charge forth through every human heart the full flame of divine love and joy from each one's own mighty I Am presence. So expand its light and cosmic activity through the individual that all will feel feel and know the mighty victory of its presence forever. We thank thee this is done now. 
forever sustained and ever expanding. And we call for the eternal victory for all, as we say, mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters. All great beings of light throughout infinity come forth now into the physical octave of the earth and lead the children of light. Lead all humanity quickly into eternal victory. Blaze forth thy almighty power. Charge them with the ascended master's limitless and exhaustible energy and the full supply of every good thing, invincible protection, indestructible health, absolute courage, and give them the scepter of eternal power to blaze the light everywhere with instantaneous victory and the fulfillment of every conscious command of the mighty I Am Presence. Take them through into their ascension that they may render the greatest possible assistance to humanity and the earth now, when it is needed most. We thank thee it is done and eternally sustained. O blessed, adorable Sanat Kamara, before thou and thy blessed ones return to Venus, we ask thee to come forth in the tangible body and walk and talk face to face with us throughout the world. That we may all feel thy mighty love and pour back to thee that which thou hast poured to humanity throughout the centuries. Blaze forth now through each one of us thy divine flame of divine love, and expand it to fill the world of each one with the blazing perfection which thou art. In everlasting love and gratitude we bless thee for thy love to the children of earth. May each one become a lord of the flame as thou art. In everlasting love, we bless thee and we thank thee. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Good. Take a nice deep breath. As we say, mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters great cosmic beings and lords from the flame from Venus. In thy full authority of the great cosmic law, project the great cosmic light with irresistible force throughout the government of the United States of America and hold all individuals true to their oath of office in obedience to the divine plan of the great cosmic beings for the perfecting of America, the perfecting of her government and her people. Come forth now. Take possession of all governmental offices. Hold your dominion and divine justice everywhere within our government forever. We thank thee thou dost always answer our every call. It is eternally sustained and ever-expanding. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to call in the opalescent ray. 
see that beautiful opalescence filling you and surrounding you. Feel it being anchored into every cell, chakra meridian layer of your work field. And thus, for every man, woman, and child, as we work with this opalescent ray, which is the energy of transformation. We call it in through and around us and every man, woman, and child. Through the sacred fire of divinity anchored within my heart, I call to the divine presence of God, Goddess, I am that I am, all that is. And I invoke from God's great cosmic heart an opal ray of light into my mental vehicle now, into my etheric mind and my physical brain structure, so that I may be transformed and I may see and hear the beauty of my God, Goddess Presence. I humbly request God's assistance in maintaining this purifying activity of the opal ray of transformation. Keep this sacred flame pulsating constantly through each cell, molecule, atom, and electron of my brain structure until my mind and brain are restored and rejuvenated to their original crystal purity of substance. Help me to be once again fully alert to the impressions of divinity so that I may achieve great dexterity in transmitting the thoughts of divinity into expression. Expand the harmony of my true being to fill my four lower vehicles, healing them with the tones of cosmic harmony and drawing them back into divine alignment with my God, Goddess Presence I am. Assist me in constantly maintaining my outer mind at peace, instantly dissolving with the opalescent transformation flame all thoughts of self-generating expression that manifest. Like the sea reflecting the sun, help me to keep my brain constantly open to the divine plan of the universe and then seeing and knowing that plan assists me in going forth to express it. Dear Mother, Father, God, bathe the earth in her atmosphere, in oceans of your cosmic melody, color, and harmony so that all life may feel at one with your exquisite prismatic cascading sea of sound and color. What I ask for myself, I call forth for all life evolving on this planet. And I bow in gratitude to you for this tremendous assistance to me and the humanity of Earth. With all the love from my heart, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. With deep gratitude, I accept this call fulfilled right now. As God, Goddess's most holy name, I am.
Take a nice deep breath. As we breathe in that opalescent light ray, feel the transformation taking place even as you inhale and exhale it. And let us affirm, I am transformed. I am transformed. I am transformed. I'm drawing in to my being the blessing and love of God. I'm absorbing this light into every cell of my body. I'm radiant with the light. I am filled with the light. I am grateful, grateful, grateful to the light. And I love the light. I am the light. I am the breath of transformation flowing through my being into the great cosmic breath of God which unifies all perfection. And again, I am the breath of transformation flowing through my being into the great cosmic breath of God which unifies all perfection everywhere. I'm the breath of transformation flowing through my being into the great cosmic breath of God which unifies all perfection everywhere. And so it is. I am the divine image of God. I am a flaming presence of God, Goddess, now made manifest in the physical world of form. With every thought I think, every word I speak, every action I take, I am expanding the borders of the kingdom of our Mother, Father, God throughout infinity. Every electron of elemental energy, the earth, the air, the water, and the fire, will receive a healing benediction through the radiance of my physical presence. I'm projecting the deep purple law of forgiveness and the violet transmuting flame through all life evolving on the sweet earth with every breath I take. The vibratory rage of every electron in the four lower vehicles of each life stream that enters my sphere of influence will be raised to the perfection of their holy Christ selves instantly. The God virtues of all 12 rays, God's will, illumined faith, power and protection, wisdom and God illumination, divine love, purity and hope, truth, concentration, healing and consecration, 
peace administration, invocation, freedom, mercy, transmutation and forgiveness, clarity, harmony and balance, eternal peace and infinite abundance, divine purpose, enthusiasm and joy, and divine transformation are activated within my being and continually pulsate through the creative fire in my heart into the physical world of form. Because I am one with my Mother, Father, God, God's supply and perfection are eternally sustained in my being and world. I am all light. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Once again, take a nice deep breath in as we anchor this for ourselves, for our family members and loved ones, for every member of humanity, for all sentient beings on the earth and earth herself. We call an Archangel Sandalphon and Mother Gaia to support us in easily and effortlessly anchoring these frequencies for one and all. And we give thanks for this opportunity to be of service. We ask us to be sealed and maintained, ever expanding to perfection. I want to take this moment to thank you for your divine service here today and each and every week and each and every day. We proclaim that that be permanent, that it be ongoing through every breath that we take. I really like this statement. I'm going to read it once again. The vibratory rate of every electron in the four lower vehicles of each life stream that enters my sphere of influence will be raised to the perfection of their holy Christ selves instantly. That reminds us as we remain as our I am presence, which is the same as the Holy Christ self, as we remain as our I am presence, true to our God presence, we are activating everyone. We are illuminating everyone. We are raising the frequency of everyone. Thus, our divine work, our divine service work, can be done each and every day each and every moment with each breath that we take. So that's, this is what I wish you through the rest of the year and beyond as we all expand to perfection. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. And I invite you for further service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls we do our work through our meditations, our invocations and prayers, our activations, our updates, 
and we serve to bring heaven to earth, activating that new golden age, again, being the transformer in each situation with everyone that we meet. The calls, there are teleconference calls, and we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, doing greetings for about 25 minutes. Tar and Rama then give a brief update, and then we begin our work in earnest at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, when the meditation activation portion of our program begins. The phone number to dial, this is the main number, area code 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. Access code is 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND. And we'd love to have you join us and let, let us know where you are calling from. Now, I have a, um, dozens of extra numbers. If you want uh, to use a different number uh, based on your location, or you have, you're calling internationally, there's international numbers. There's a way to get on through the computer and even through an app. I will send you that information. Please contact me by email. That's Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to have you join us and be a regular part of our team of light. We love and honor all of our family, and we thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. So we want to take this time to thank Torn Rama for their service. We want to thank Rainbird for her service. And infinite blessings to everyone out there this Thanksgiving weekend and beyond through this very special Holy Day season, and I'm excited that we'll be working on the 12-12 again. I think that's a Monday night call for us, so infinite blessings to one and all as I pass this talking stick with every single color of the rays and ones that we, beyond our imagination, all the cosmic rays and the galactic rays and the universal rays as well, and especially that transformational opalescence that uh, shimmers through each one of them. So I love you all. Thank you, thank you. And I pass a talking stick with gems of every color, um, beautiful fairies and goddesses and gods and um, mermaids are here today. (laughs) And um, again, infinite blessings of every kind coming through this talking stick as I pass it to you, Rainbird. Thank you, my dear. Oh, thank you. That's a beautiful talking stick. I like the mermaids. (laughs) So thank you for your divine service as well, Cheryl. We really appreciate you. 
And, um, yeah, so have many blessings this week. We'll see you tomorrow night. And I want to say that we are a listener-supported radio program, so each of us make it happen. Each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with CBS Radio. We're behind a little bit this week. Uh, we're behind a whole week and then a, 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 a smidgen more above that. So we need $617.61 this week. And uh, that'll, make, that'll make it happen. So just here's how we do it. We just go to, into our heart space and see what it's ours to give. And then go to bdsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 so you can find that menu there. You're looking for this program listing on Radio Station 2 at the 1.30 hour. And as you click on that icon, that'll take you directly to our account. Our other two shows are on Radio Station 1, and they're at the 6 o'clock hour, Thursday and Friday. The Thursday program at 6 o'clock is the... Uh, night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there or on Fridays. The hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at the six o'clock hour as well. So any one of those icons, if you click on it, will take you directly to our account with CBS Radio. So thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful for your contributions and for all the ways you show up in your life. So lots of gratitude for all of you. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and each month they need rent. And so at the end of the month, that's when it's due. So that 30th is on Wednesday of November, and so that's when it needs to be there. And it's $1,150 that's needed to cover the rent. And they also have some bills that are due this week, and they need $400 to cover those, and then another 200 to cover their living expenses. The week, so it's a heavy order, and that we can do it. So lots of gratitude. Here's how we make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to connect it to Rama's PayPal account, and you do that by going to um, the web address, which is RainbowRoundtable.net. And as you're there on the homepage, click on the menu options, and you see near the bottom of that list the donate link. Click on that, and that takes you to Rama's PayPal account, well, it's the, and the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So that's how we make it happen that way. And if you choose to uh, um, do the friends option, you go to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there, and it is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. And so that's how we do it that way. Either way, it's perfect. We're so grateful for your contribution. So much gratitude. And, uh, yeah, this is how we make it happen. And we're grateful for all that Tara and Rama do and all that BBS Radio do does for us as well. So lots of gratitude all around. As you're sending something, please let Rama know. And that email for Rama's personal is... Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939, at Comcast.net. And uh, here you go. Let's let them know what you sent and when you sent it. And then as you need it, the mailing address is Ron D. Berkowitz, R-A-N-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box, 
280, Fox 280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. Well, the zip code is 87567. I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. So, so much gratitude for all your all the ways that you contribute <laughs> to the mission that we all have. And so, 13 thank yous and honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And I'm casting t- this talking stick. And you heard it from Cheryl. It is beautiful. It has all those colors imaginable. All those rays are there. And with the transportation of lessons in each one of them. And um, lots of all the gems of every kind. And all kinds of berries and feathers. <laughs> and mermaids. And all the angels, all all the uh, gods and goddesses are here too. So greeting, turn around. Well, here comes the talking stick. It's loaded. Welcome. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank, Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Greetings, everyone. Greetings. We are so grateful to be here. Thank you for helping us at this time. Yes, um, and the abundance that we've been working toward, I mean, how many years now? 1991, 2001, 2011, 2012, 32 years, 31 years, going on 32 years now. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, all we are saying is... Give peace a chance. With abundance in hand. Yes. Now, yesterday. <laughs> it's already done. And it's our responsibility to work together to bring forward um, the true nature of the human race, which is the nature of God, God, us all it is, embodied on a planet. Uh, it looks a little shabby around the edges. <laughs> You want to share a little bit just in general, Rama, in terms of all last week? I mean, you were talking to the folks, and what are you concluding that this last week has, you know, brought us to? I am thankful to be here and to be alive and watch this tremendous change that's going on in every single one of us, because it takes... Only one, like Neo said, yet it takes all of us. And what I'm seeing more and more in the conversations and what's on the news and (laughs) what I'm looking at here on the screen, which is not exactly a pretty picture, um, Abby Martin has an epistle about Governor Ron DeSantis and what I bring into the story here, the story of Emmett Till 
uh, Whoopi Goldberg just put out a new film about this. Called Till. It is huge. This is the story that goes back all the way. And this is the number one issue that, as I see it, as we want to change this planet, as we want to change this planet, whether we're green or pink or (laughs) yellow or uh, all the colors of the rainbow. And... Out in the galaxy, this is not an issue. <laughs> what, what, what's there to say? It is about the heart. I passed the talking stick. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, it's about a small group of elites wanting to enslave the whole world. Yeah. And they were part of these ancient stories of the gods and goddesses who, you know, decided to play on the dark side. And here we are, blaze the violet fire. Well, uh, color of skin has played a very large role. And what's very sad is that people who have white skin... They don't think they're being manipulated or used, and they are. Uh, I think uh, Henry Kissinger put it right, right quick. He said, "White trash, put it in the garbage." That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Uh, and um. Uh, Rage of the Sith has demonstrated itself to be inadequate for getting the results. Yes. And we're in a period right now where accountability is required. And of course that also, in order to get true accountability, unconditional divine Neutrality from your kind, gentle spirit of the heart. That's where this comes from. And uh, I was just chatting with Rama about all the commercials and the things we're going to play, and we just uh, let it go through. Yeah. The the information that's including commercials, have to do with do we not print and put it out because we don't have the money to pay for it or do we do some commercials? And it's just with the nature of the times where all of this is coming to an end because the pharmaceutical industry is the most evil thing that ever came about. And uh, all we are saying is that The energies of consciousness, higher consciousness, are here. And they're increasing very rapidly. There are solar flares coming in. So there might be aurora borealises tonight that are going to be big. 
in the northern hemisphere. They keep on getting bigger. Yeah, it is about how the sun is transfiguring and we're getting raised up at the same time and it's causing the dark side to do more and more outrageous acts. Blaze the violet fire. Nothing's causing them to do anything except their own personal interest in having more money. That too. <laughs> I mean, nothing can cause you to do anything that you choose not to do. Yeah. There are always consequences to our actions. <sighs> so, shall we let the energy begin, huh, Rama? Uh, yeah, listen, listen to this and blaze the violet fire. And what you're going to play is Abby, right? Abby Martin is talking about Governor Ron DeSantis, how he... Uh, was a part of the the shadowy military career of Ron DeSantis. You could actually go and watch this on YouTube. Ron DeSantis's military secrets, torture and war crimes, Empire Files. This is Abby Martin, and he did some pretty awful stuff. Blaze the Violet Fire. And how long is this, Rama? 37 minutes. Okay, here we go. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your governor speaking. Today's training evolution, dogfighting, taking on the corporate media. The rules of engagement are as follows. Number one, don't fire unless fired upon. But when they fire, you fire back with overwhelming force. Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill. Number two, never ever back down from a fight. If I could complete the question, though. So you're going to give a speech or ask the question? Number three, don't accept their narrative. It's wrong. It's a fake narrative. I just disabused you of the narrative, and you don't care about the facts. It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Let's jump up on that was a 2022 campaign ad for Ron DeSantis's gubernatorial re-election campaign, which he handily won on November 8th. The ad depicts Ron as a fighter jet pilot, wearing a flight suit, strapping into an aircraft, and taking to the skies. Meant to evoke the Top Gun Maverick character, the ad reveals something pretty interesting. Why is DeSantis cosplaying as an Air Force pilot when he has an actual military background, including a tour with special operations in Fallujah? which he could be playing up instead. After all, Republican voters eat that shit up. It's not just the obfuscation in this ad, but overall, DeSantis is pretty tight-lipped about his actual military service. He made reference to it in his 2018 gubernatorial campaign, but just with the words, quote, Ron DeSantis, Iraq war veteran, in a TV ad, mailers having photos of him in uniform, and reference to it in some speeches that he gave. But without ever going into much detail about what he did, his re-election campaign is similarly vague about his military experience. As far as I could find, he's never elaborated in interviews or speeches. I think there's a reason for that, and not because he just spent his time bored behind a desk. Up until now, details of his military service have been a mystery. 
But in this episode, you will hear new exclusive information about his role at Guantanamo Bay with never-before-heard witness accounts of how he personally was complicit in war crimes. With these revelations, we can also learn a little more about his equally obscure role in the Iraq War. I'm your host, Mike Preisner, with you to explore the shadowy military past of Ron DeSantis and why he likely doesn't want to talk about it on today's episode of Eyes Left. A wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Iraq, too. I'm a hawk. I was picking up arms myself to prevent 9-11. I left. As president, I wanted to get myself a Congressional Medal of Honor, but they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me do it. I said, I'm going to get myself a kick. I've always wanted that. We just flew B-52 to B-1 bombers in the South China Sea. You're not going to pay attention. I DeSantis began his career at the Blue Blood Yale University, where he went as an undergrad and was a member of the fraternity Delta Kappa Epsilon. Among his frat brothers are George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Sidney Sowers, the first director of the CIA. He took a year off before going to graduate school to teach at a private boarding high school, where former students recall his pro-Confederacy lessons on the Civil War. I mention that only because it helps us understand his political views at the time he joined the armed forces. His military career would begin as a second-year law student at Harvard when he was commissioned as an officer in the Navy as part of JAG, or Judge Advocate General Corps, the military's legal system. This was in 2004, and lucky for DeSantis, who was frequently described as handsome, it just happened to be the year the JAG TV show was a big hit. For a couple of JAG lawyers, Lieutenants Rav and Austin are hot. Very fun. And we're talking hot-on-the-trail kind of hot. Not a courtroom, that's a battle zone. Sometimes hot-blooded. Sir, with all due respect, keep your mouth shut. Often hot water. It could end my career and your life. I'm willing to risk it, sir. But one thing they're not are just a couple of pretty faces. After you. Jag, back-to-back episode, Sunday beginning at 9 on CMC. While DeSantis would never live the life of these fictionalized Jag officers, he would end up doing things in his career that would be TV-worthy but more in the true crime genre rather than action adventure. His first two years in the Navy fall under the painfully mundane. He was in charge of things like urinalysis administration, as in routine drug tests for other service members, as well as physical fitness programs and awards paperwork. But for someone with ambition, elite Ivy League training, and political alignment with the Bush administration, there was much more ahead than being a pencil pusher. In March 2006, DeSantis would get his big break, a deployment to the notorious prison Guantanamo Bay. Until now, it seemed that this assignment was a fairly routine, low-level administrative job. But as we will uncover through this episode, the opposite was true. Now, DeSantis himself has never really said anything about his time at Guantanamo. He frequently mentioned it when he was in Congress, but mainly when he was advocating against the potential closure of the torture camp. In 2016, he wrote on Facebook, quote, I served at Guantanamo Bay. I know you do not want these terrorists released. Obama is putting his political agenda over the safety of Americans by wanting to close Gitmo and bring terrorists to our homeland, end quote. Basically saying, I've seen these animals firsthand. They don't deserve rights. He flexed his Gitmo experience to speak out in opposition anytime a detainee was released after being held without charge, including the prisoner swap that returned American POW Bo Bergdahl. But his references are always extremely vague. When he first ran for governor in 2018, local press tried to learn more about that deployment with little luck. 
First, there were his military records provided by the Navy to the Florida Phoenix in 2018. These described DeSantis's role at Guantanamo as quite minimal administrative work, saying he was responsible for things like courtroom scheduling. But those 40 pages of documents were heavily redacted. When the Florida Phoenix followed up for clarification, a Navy spokesperson told them, quote, unfortunately, the specific details about Mr. DeSantis's role are not available, end quote. More was learned that same year when the Tampa Bay Times interviewed several officers who served with him at Gitmo. They said one of his responsibilities there as a JAG lawyer was to, quote, advocate for the fair and humane treatment of the detainees to ensure the U.S. military complied with the law, end quote. Ron's supervisor, Captain Patrick McCarthy, went on to clarify DeSantis was, quote, charged with ensuring the detainees received rights afforded to them under the Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention, end quote. Now, Common Article 3 applies to rights for rebel fighters who are not part of a standing army like al-Qaeda. I'll quote from the international law, quote, the following acts are and shall remain prohibited at any time and in any place whatsoever, cruel treatment and torture outrages upon personal dignity, in particular, humiliating and degrading treatment, end quote. Now, when I read this, I thought to myself, something is obviously off. 2006, when DeSantis was there, was the height of the Bush torture program at Gitmo. Could Ron DeSantis, the far-right officer who just two years prior was teaching high schoolers to sympathize with the slaveocracy and uh, today speaks at events for anti-Muslim hate groups, could someone like him actually have been some kind of protector of detainee human rights? and at a time when illegal torture was actually the policy at the torture camp. Until now, nothing was really known about what DeSantis did for the 10 months he was at the island prison, other than those statements from former colleagues. I knew there had to be more to the story, so on November 17th, I called Mansour Adaifi, known to DeSantis as Detainee 441. Mansour, sold to the U.S. by Afghan warlords after 9-11, was a totally innocent teenager held at Guantanamo Bay from 2002 until 2016, so he has a robust knowledge of life and torture at Gitmo. He told me that not only was DeSantis there for what he called the worst year of his entire imprisonment, but DeSantis was a notorious figure who didn't just know about, but observed and participated in illegal acts of torture and in fact seemed to take great pleasure in their suffering. He reveals that the job of DeSantis was not to ensure human rights were respected, but to ensure that they were violated to the worst degree. Just a warning, the following interview contains some graphic descriptions of torture. You know, Guantanamo, uh, Mike, it was created out of the legal zone, out of the legal system, out of the humanity base. Torture was the, was the mechanism of Guantanamo. Torture, abuse, and experimenting on prisoners in Guantanamo. Uh, we went to hang a massive hunger strike in 2005. And was like over 500 prisoners participated in the hunger strike. And that time, the only way to calm us down were they told us, okay, we are going to talk to listen to your need. We thought, we believed them that they would negotiate and talk to us. And we told them that's what we need, you know. But it was a trap, basically. It was a trap. I mean, everything upside down. So we went again on hunger strike over some forced feeding. You know, it was really, it was torture. We were bleeding all the time. And I saw a fucking handsome person who was coming. He said, I'm here to ensure that you're treating humanely. And we said, okay, this is our demand. You know, we were not asking for much, you know. At the beginning, he was just... It was Ron DeSantis. Yes, exactly. The person. He said, I'm here to ensure you're being treated humanely. Yes, exactly. And if you have any, if you have any, uh, problems, if you have any concerns, if you have, just talk to me. And, you know, we, we, 
we were drowning at that place. And we're like, oh, this is cool. That person actually driving uh, something. He will raise the concerns. But it was piece of the game. What they what they were doing? They were they were looking what hurt you more to use it against you. By the end of 2005, 2006, when he was there, one of the worst time at Guantanamo, literally. You know, the group who was in the administration, the trigators, the guards, you know, the administration, all of them were the worst. And they cracked in us so hard when they came to break our hunger strike, when we went again into first feeding. A team came to us, a general, the head of the team, he was a general, and he said, we were on hunger strike, and he said, the first day, he said, I am here, I have a job. I was sent here to break your fucking hunger strike. I do not care why you're here. I don't care if you, who you are. My job, sir, here to, to make you eat. Today we are talking, tomorrow there will be no, no talking. The second day, I swear by my God, Mike, they brought, you know, piles of insure and they start force feeding us over and over again. For those who don't know, Ensure is a thick, milky, nutritional shake, mainly marketed on daytime television to elderly people. I've had them, and they are very hard to drink. Yes, and uh, Ron DeSantis was there watching us. We were crying, screaming. We were tied to the feeding chair, and that guy, he was watching that. He was laughing, basically, when they used to feed us because we've you can the. the our stomach cannot hold this amount of insure. They used to pour insure one can after another, one can after another. So when he approached me, I said, this is the way we are treated. He said, you should start to eat. I throw up in his face, literally on his face. Ron DeSantis. In his face, yeah. Mansoor vomiting on DeSantis's face in a desperate cry for help was well-deserved. The JAG lawyer would have been well aware at the time that this was indeed a violation of international law. In particular, Common Article 3, which we reviewed earlier. There's no question that it was torture, and the UN Human Rights Commission further clarified that it regarded the force feeding at Guantanamo Bay as a form of torture. The World Medical Association also specifically prohibited force feeding in its Declaration of Tokyo in 1975. They used to, you know, restrain us in the in the, the feeding chair, which like, you know, like eight point, they tied our, our heads, our shoulder, our, our wrist, our thighs, and our legs. And they came, and they, what really fixed you, they call it uh, French 17 or something, throw a nose. And they keep doing this over and over again, and they put some kind of um, laxative in the in the feeding liquid, with like we shit in ourselves all the time. Then we would be moved to a solitary confinement, really cold cells. If we throw up, then like, we used to, we used to get to like five times a day. It's not, it wasn't feeding, it just, it's what torture, so we couldn't handle it for five or, or, or five days. We couldn't because five times a day, you you can't, you 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 cannot possibly handle it because they just kept pouring the issue. And in one week, they break all the hunger strikers. In one week, totally, it was a mission. And he was there. All of them were was watching the the colonel, officers, you know, doctors, nurses, and not just that. They used to also beat us. And if we scream or pain, bleeding came off on our nose and mouth, they were like, eat. The only word they told you, eat, eat, eat. You know, we were beating all day long, all day. There's a team. What, whatever you do, they just beat you. Pepper spray, beat, uh, beating, sleep deprivation. That continued for three months. And he was there. Because at the beginning, he told us that he was there to ensure we are treated humanely. And if we have concern or issues, he will take it. But... 
These were the people who actually survived the torture, the abuses, the beating all the time at, at Guantanamo. So Ron DeSantis, he wasn't just there as like a lawyer that you could go to. He was actually supervising torture beatings, and he was supervising these force feedings of you and others. Ron DeSantis was there all the time because his job to walk around and talk to prisoners in the camp, that was his job because he reported, like, I'm here to ensure you're being treated humanely. I'm like, I'm telling Americans, if this, if this guy, if this, if this is humanity, this guy is torture, is a criminal. So when someone comes to talk to us, like, try, I'm trying to help you, I wasn't complaining, you know, because we thought, okay, that's my work. Then when, when we saw him there, I told her when he came to approach me when I was first feeding, like, asked us to eat, he says, better to eat. And he was laughing. So I'm like, I guess I threw up in his face. And he was there to ensure we were treating uh, humanely. And you, you say that while Ron DeSantis was observing you being, you were strapped to a chair, they were pouring can after can of insure down a tube through your nose. You were obviously in distress, right? At the time, it was obvious to Ron DeSantis that you were in pain. And you say that he was actually laughing during this procedure? Yes, I mean, like, they were asking us to eat because they, they took our hunger strike as, as a tool, as a challenge that, and they went to break it because when, when he was there, they were looking at us and laughing because also we were shitting in ourselves. And they were, he was laughing because when it like, when it was like screaming and yelling because when, when, when your stomach full of insure, you, you couldn't breathe and you throw up at the same time. Also, there was a bleeding time of, of, of my nose because the, the tube they brought, really thick tube. It's not like the regular one. At the beginning, they bought a small one. Then they bought a really big one. Had like a piece of metal in the end. It was hurt like hell. And I was screaming. Like when I was, I was screaming. I look at him, and he was actually smiling, like as someone who enjoying it. When he come close, I just throw up in his in, in his face because I was throwing up all the way. And I get punished. They took my clothes after. after they, yeah, it was. This is the memory of this person. When I shared my my uh, his uh, photo with the brothers, we have a group former former Guantanamo prisoners. And like all of the like start cursing him, he's one of the worst people. You know, one of the things that hurt us when someone can tell you that I'm here to help you. I'm here to ensure that you treat it humanely. And when he turned against us, when he turned not against us, when he turned his face, his true face, it was shock to us all when someone because he used to talk to the prisoners, he has like a notebook and would ask the prisoners, and you have any problems, how we can help you. How the guards treated, treated you, and like, wow, thanks. And everything we told him were turned against us. So you're saying that DeSantis initially, because he presented himself as the lawyer whose job it was to ensure you were being treated humanely, then you and other detainees told him the things that were the hardest for you to deal with, the things that you felt needed to change. And then instead of actually making sure those things changed and that your human rights are respected, he then basically like was gathering intelligence to then tell the prison camp and the interrogators what it was that was impacting you most so they could do it more to you. Exactly. That would have been there because the things we used to tell them, it turned against us. You know, I remember when he was talking about the noise at the night, when I'm talking about like the, the vacuums, the generators, the fans and everything. And they brought, they brought more and more stuff. You told DeSantis, that was one of your complaints to DeSantis, is that how they were sleep depriving you by causing so much intentional noise throughout the night. You told DeSantis this, and then they increased the noise? They increased the noise, and, you know, also when, oh, they, the food, for example, 
my brother used to tell him, okay, please, uh, we don't eat meat because we want to say it's halal or not. What the guard did after that, they used to mix all the food with meat so that you, that you cannot eat. And that's another thing that you told DeSantis was a problem and then and they it's, did it's it again. That also the medicine, clothing, treatment, sleeping, you know, the desecration for uh, the uh, Quran. You know, everything we talked to him become multiple because he, when I talked about it, he said he was looking at the impact on you, what hurts you more. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't tell them nothing, they need to find a way to hurt you, the thing that affects you more. So, like, and we, after that, we knew who, who he is, basically. And on, on, when, we were, when we were on force feeding and uh, torture, he was laughing. You know, they were they were smiling and, you know, like, looking at us like as nothing, as trash. That's incredible. So if officially his job was to uh, ensure human rights of detainees, but really in reality what he did was exploit your trust in him for that brief moment to then use against you all the human rights violations that were impacting you the most. And so he actually helped increase the torture on you and increase the pain and suffering on you under the guise of he was there to help. I mean, so to wrap up, you told me there was a resistance tactic there of splashing camp administrators, as it was called, which was splashing them with your own feces. But you didn't use this tactic often and reserved it only for the most hated torturers there, the worst of the worst. And uh, you told me earlier that DeSantis was one of those people who got splashed. Yes, only the worst of the worst. Not anyone get, gets splashed, no. So DeSantis got the... The, the badge of shame. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> this conversation with Mansour reveals previously unreported details of Ron DeSantis's opaque role at Guantanamo. While I'm sure a lot of people out there will be happy to learn he has been hit with spit, vomit, and human fecal matter by the people he was hurting, I want to review some of the most important revelations. Ron's position was not some routine one. He didn't just rotate in and take over for some other low-level officer. Until then, no JAG officer had been assigned to such a position. He was brought in during a crisis. The mass protest of around 500 detainees in the form of a hunger strike was a major problem for the prison administrators, and especially for the Bush administration, which was in a legal and political hot seat for the torture camp and the protests. So they brought in a collection of new ruthless individuals to break the strike. Ron DeSantis was one of them. The official job, which I previously referenced, where his superiors described him as the human rights representative for detainees, was actually meant to defeat the hunger strikers. And as you heard, not by actually conforming the conditions to international law, but an undercover assignment for DeSantis to learn the weak points of the protesters and tighten the screws on them. It would be bad enough had DeSantis done these things as an interrogator or as a prison guard, but it makes it just so much more insidious that he was the attorney officially tasked with ensuring human rights. Mansour's description of the DeSantis era being by far the worst period of his entire detainment at Guantanamo is really saying a lot, given it is the most notorious torture camp in the world. In addition to all the brutal torture we know was happening on DeSantis's watch, he was also there for a very disturbing incident. On June 9th, 2006, three detainees, all leaders in the hunger strike, were found dead in their respective cells. Each was found hanging by the neck, hands and feet bound with a piece of cloth shoved down their throat. Their bodies were sent home with all their organs and parts of the neck removed so that no autopsies could be performed. Officials ruled the death suicides, but Staff Sergeant Joseph Hickman, a prison guard who was on duty at the time, insists the men were actually tortured to death in a book he published in 2015. You can only wonder how much DeSantis knew about this incident. 
We know that DeSantis's tour in Guantanamo was one where he worked to not only cover up violations of international law, but was a gleeful participant in the war crimes. His joy in the face of one of the most grotesque and dehumanizing scenarios I've ever heard of, I think, is something that should haunt him for the rest of his political career. But his military story is not over. DeSantis must have impressed his superiors at the torture camp and proven he was just the kind of ethically compromised lawyer they needed because he went straight from one big assignment to another. Sarge, we're supposed to go home tomorrow. Yeah, and on Mondays, I cut the grass. Wrong, sunshine! We're going to paradise. The land of sand and sun. Hey, you want to be? Who's The same year DeSantis left Cuba, he was sent to Iraq. Like with Guantanamo, DeSantis makes passing reference to this in some speeches and campaign ads, but with the same murkiness about what he actually did. I met Governor DeSantis in 2009 when he was on active duty. He was a Navy commissioned officer and served in Iraq. When you're advising SEAL Team 1, you're making life and death decisions every day. And as someone who has served side by side with him, he is selfless and he will do what is in your best interest, not his best interest. The Navy's core values are honor, courage, and commitment. And Governor DeSantis embodied those core values on active duty and he embodies them every day as the governor of our state. Governor DeSantis is a true servant leader. Is this vagueness because DeSantis did nothing interesting on his deployment or for the same reason he's so quiet about Guantanamo? That if he talked about what he really did, he'd be implicating himself in some crimes. Let's see what we can glean from the details we do have. DeSantis wasn't just sent anywhere in Iraq, nor with any old unit. DeSantis was assigned to the epicenter of the anti-occupation resistance, Fallujah. Not with conventional forces, but special operations who, as we'll discuss, do some pretty shady stuff. And Ron got quite the promotion for this gig. While at Gitmo, he had superiors in his JAG office. In Fallujah, he was the sole legal oversight for the entire Special Operations Command Force in the area. First, as I said, DeSantis gets to Iraq in 2007. This is the height of Bush's troop surge and the height of U.S. casualties. That year was the deadliest for U.S. troops, with nearly 1,000 killed in that year alone. With the surge being prompted by occupation forces facing either embarrassing defeat or endless quagmire, there was enormous pressure on American commanders to turn the tide and then understand it, that they needed to do so by any means necessary. It is well documented that conventional combat forces were told to take the gloves off like never before. It is the time of the 2007 Baghdad airstrike revealed in the collateral murder video. Death, of course, was not just rained down from the sky, but infantrymen on the ground in that same video recall that they were told their mission was to, quote, out-terrorize the terrorists through a variety of illegal tactics, including indiscriminate gunfire in all directions in civilian areas in response to IED attacks. But DeSantis wasn't with a regular conventional unit. He was assigned to the Special Operations Task Force, which commanded both Navy SEALs and Army Special Forces, who are notorious for extra-legal acts of unconventional warfare at all times, let alone during the deadliest year of the Iraq War. DeSantis was the senior legal advisor to the top commander of this task force in the region, which included Fallujah and the Euphrates River Valley, meaning anything that special ops were doing in that area, Ron was responsible for the legal oversight as the top and only lawyer. Officially, his job was, according to his commander, quote, ensure the missions of Navy SEALs and Army Green Berets were planned according to the rule of law and that captured detainees were humanely treated, including compliance with both U.S. military law and the Geneva Convention, end quote. 
Now, we've already explored what Ron's oversight could mean for treatment of detainees, interrogations in the field by SEALs and special forces. I mean, you can just use your imagination there, but have the potential to be even worse than that at Gitmo. But DeSantis was also responsible for helping the commander, Navy SEAL Captain Dane Thorlifson, actually plan special operations missions in accordance with the law. But to remind you of something I said earlier, DeSantis was the sole legal oversight for this task force. There were no other lawyers. Ron, and only Ron, was responsible for keeping these guys in line with international law. And does Ron seem like the kind of guy who would want to keep them in line? And after what we know he did at Gitmo, and especially in the face of potentially losing the war, was his job in both places really to ensure the rule of law and the human rights of detainees, or was that just the official language, but in practice, his job was actually to cover up war crimes? In other words, was he there to do the same thing he did at Gitmo? I talked about this with Sergeant First Class Sauter Morris. Morris just retired this year after 20 years in the Army, which included two tours as an infantryman in Iraq and Afghanistan. Based on my experience, which, uh, you know, I was a support guy prior MI, as you and I both were when we met, and then uh, I was an infantry guy for five years and then I was medically reclassed to IT and after I was put in the IT world I uh, worked closely within special operations for the majority of the rest of my career working in that realm and at the higher echelons of that my knowledge of what the JAG officers do is they're you know the legal advisors to the senior commanders there on the ground or wherever, and they just kind of advise in terms of when it comes to military operations, like specifically like DeSantis, who's on the ground in Iraq, you know, their job is just to advise their commanders when it comes to planning and executing operations and that stuff in accordance with, you know, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the Army or military's legal system. And then, of course, in accordance with local laws and, you know, any other legal ramifications they could get, you know, hemmed up in. But at the same time, like, there's a conflict of interest there. Like, they work for that commander. So the commanders have their own intentions, their own, you know, ideas of how things should operate. And a lot of times, yeah, like, that's kind of the JAG officer's, you know, job is to find the way to legally make things happen or to, I guess, like what they always say is like how to, how to get to yes, <laughs> you know. So right. I definitely would imagine, especially back then, like being a young, you know, officer, like you know, he was probably in that same position to you know make sure that you know anything that did maybe go wrong in a mission or you know anything that was kind of questionable, like how to kind of best proceed. And, and a lot of times, like you know, the default for that is like keep American service members like out of trouble. A lot of that job is to actually provide top cover for those commanders and the subordinates who, you know, sometimes are not necessarily doing most legal or morally upstanding things. And especially too, like being an outsider like that, you know, like anybody that's not like special operations in and of itself, you know, like any of their support people, like there's a certain, you get kind of drawn into it, you know, a little bit of like sort sort of that, you know, there's that hero worship of military people from like the majority of America. And then even within the military, it's like, Ooh, special operations or SEALs or Green Berets, you know, it's like, 
you don't want to be the outsider within that tight knit of an organization, right? Like you kind of have to toe the line and, you know, or you don't have to, but, you know, definitely it makes life a little harder if you're kind of that outside guy. Yeah, and we do know his commander, the SEAL commander that he was responsible for working directly with and, you know, advising all this. He really likes DeSantis and says nothing but great things about him. So I think that would indicate that uh he, you know, didn't challenge him in any significant way that would make him be like, you know, fuck this uh lawyer guy. Um so right, right. done done exactly what the commander wanted. And you know, I think um I think in general, like, you know, Geneva Convention stuff, I mean, I'm just thinking back to even like basic training and after if there's always this like undermining of it and the sense of like um, officially <laughs> this is what you're supposed to do but if you just say you're doing this technically you're not breaking geneva convention you know like the whole i think the most famous thing is like the, like 50 caliber machine guns and how they're not supposed to be anti-personnel weapons and so if you're technically you're aiming at someone's a canteen, then you're not, you're aiming at equipment, you're not aiming at people. And that always stuck with me, it's like, okay, I mean, one of the first things we're learning is how to um, avoid prosecution uh, for war crimes. It was just like, I feel like that culture is kind of so widespread that in conventional forces, and so you have to imagine in the special operations, they're looked at as things not that there's this, like, ethical duty to uphold, but, you know, just guidelines with which you have to, like, operate around officially. Yeah, sure. And, and of course, too, you know, like it's all, you know, embroidered in secrecy and behind the, the eyes of like top secret and all that stuff. So it's like it's a little more cloudy back there on that side of things as yes. to what exactly you're doing. Right. And so I think the we've kind of established that what DeSantis is like expectation would be for him as the Jag guy there is not to be the guy that's like whipping people in the shape, but to being the guy that's giving top cover, as you said, special operations in general, like their kind of entire success kinds of rests on the fact that they are operating in a shadowy area of the law in a lot of ways. I mean, they're at a secret, you know, they're secret units doing secret missions, but I think there's a little bit of a dependence that to be able to, to bend international law to the things that they need to do in general as like a, an organization, let alone in, you know, the deadliest time of the Iraq war. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, like, I mean, yeah, any kind of other operations that are going on that aren't, you know, as well known or, you know, even officially recognized, you know, like that gray area is where they're supposed to operate in. Yeah. And so DeSantis's job, you know, wasn't just to be a legal advisor for so-called legal advisor for these actual missions, but also treatment of detainees. And we've already explored in this episode how he did or did not do that job at Guantanamo Bay. And a lot, it would almost seem like there was, would be more oversight and scrutiny at Guantanamo Bay for interrogations than in the field with special operations in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? It almost seems like if, oh, you, yeah. are, if you are being, if you're going to be interrogated, you would probably want to be interrogated more at Guantanamo where there are like more lawyers and some cameras yeah, and whatever than actually yeah. be interrogated after being picked up in your house and put on a Blackhawk and brought into a field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's the thing. It's like there's no legal oversight. You know, they obviously have the protocols and they're told what is legal and what isn't legal. But again, it comes down to 
what gets results, what gets, you know, what makes you part of that team, what makes you part of that community, right? Is like, you know, kind of being willing to skirt or subvert, you know, some legal actions. For me, the most underreported aspect of DeSantis's military career is that it isn't over yet. As far as I can tell, he is still an officer in the Navy Reserves. After returning from Iraq in 2008, his next JAG assignment was being assigned to the Department of Justice in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida. He completed his active duty contract in 2010 and the same year transferred to the Navy Reserves. And as of this year, 2022, he is still in the Navy Reserves. So we may have another Tulsi Gabbard on our hands, a right-wing culture warrior rising through the political ranks while simultaneously rising through the military ranks indicative of the type of people who crave power with some unnerving implications about politicians who exist in both the civilian and military worlds. We know from history, deep ties to the military establishment make any far-right demagogue all the more dangerous. Ron DeSantis has already become an ideological leader on the right for hyping up culture war issues like critical race theory and legislating heavily against abortion, LGBTQ rights, and COVID restrictions as governor. Whatever happens with the 2024 election, DeSantis is here to stay as a national political figure for a while. Now that we know, and there are so many witnesses to attest to this, that he covered up and participated in illegal torture, not as an interrogator, but as an attorney who was duty-bound to uphold human rights law. This should be an issue that haunts him just like it did the Bush administration. If you recall, it was the scandal at Guantanamo which helped propel Obama to the presidency on a promise to close the camp altogether. Ironically, Ron DeSantis is today working with the same forces who helped cover it up. His closest collaborator in the so-called anti-woke Messiah rebrand, which he began in 2020, is Christopher Rufo. Rufo is from the Heritage Foundation, a new conservative think tank, which not only helped Bush 1 and Bush 2 mastermind their respective Iraq wars, but was a leading defender of Bush's torture program at the time DeSantis was watching people be gruesomely force-fed. And while we don't know exactly what he did in Iraq, there are probably some witnesses out there who do, who are hopefully found soon as well. It would be really great to see him pressed on this scandalous past by journalists as he continues to rise into the national spotlight. If he does want to be president, isn't it relevant that he covered up and participated in war crimes? And shouldn't those disturbing details about his character, which you heard about today, matter when it's someone who already controls an entire state and may one day control the entire country? The Ronald has so far tried to keep this military past in the shadows with just enough hazy reference to be able to check that coveted box of being a veteran with overseas experience. Now that we have shed some light into his closet, let's hope the light stays on. Thank you for listening to Eyes Left. To support the show, join us at patreon.com slash eyes left or patreon.com slash empire files. This project is sponsored by Empire Files, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. So your donations are all tax deductible. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EyesLeftPod. Always feel free to contact us there or at EyesLeftPod at gmail.com, especially if you are in the military and in need of some solidarity, some help, or just want to be heard. Eyes Left. Hmm. I wasn't surprised. Okay, tell everybody what we're going to do now. This is called Why the Mind Should Never Be in Charge of the Body, The Energy Codes with Dr. Sue Mortar. How long is that one? Mm. Uh, Just a second. 
Helen Hansel was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen because she had won seven trips to Paris. Okay, that's the 25 minute one. Reflecting to reveal this presence according to my uniqueness. When am I? Right now. Suddenly, you're in bliss. You've forgotten about your body. That's beta endorphin kicking in because you plug yourself into the information source of the universe, which has nothing but love for you and love for everything around you. Dandelions are extremely medicinal. We look at them as weeds. They are extremely good at detoxifying our liver. They're something that's been used for thousands of years to help our body heal itself. Focus on the positive. And as soon as you start focusing on the positive and what you want to create and dream big, all of a sudden you step away and you look around and you say, oh my goodness, where were all these open doors before? You know what? They were there all along. To let go of that anxiety, that anger, that pain, then we can begin to open up the brain for that healing. disassociated from your body. You know that stagnant energy that is trapped in your body could actually be the reason. And it's affecting all of the systems in your body required for health and for wholeness. Would you like to learn how to connect your body's innate circuits again? Hi, I'm Lisa Gar, and joining me is the master of bioenergetic medicine, Dr. Sue Mortar. And she is known for bringing science spirit, and human possibility together. Welcome. Oh, it is such a joy to be with you always, Lisa, and and a great joy to be here. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this because you are not only the embodiment of bioenergetic medicine, but I would love to hear you explain what is it. Bioenergetic medicine is something a little more close to home than people probably think. It is an energy that flows through our body. It is you know, bio means body and energetic means energy. And there is an energy that is flowing through the physical body constantly. And if that energy is flowing freely, then we are healthy and vital and clear and strong and robust and we can manifest and achieve the things that we want. And if it's not, it's kind of like we can't. So what we're doing is learning how to move that energy consciously and intentionally so that it doesn't stagnate, so that it doesn't cause our our lives to become uh, less abundant and flourishing uh, than it 
Could be. When energy is not moving, vital force isn't moving. So a communication that's designed to be happening in the body is not available. It's not available to tell the, the electromagnetic system, the respiratory system, the hormonal system, the endocrine system, the immune systems, uh, what's going on. So if the energy isn't moving and the communication isn't happening, pretty soon our bodies just become segmented and breakdown starts to happen. Cells start to implode and disease gets started. But Western medicine segments it. It's here's the endocrinologist and here's the heart specialist and there's various things. It's like they take different departments from yes. an organ. Yes. It doesn't look at the whole body. Yes, and this is part of the problem. This is why our country is in the shape that it's in regarding uh, so many disease conditions just taking over and so many medications that are being prescribed for all kinds of separate conditions because we're no longer looking at the whole being in our medical culture and it is time that we start bridging these worlds back together again and allowing the whole being to have a chance. You know, the great news is that we can do this ourselves and it's actually only ourselves that can do this, right? Yes, we're the only one it is, that can actually it? allow healing to happen. You know, the beauty is it's by design supposed to be happening automatically and what we have not been taught is how to allow that to happen without getting in the way. Many of our habitual ways of thinking and being and doing and actioning in the world are what gets in the way of that natural energy flow to allow us to self-heal. Even if you do so many things right, you've got environmental toxins and environmental stressors and things that we never could have predicted in our world. Yes, absolutely. So you pull this energy together from, is it multiple layers? Is it from the ground? How how do you do this? Uh, yes. Okay, okay. It's all the we're, we're using the energies of the earth to help us feel good. Can a simple ocean creature be the answer to vision impairment as we age? If you wear glasses or contacts, you must do this. A Nobel Prize winning scientist reveals an astonishing, natural way to reclaim the 2020 vision you were born with in record time. Feel grounded and nurtured. And we're also using the energies of inspiration and possibility to allow us to be uplifted and to engage in a, a, a bigger, better life for ourselves than perhaps we've been experiencing trapped inside of our old beliefs. And most importantly, we're, we're learning how to take all those energies from outside of us and move them through the inside of us to allow an integration to occur so that we're tapping all of the aspects of our wholeness again and allowing ourselves to live as magnificent creators rather than just striving survivors mm, from the from the neck up yes now you have come from a long line of doctors yes your father i am number nine in a family of 13 doctors in my family wow yeah you're committed. Yes, it's, it's we're either very devoted or we're just not very creative to think of other things to do. In our no, lives. you're carrying out a massive we're, body of work. We're here. we're completely uh, devoted to this, and it, it has been my whole life purpose. I know that it's why I'm on the planet to to share the work that I'm sharing. Nice. Tell me about your father and the Mortar Clinic and the Mortar Institute. So uh, the the uh, Mortar Institute is something that I have founded in the last. Um, 20 years, I, I've been working with the work that my father developed and taking it further into the realms of meditation and uh, kind of a spiritual application of this this grounded body of work that was originally designed, um, called bioenergetics, 
to help people heal naturally. So my father was a pioneer in energy medicine, a, a, a term that is now becoming very popular and people are very interested because it depicts our ability to use energy to heal ourselves and, and, and uh, utilizing energy to heal ourselves is, is what natural self-healing is all about. So my father started developing these techniques in the 70s when it wasn't even a popular conversation. In fact, it kind of got ridiculed. But he stayed the course and developed techniques that that doctors at the time were the only ones able to learn the techniques were utilizing around the world uh, just in a hands-on kind of way, applying uh, different energy um, modalities to different parts of the body to create circuitry for healing in, in the system again. Mind is so powerful. It's so powerful. It it sends all these messages and signals and then buries it. Yeah, it is. It's trying to awaken. But when it's being utilized the way that we've been trained to utilize it, it struggles and it moves into a sense of survivorship and it wrestles trying to make things work. But it alone is not operating from a place of wholeness. And so we're constantly stuck in a reality of surviving and making do and trying to find what's wrong and fixing it, etc. So my work is about moving to an entirely different perspective altogether so that we're no longer looking for what's wrong, finding it and fixing it, but we're using our mind and training it to become the creator that it is truly intended to be. It's supposed to be integrated in the body with the breath and and allowing mind, body, spirit, if you will, to uh, collectively work in a unified fashion because when we unify, we're in an empowered state. When we're splatted and dispersed, we're not. And separated and fragmented. So the mind sends these messages to the body. They get housed in the body. And then you help decode them and connect the mind and the body all together. Yes, because when the mind connects with the body again, it starts mm-hmm. listening instead of directing. When the mind is not connected to the body, it's trying to drive the show. It's trying to like, I don't know, nobody's helping me, so I got to get this job done. Nobody's going to show up to make this happen as it's isolating as a separate self. It begins to be really fear-based. That The high frequencies of the mind and its story writing, uh, they start to become tethered and anchored to the body when we bring the mind onto the body and start to breathe. And when we do that, we start to interpret what's going on a little differently. And the difference is we become more uh, available to possibility. If if we bring the mind onto the body and there's some part of the body that's not comfortable or it, it it's exhibiting pain, etc., there's a reason for that pain. And the reason is that energy is blocked. Pain is an excess of energy in the body. And weakness is a deficiency of that energy. And so what we have to do is get the energy flowing again so that the areas of blockage where the energy is building up get relieved. And the areas of deficiency where now cells aren't getting the signals they're supposed to get and they're not doing their job because of that, they start to receive some of that energy that was being hoarded over here uh, within that blockage. So it starts to create a harmonizing balance in the system and all those systems start plugging in and working together again for wholeness. You can do this with your mind? You can do it with your mind. Not just your mind, okay. but your mind and your body and your breath. Our true path is accessible. 
But we have to connect the mind onto the core of the body if we're ever going to be able to perceive what our true, authentic, right next step is. Whether that next step is a, a, a thought or the next step is taking an action in a certain direction that is truly going to serve our life destiny. Otherwise, we're shooting off in all kinds of directions, trying this, trying that, going for this, trying really hard, but trying really hard from the wrong come from. And so we don't have the outpicturing that we're looking for. Now, in your life, do you source this energy from the earth, from from spirit? Where do you source this energy? I have to stay connected to the earth of me, which is the body, okay. which is automatically connected to the earth that we're all walking around on top of. And in the midst of that, there is a deep spiritual truth that rises up through the system. Energy pours down through the body automatically, a high-frequency energy, which we would call spiritual energy. It traverses all the way down through the body and hits the earth and then turns and rises back up in a different frequency. The earth steps it down for what I call human consumption. And as it rises up through us, if we don't have blockages in the way, it rises all the way up to our conscious awareness and we are in touch with our spiritual truth, our destiny, what's meant to be, our potentiality, etc. If there are blockages along the way, it picks up a wobble, it becomes distorted, and it creates a distortion in the energy field around the physical body. As the energy comes down through, Mm -hmm. rises back up, it comes up at the top of the head and creates this reverberation and recycling of energy constantly. We look out through that energy field, and if it has a wobble, it has a distortion, we see a distorted reality. Mm -hmm. And we can affirm it, we can build a case for it, but it still is distorted. And in that distortion, we make decisions that aren't so good for us. And what about attracting other distorted energies? It's the only thing we can do, because in that world, like attracts like. Uh-huh. And so in in that world, we attract distorted circumstances. We we create this entire reality based upon what we think we see, but it isn't true. It doesn't have to be true. So you've identified these through these energy codes. Can you yes. tell us what those are? And well, you have a new book out coming. Uh, sure. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, the, in the book, I, I'm going to be describing that that over the years, I codified what was happening with patients as I started working with energetics. Uh, about 20 years ago, I had an experience that was a tremendous awakening, illuminating experience where I awakened at, a, at an entirely different dimension than this physical body world that we're living in. And after that, I wanted to return to that state because it was pretty amazing. There was a complete knowing, a complete presence. There was nothing missing. It was blissful. There was nowhere to go, nothing to become. It was completely complete. I uh, I began uh, turning my life into a living laboratory. And as I would work with how to return to that state, I began sharing it with patients. And they started getting better faster and staying better longer. And so I started observing this. And I began to just codify what they were doing. So it's the energy codes are these codifications that are principles and practices that allow us to live from our creatorship instead of our survivorship, meaning uh, really trusting who we are and building a way to um, make that easier, accessible for everyone. That's amazing. So all that we talked about in the beginning of reestablishing that energy and allowing it to flow through the body you've been able to decode where people have the blockages and to allow it to flow again. And what causes building of new blockages too. Are you able to t- 
tell us some of the codes and how we can um, discover those or learn those within ourselves. They're fairly simple, right? The, the initial ones, the foundational ones. You know, I don't want people to think that that they're going to understand all of what I'm teaching from this, but yeah. but we can initiate some understanding there. Absolutely. Okay. okay and so, they can have an experience because of that. Okay, great. So let's talk about some of those codes. What are they? Or what are just your basic ones? So there are some some fundamental things that an individual can do that are going to pull them back onto this essential core being. Okay. And one of those things that we can do, we have to picture it this way. We land here and we kind of splat. We, we disperse. We kind of don't know what's what. Our mind goes one way. Our breath goes another. Our body Visit us for assisted living and memory care in Santa Fe. It's doing its thing. Hey, someone paid me to tell you this within the first 10 seconds of the video. First, I was going to tell them now. Not for the reason you might think. I told Our body goes another way and we're just out here hanging out trying to make it work. And because of that, we identify as the mind that's looking around, looking outwardly to try to figure out how to fit in, how to be safe, how to do the right thing, etc. And our circuits get built in an externally oriented fashion. In order to reverse this, we have to direct our circuitry, our attention back inward to call all these parts of us back home again. And as we do so, we start to unify. And when we unify, we have a greater power in the world and we can feel ourselves here. We have a sense of self that we have never had before. So think of it like that, that what we're about to practice is pulling ourselves back home again, landing in the core of the body so that mind and body and breath, spirit, spirit in the body is the breath in the body. So if we can get mind and body and spirit working together again, what happens is a reorganization of the priority. We're no longer now having to live from our minds. We can live from our wholeness, yeah. the unified version. Otherwise, we're just disenfranchised all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's those disconnected pieces of ourselves that we leave out there to grow and develop. And we don't own them again. Yes. And with yeah. the best of our efforts, we try so hard and we never accomplish what we're after. Because wow. we're, we're working from a compromised disposition. Not so, a wholeness. Yes. Mm. So, so simple things like it's kind of, kind of wild, but if we can imagine that the energy is out here and it's bigger than, bigger than me, bigger than my physical body, and I have to like bring it in and bring some organization to it, anchor it so that I can concentrate it in my core so that I can use that concentrated energy for purposes of healing. Purposes of piercing through veils that are, that are keeping my, my personal power from accessing my ability to experience unconditional love and, and uh, keeping me from experiencing wisdom and connecting that to my personal power and being able to manifest. And all these different energies that are housed at different levels of our body now get to start talking to each other so that we can be strong and we can be loving at the same time. We can be innovative and we can be wise and maintain uh, a, a finger on the pulse of what has traditionally been helpful for humanity so that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. as we're trying to create a new solution in the world. So all of this can come together if we just do some of these simple things. So uh, one of them is like, it's kind of wild, but if if you think about if you were going to the bathroom and you had to stop the stream all of a sudden, you'd have to squeeze certain muscles in the base of the pelvic bowl. Right. If you squeeze 
squeeze those muscles and you kind of lift them up toward your heart. And it might seem kind of weird to think about doing that in the first few times, but if you practice it a few times, it becomes, you know, second nature and it gives the subconscious an opportunity to find a stabilizing presence inside the core of the body. And then, and the reason for that, that that is important is if we don't have a stabilizing sense of self inside the core of our being, we start creating friction in our outer world trying to figure out who we are. If we can create this gentle tension inside the body, then we can have a sense of where we are in the universe and who we are and have a sense of self. And so this simple thing, it's, it's a root lock exercise, just locking the energy at the root of our spine allows us to start to develop this, oh, okay, there's my reference point. It's like having something to hold on to. Ah, so it's a grounding piece. It's a grounding piece. It's the root of our spine. It's at the tip of the tailbone. There's a lot of nerve endings there as well. Tremendous nerve endings that ironically are the exact nerves that run through the hips and the pelvis and the legs and the feet into the earth. Ah. And so there's a line of communication that's trying to happen between the base of our spine and the very earth that we walk on. And the earth's grounding frequencies are so powerful for stabilizing our inspirations and our intuitions and our dreams and desires. So we need them both. We need them both. So this root lock is helpful to just squeeze these muscles at the base of the pelvis, okay? Mm -hmm. And then hug your heart on the inside, the center of your chest, not just your heart muscle, but in the core. Like if you were just going to squeeze your body, make it smaller at the chest level, smaller front to back and smaller side to side, and then go inside from there, like inner rings on a tree to the very inside, Mm. and just give it a hug. Just give your heart a hug. And now that's this root lock and then this heart hug just above that. Then constrict your throat just a little bit, just kind of like a Darth Vader breath, okay? Just kind of like like an ujjayi breathing. If you're a yogi, you would understand that term. And it might sound like if you're almost snoring, what we want is a sound that's audible for just a moment so that the mind can find where I'm supposed to be tracking my attention up and down through this central core channel of the body. Then let's just roll our eyes up for a moment. Just roll them up. And you feel a slight tension behind your eyes? Mm-hmm. That Just use that tension point as another anchoring point as if we were going to drop a plumb line straight down through the central core of the body from the top of the head through this. For two years, a secret army of federal and private contractors has been working quietly. Its mission is to develop a government-sanctioned technology. Jim Rickards, a former advisor to the Pentagon... ...through the center of the brain, through that tension spot behind your eyes, Mm -hmm. and relax your eyes, but memorize that place in the center of the brain, Mm -hmm. and then breathe so that you can hear your breath, and then hug your heart, and then squeeze at the root of the spine... Just kind of try it all on at once here. Mm-hmm. It's going to feel awkward at first. Yes, it's perfect. perfect. All right. So then take a breath from the earth and imagine that you're breathing up into your belly and hug your heart right in the middle of that. And then exhale right up through your throat and right up through the center of the brain. Right. Exhale through your nose and shoot the breath right out the top of your head. Mm. Just like a dolphin would out of a blowhole. Energetically, this is a measurable reality. That there is a channel of energy wow. that Drops moves the through the human system. It'll drop the shoulders and it will relax you. Now, find that whole plumb line again, these four anchor points, just eyes, throat, heart, root to the spine. Okay, Find that line, imagine it, and take a breath from overhead and breathe right down into your belly. 
and let it feel good while it's coming through. And then exhale right through your nose. Exhale, just shoot it right down through your body and into the earth. Just oh. inhale and exhaling through the nose picks up power, moving up the breath through the turbinates in the sinuses, propels that breath to the bottom lobes of the lungs, which activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is just the part that relaxes us. Yeah. So it sends a signal into the nervous system just by how we're breathing. Everything's okay. That all is well. It's okay to chill out now. We can use this energy differently than we've been using it before. I ask all of my guests that biggest why that you do what you do. And I'm going to try not to cry here because (laughs) it's so beautiful. I can so see your why. But can you share it with us? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is because it's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Doing mind-body-breath reunion is the reunion of the human spirit. And as we are able to be here as the spirit beings that we are and be here fully, then this life experience is everything that it is meant to be. I will never not be doing this work. That's the way, really. You know, we have to, we have to find our own expression of what we're here to do. And, and I was raised in an environment that had so many answers. There was so much amazing information that was talked about at our dinner table. We were talking about quantum science before it was ever even talked about out in the world and printed in the journals. And, and yet there were aspects of that truth that, that didn't completely explain everything that happened in my life when I started meditating and had these these larger than life experiences. And so uh, I had to come to terms with the fact that sometimes we have to go beyond what we've been trained and what our cultural norm would say and what our own family dynamic yeah. believes in and follow our path uh, in order to do what we're here to do. And, and that is true for everyone. Yes. Yes, for anyone who's in that situation, I can just see you around the dinner table, a little bioenergetic suit, feeling all <laughs> intuiting, all going, wait, that doesn't make quite full, that's the full picture I want to tell you, but I can't. Right. And yeah. then later in life, we go through enough experiences that we start to put the pieces together. Yeah. And then when we give ourselves permission to reveal what we're putting together for ourselves and have a trusted relationship with the universe, then what gets to happen is we bring our gifts. Yes, and it all unfolds perfectly. When we look at it, in hindsight, it's all exactly the way it should be. It was all in divine order. Yes, it was. Thank you so much for showing us what the meaning of coming back home into our body really is and how to practically connect back to home. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you for watching this show. Your energy makes these shows happen. So thanks for being here as well. And if you want to watch more inspirational programming, you can go to Inspirations on Gaia. I'm Lisa Gar. And until next time, I invite you to stay aware. That was fabulous. Okay, now the next one, the one that's 58 minutes from. Yeah, I'm getting there. That was wonderful. Wow. The electrons. <laughs> yes, we'll talk to the electrons. <laughs> this is also by, uh, oh, this is by Alexander Quinn, the one coming mm-hmm. up. And I think Pam Gregory's participating as well. Yeah. It's called a transcript, uh, no, uh, Star, Star Seeds. What's it all about? 
<laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. This is 58 minutes. Here we go. And astrology in that sense is massively reassuring because it says, yep, it's meant to be uncomfortable, it's meant to collapse at the 3D level in order to get us to a better place. But remember, you don't have to live at the 3D level. You can step back and observe. Please go and check out my Telegram channel. Uh, the link is below because that's where you're going to be able to get all the extra detail that you can't get here. I'll see you there. Hello, gorgeous star seeds and light workers. I'm Alexander Gwynn, star seed navigating the light. And today I've got the incredible Pam Gregory. How are you doing today? Yeah, most of me is terrific. Thank you, Alexander. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, a few things. We're just going to be talking about... Um, the, the, the new moon um, in Sagittarius, a few bits and pieces going on, but predominantly uh, my personal interest um, is what's going on in March of next year because um, there are some astrological things, but also uh, galactically there are some major things, um, and I wanted to, to go into it. So um, do you want to start a little bit just with the new moon and some of the, some of the bits that are just happening now just, just, just to sort of get us into the feel of it? Yeah, I mean... Um... In many ways, this is a very optimistic new moon. It's a very hopeful new moon. Um, it's ruled by Jupiter, which is, is, you know, planet of expansion. Sagittarius is to do with expansion, bigger visions. It's to do with, um, it's to do with long distance travel, which can bring in the galactics as well. Um, it's very future looking and, um, it's also to do with truth. It's to do with freedom. Jupiter is particularly strong here because it's stationary on the day of the new moon. It's also on the world axis, which means whatever is unfolding now, you know, will, will unfold in a bigger way. Those could um, involve legalities because Sagittarius is one of the two signs linked to legality. So but there's a feeling there's a lot of mutability, six plants in mutable signs. And that can give a feeling um, of either adaptability, flexibility, you know, we're adjusting to whatever's coming at us. But it can sometimes give a slightly kind of out of control. You know, there's so much that's being, it's almost like the energy is, is being thrown up for grabs, as it were. But I see that really positively is that we can step in as co-creators to, to reform our set of modeling clay in the way we want it reformed. So that gives us a lot of... Um, you know, I'm always saying that our reality is much more malleable than we realize. And this is a lot about malleability in this new moon. So from that point of view, I think it's incredibly positive. It is incredibly positive. Um, certainly since eclipse season um, started, things have definitely been thrown up a lot. I've definitely been seeing huge expansions, especially in consciousness and galactic stuff. It's so fast that people haven't quite actually managed to come to terms with some of the, I would say, conscious conscious mechanics of it um grounding into it how do you actually ground that down there is still that very quite lost feeling um in a lot of people um and i i see a lot of that starting to come um sort of more coming to fruition or kind of play out and coming to to more um conscious understanding from the conscious more in march to go forward but i think there's a lot i still think we've got a bit of turbulence uh coming up over this winter energetically for sure <laughs> yes for sure yeah at the 3d level i think it's going to be a tsunami absolutely so yeah. 
you know, we come back to where is your focus, where is your attention? Because if your focus is on the 3D, watching the nightly news, you you are likely to feel overwhelmed by events. There's going to be so much coming at us because, as you say, Alexander, everything's kind of speeding up. But if you are in a different place energetically, if you can get onto that eagle's perch that I always talk about, if you can get to that point of neutrality, that's the zero point field, you know, from where we create. You can just observe, um, not have to be in the fray, not be, not have your energy knocked about from moment to moment. Ah, another big scary thing. You know, you're just observing whatever is playing out and saying, no, I do not choose that on my timeline. I'm going to create a timeline over here, which is beautiful, loving, compassionate, abundant. That's where my focus goes. And a lot of people are doing that. The more of us that do that, the easier it gets. It's all about just creating a a wave, a new energetic hologram of love, care, compassion, gratitude. We do it. And then, you know, the physical reality forms from that. But that's why I'm endlessly banging on, banging on about us doing that. You know, just lift your vision from the turn off the news, I'd suggest very strongly and um, and go go inwards as well. Just watch your breath. Just shut your eyes. Turn off the, the external stimuli. Watch your breath. Drop into your heart. Candle gaze. Simple, simple, simple stuff. All for free. Anybody can do it. And that starts to shift and recalibrate your consciousness even by doing that. Because the Sagittarius energy at the moment is quite restless. Yeah. And also, um, I mean, I'm not the astrologer here. You are. I, I'm, I'm the galactics uh, and, you know, the ones I, but I do understand that there's something, uh, Mars is out of bounds at the moment. So that can also bring something, just, um, you know, um, it's almost like the expansion is so quick, but we can't quite ground it down into our reality yet. And the ego is panicking. And then what happens is, I get a lot of clients come to me and go, God, I feel so lost at the moment. I can feel myself expanding, but where is it going? And I think that's part of what's happening right now. Yeah, and, and I'd say just bare feet on the earth, bare feet on the ground, weather permitting in the UK. You know, it's absolutely blowing a hoolie out there. And, but the weather's know, horrible out there at the moment. Horrible. Yeah. You know, the more you can just put bare feet on the ground, just suck up those healing irons from the earth, and just in turning inwards, you know, don't focus on events, don't focus on a specific outcome. Just, just float in neutrality. Float in neutrality, which is loving, caring, compassionate, grateful. Just float in that, that, that feeling because it's that that's going to produce a much more positive reality than, you know, another scary thing. Because what the Mars out of bounds adds to, Mars is our energy. And when it's out of bounds, it can have this out of control feeling, which adds to the less positive expression of Sagittarius and things being kind of all over the place and overwhelming. Mm. And that's why we've really got to kind of master our energy by turning inwards. And, you know, I really try and teach stuff that is absolutely free, simple and accessible for every single living being on the earth. Mm. <laughs> God, I wish I could do that as well. Um, I, um, you know, what's interesting is, is we had all of those planets in retrograde for a very, very long time. I think, was it seven? Was it eight? How many was it? Yeah, yeah, it was eight at one point, yeah. So so it's almost like we got this timeline playing out, where we had a period of major retrospection, right? Basically, you're being forced by the, by the cosmos to sit back deliberately. It's, you're being stopped. Now we're, getting, now we're getting all the change and the expansion, but it's not grounded yet. It's like we passed the marker in, in, in 2012, Ascension's already done, but now it's just got to play out. 
And then, and then we have, obviously we have more events and we're going to talk about March in a minute, but it's almost like for me, energetically, it's almost like it's going to kind of start hitting our reality in March. And that's what I started seeing. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you today is because about three months ago, I was seeing March, early April, March, early April, coming up with my readings and things I was doing. And sometimes some of the stuff I get is so fantastical because I'm, you know, I'm dealing with mantis beings and creator beings and Arcturians. And sometimes even I have to ground it down into a, some kind of format reality that I can understand because sometimes, you know, when I'm having a conversation with a mantis being, it's clicks and frequencies and stuff. So, so when I was getting March, like three months ago, I'm thinking, is this more crazy stuff? And then I see you talking about it. Um, and then I see Bracket talking about it. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. I need to, you know, I, I really want to discuss this because I see major change. Um, so before we get, to, before we get to March, there's a few other bit. I mean, what, I mean, what do you think on that timeline? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it's going to be a big energetic shift then. And we can talk about the detail in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on is, um, now this is where I want your expertise, because what I do see, what I do see happening a lot more is the tectonic plates changing a lot more, but also water shifting. So when we talk, when the Palladians are constantly going on about Water is not going to disappear, but it is massively going to shift. But flooding is going to increase. Yeah. Um, and I, I, does that does that play out on an astrological level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is really Jupiter, Jupiter, Neptune, because Jupiter and Neptune came together exactly in conjunction in April. And I anticipated then, you know, many things like big inflation, big oil price rises, but also potentially flooding. There was massive flooding in Australia and uh, and also South Africa. But now it's coming back. It's sort of moved in. Jupiter moved into Aries, but now it's reversed back, retrograded back into Pisces again. So it's again in conjunction with Neptune. Now, still have massive flooding in Australia. Those poor people, you know, hardly dried out. Pakistan, huge flooding, but there could still be more flooding, particularly between now and the solstice when Jupiter then moves back into Aries. So, yes, the potential for flooding is is very high, actually, even in the UK, actually, um, that the potential for flooding is very high. I can't say the specific geographies because that's, that you know, that's a global thing. But, yes, uh, absolutely, I'd endorse that. And just, yes, major Earth changes. I mean, Uranus um, staying in Taurus, Uranus is... is it's a discontinuous energy. It's like a sudden shock, a bolt of lightning. You know, it's never steady. It's never gradual. It's never linear. And in Taurus, which is fixed earth, I want to hold things steady as they are. You've got these lightning rods coming in. And even that is one of the classic signatures for earthquakes and volcanoes. And that's until 2026. So I think we're likely to see a lot of earth changes in, in extreme ways. Yes, I do. It's part of the earth's upgrade. You know, the Earth is kind of giving birth to another Gaia, you know, a, an upgraded Gaia, if you like. So that's why we're seeing it on such a physical level. And I think we'll continue to do so. Yeah. And of course, as, you know, as the electromagnetics change and people, we get closer to what, you know, if, if some people call it a solar flash. I'd like to think of it more scientifically as maybe electro, an electromagnetic flip or something to that, you know, that, 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 but you know, migratory rates of birds will change. Um, you know, migratory rates of humans will change as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, 
anyway, it's it's I mean it's uh, water. I, I just wanted to I'm just fascinated because the water does you know there is an astrological link to that as well as well as the scientific and I just which is fascinating just just to pick your brains on that. And also the changes in the electromagnetic field, which you're, you're mentioning, Alexander. You know, I always talk about this in my videos about the drop in the suns and the earth's magnetic shield, which is letting in all this cosmic and galactic energy and the CMEs, the coronal mass ejections, M class, X class flares. They are just exponential compared to what we had just two or three years ago. You know, they're, they're off the charts in terms of frequency and strength. So that is affecting the human resonances. It's affecting us because we're living beings on the earth and, mm-hmm. and, our little kind of individual energy systems have to continually adapt to being zapped with with this essentially it's new information so it's fantastic because it's new information that's upgrading us but we are ascending at dizzying speed i don't think we've ever ascended at such speed in our in our human evolution ever in any lifetime so it's kept yeah we're kind of hanging on to the side rails here no, we haven't. We haven't. I mean, and what, also what people forget that on a galactic level, our whole galaxy is going up an octave as well. We are not the only ones. But, you know, people need to take that into account. But because we're coming from one of the lowest density perspectives, it is it is the hardest because we're going from carbon, to, you know, to, to crystalline, so on and so forth. So, but it's such a big um, a consciousness shift. It's like going from grade one um piano to all the way up to eight straight away whereas whereas other 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 beings are going from grade eight to just more masterful levels of grade eight you know so on and so forth you know play now we're going to play the rack three some some um tchaikovsky at double the speed now but we knew how to do it before so it, it is a shocking rate of course we, we're getting the dna upgrades and stuff and and i love what i love because I love the, the galactic stuff and the energetic stuff, but what I love is is how it does coincide with the astrology of things. And, and people say you can't predict dates, you can't make dates, you can't say that. And to some degree, that is true. But when things are linked to the planets, which do uh, run like clockwork, you can sometimes make predictions. And that is how sometimes, you know, when I'll give a date or something, I'll actually run off the planets. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting one. It's something that's fascinated me since I was seven years old, actually, the concept of time. I remember, I think the naughtiest thing I ever did as a child was I got a book out of our local library called Time. I can't possibly remember the author. It was so long ago. I never took it back. I read it and read it and because I was just obsessed with this concept of time. And if it's true that linear time only exists in this 3D world, mm. then... The birth charts and the, and the mundane charts that I'm working with will only really apply with that timing in, in this reality. So once, you know, we upgrade, the whole concept of time starts to loosen up very significantly and I can then retire because I don't know how that's going to work yet. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's amazing you just said that because I had a client today. I won't mention her name. God bless her because she'll, she'll, uh, she'll, if she's watching this, she'll probably know who she is, but, you know, she was saying to me earlier on, you know, can you diagnose, find out and help me learn who my star family are, my star family connections, you know, where I'm from, blah, 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 blah. And I said, OK, we'll do that. Of course, you know, it's part of my job, it's part of what I do. Um, and then we got to the end of it. And I said, and now that you've got that out the way, um, I think we should move on to something that's actually not completely, you know, that's actually not actually might help you in this lifetime, because... You know, there's no time on the other side. 
And as you develop and progress and change multidimensionally, you might have star connections from Andromeda, Antares, um, Hades, and so on and so forth. But as you begin to develop, you know, more beings, different beings will come in and it'll become irrelevant. Because there, and, and, and who you're going to be and what you're going to do are on the other side where there is no time. So it's sort of, you know, and we, we're having to unlearn everything at the moment, even our star family connections, because it's all new. And that, it, it is funny that you, you mentioned what you just said, because it's, it's, I had this conversation with a client earlier on today. Um, so of course people love to know where I'm from, you know, what star family. And of course I always love entertaining that, but. Even that we've now got to unlearn because it's it's a completely new paradigm. It's unlike really, anything ever before. I really, really agree, Alexander. And you know, if we're going to step into becoming interdimensional or multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional galactic beings, we are we are everywhere and 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 nowhere at the same time. So you know, trying to pin it down in a very concrete 3D way of you know, I came from here and then at a certain time I went to Sirius and then after Sirius, you know, nail it. Then I went to Lyra, you know, and all of that I think is just going to be up for grabs. I think the whole nature of of our reality, our cosmos, the galaxies, how we've understood our reality. I think we are going to go through paradigm shattering times and that is one of the big themes of Pluto moving into Aquarius you know if we look back to when it was in Aquarius previously um, say 1543 that's when Copernicus published his heliocentric theory mm. and so to the average bloke in the street who just like you and I today Alexander we, we wake up and we see the sun rise in the east and move around the sky and you know, wow. set in the west at least on a sunny day you know how could it be that um, that isn't the case yeah. You know, the the, yeah. the the earth is moving around the sun, not what you're seeing with your eyes. And to the average bloke in the street in 1543, that was, it, it was just so hard to get your head around. It was paradigm shattering. I think we are going to move into paradigm shattering times, particularly around the nature of reality, cosmos, galaxies, time, everything really, mm. starting from next year. Well, I mean, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Einstein said that the, the four dimensions of time and space, there are four dimensions to time and space, but as the equilibrium speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, eventually we, it, we will hit instantaneous and we will hit that zero point where there is no time. And it is very gradually happening, but we are having more of those multidimensional, you know, shifts where you, you know, you go in the kitchen for a bottle of water, right? You can't remember why you're there because You've jumped, you've jumped, you've timeline shifted and so on. Well, that, that's going to be happening more and more and more. So, um, it, it is, um, it, it, yeah, it just keeps expanding, expanding. But thank God we're getting the upgrades, um, Pam, so that we can deal with it. Because, you know, the, some of these big ones that come, the body is like, oh my God, can I deal with this? Then we get the upgrades, we progress. So, and now, you know, the, the, what they call those blackouts on the Schumann. I mean, that's, that, that's, we get this all the time now, blackouts. So, um, and it'll increase, increase, and increase. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting but, but also, I'd say to people, which I often do, you know, any physical symptoms like you know, insomnia, extreme tiredness, aches and pains, tinnitus, dizziness, see it as evidence of the upgrade. Don't see it as a problem, a health issue. See it as evidence of the, of the upgrade, because mm. that's that's really. I mean, I'm like a dormouse at the moment. You know, yeah. <laughs> yes. I am. I am. I, 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 and I'd like to, to to give a message to not only um, you know uh, people who who are not readers or healers and professionals that you know who do it for a living like us, but 
all sorts of people, professionals who do it like us as well. You know, energetically, when you go through an upgrade, it's okay to just, you know, almost step out the energy for a week. Or, you know, just sit back and just allow it to wash over you and just let nothing happen for a few days. It's okay. <laughs> it happens to all of us. I'd really, I'd really support that as well. You know, go, try and go with the flow. We don't want to resist what is potentially the biggest evolutionary upgrade of any lifetime. You know, that would, that would make such a pig's ear of it, wouldn't it? So try not to resist it. Try and flow with it and see it as this, this magical opportunity that we've been given. Um, let's talk a little bit about finance and stuff. Um, I woke up. It was a this big morning. one, wasn't it? Boy, it was a big one. Yeah, yeah. I woke up this morning and I said to my partner, I said, I'm, I'm talking to um, Pam a bit later on. Um, and I was looking at some interesting things. Um, and I said to her, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I've written this down, but the stock market crash in 1929 and 2008 and now are all linked to Saturn Uranus squares. Is that correct? Uh, so, uh, well, hard aspects, hard aspect, aspects between Saturn and Pluto. So it can be a conjunction, a square, an opposition. But absolutely, you know, 2008 was the opposition between Saturn and Uranus. Sorry, I just had to shut the door. The, the washing machine has reached its cycle. It's going beep, beep, I finished. <laughs> Carry on. No worries. So that is one aspect. The other is the fact that nodal... Is that Padme on line one? We might have missed you. We might have missed you. No. But there you are. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening along. I... I Sorry. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Uh, I was just the place. The piece you're playing is great, and I wanted to say just a couple of things about Dr. Sue Mortar's work. And uh, I'm fantastic that you played it. And I highly recommend for every human or any kind of being um, that uh, there's a not only does like there are practitioners. Um, that are fairly inexpensive, like a, usually like a treatment is $85, but they do a couple acupressure points and have you do, there's all different versions of the breathing that she uh, did in that segment. Um, and all of them are basically a central channel breathing. So you're aligning like the energy of your chakras to the earth and then breathing back up through your feet and uh linked chakra of your knees and all the way up through, you know, your all your chakras and out of your head. And not only does it release tension and align the, the uh, physicality of the body and the emotions, um, can't say enough about the emotions, um, and, it, and it does the same thing as to help clear and clean the chakras at the same time. It releases tension, all kinds of things. But people, um, I... I Highly recommend that people take a few minutes every day and do. She has uh, and just do that central channel breathing. It's available on YouTube. You could do it morning and night. If you could do it for three minutes or twenty minutes or an hour, but they're really simple ways that you can do the central channel breathing in bed in the morning or at night before you try to sleep, or if you can't sleep, or if you have anxiety. Um, you just do it through your feet and up through the head and back in. And you can also pull the earth straight up if you're laying horizontal up and through and back down. So, and then um, if you, and it also, what it's doing is um, bringing the, syncopating the left and right brain, which is t the way our brain is supposed to work, which then also helps the bio uh, energetic field. 
Um, uh, so I can't say enough about it. And then that, you know, I know friends of mine that are able to go see a practitioner like twice a month and, um, it's not very long. You can actually have a little talk therapy with someone there. And they're also really the people that are the healers that are drawn to work with Dr. Sue Mortar. They aren't, a lot of them aren't necessarily certified as a, you know, a Western medicine healer, um, not to oxymoron, but anyway, um, they, uh, they're people who are drawn to it that are really sentient to begin with. And so, Having someone that already has that wisdom and healing within them can also understand your field better and work with different words and breathing techniques to get you where with what you need to do. So, and there's also one thing I'll say lastly, um, you can do like what I would call the warrior step or sun salutation with one foot forward and then just op- leave your hands above your, like forward above your face and then open one side and then put your hands together and the other, and what you're doing is breathing into your heart chakra. And for any time people have anxiety or way too much anger or something has really jolted them, um, that uh, uh, heart chakra breathing, uh, I can't say enough about it. So I just want to thank you guys for always being here um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Thank you for all the work you do. So lots of love. I'm sorry thank for the long thank you so much. Thank you very much. Oh, all right. I can hear all that clear. So yeah, I'll mute out and lots of love. Thank you again. May the force be with you. Both and, and with everyone. You. And with you too, baby. <laughs> all it does is make for a better planet. You guys and and all that breathing makes for a better planet and heaven on earth. Thank you. All right, let's continue. Let's. This is in Taurus and Scorpio, and that is the financial axis. So, round about the total lunar eclipse in particular, we expected to see some, you know, some financial volatility, let's say, on the day of that total lunar eclipse. You had FTX, which was the second largest crypto exchange worth. $32 $32 billion go to zero. $32 billion to zero over a period of hours. And that's, you know, those were life-changing amounts of money for investors. So it's just, it just crashed to the wall. And of course, it's also about Saturn is about centralization, control from, from, you know, government center. Um, Uranus is about decentralization, but in Taurus, it's also about digital currencies. So is, could it possibly be that this massive, massive crash where people have lost so much money and this was a decentralized exchange that, you know, somebody might be saying, Do you know, it's so much safer for you, Saturn, so much safer if these digital currencies were centralized by your government. Wouldn't that be a good, safe idea? Are you following where I'm at with this, Alexander? Yes, yeah, I, I'm following. I'm on the I'm on I'm on the edge of it. I mean, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, astrolo- uh, the, the um, astro- astrology stuff is, is is new to me. I do follow it, but I'm following. I'm learning. Yeah, I'm actually learning while you're telling while you're telling me this. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know, but it's very interesting. It's almost like this could be a warning to people. You know, look what happens if you have an unregulated. Um, digital currency, decentralized, look what happens, people lose a lot of money. Mm. So wouldn't it be safer for you if it was centralized by your government? Do you get where I'm going with that? Um, I do. 
I do. I do get where you're going. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword that one because there's so much. Um, there's so much speculation going on around, you know, about gold-backed currencies and the RV and all this stuff. And I've got uh, opinions about some of this stuff, um, which are not in alignment with the collective, actually. Um, and sometimes when I've had opinions about things that have been not in alignment with the collective, I've actually been the first person to be right. Um, so, <laughs> but the problem is, and as we both know this as YouTubers, um, you know, if you say something that is wildly out of what the collective is saying at this moment in time, things get very frisky in the comments section. So, um, very polarized. Um, you know, the benefit for me, Alexander, is I can't see the specific events. I can't see the specific outcomes, the specific events. All I, I know is the quality of energy and the timing. Mm. And so it's up to us as the co-creators as to how that plays out. Timelines are changing in every second. So, you know, I can't reliably predict an event because it could change tomorrow because the collective consciousness has changed. So yeah, that's absolutely. why, you know, and it's up to us. And that's actually very empowering to say, this is your modeling clay. This is your sheet of music for the moment. How are you going to play it magnificently? Yeah. And therefore you determine the best possible events coming from this energy. Cause I can't say what, you know, I, I literally can't say, cause I'm not, I don't think I'm particularly psychic. I'm much more analytical. Um, and therefore we'll see what plays out. And that, also detaches me from any particular outcome or, or, or you know, I'm, I'm blue, not red or red, not blue or, you know, Labour conservative. You know, we've got to go beyond all that polarity and tit for tat if we're ever going to raise our consciousness. Those kinds of angry tit for tat debates have gone on for thousands of years. War, you know, poverty, misery, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. We've got to up our game. You know, we are now in the crucible of change and we can't keep on going around the hamster wheel as the same old being that we've always been. We've got to up our game, all yeah. of us. I mean, in, in, in some respects, I mean, I, I, aside from other things, I, do, I, I, I read cards, I read tarot. You know, what's interesting, you know, with tarot and astro you know, astrology is that it gives us a, a kind of balance sheet of the strong potentials for where we're yeah, going to go. Absolutely. Without negating free will. Because in this expansion energy, especially since the, the you know, we hear the eclipse energy and so on and so forth, and we started getting to the, you know, the fire of the year, which is, is towards the end of this year. Um, now a lot of people are, 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 are coming to, I find they're coming to me and they're saying, just tell me what I, what I need to do. Just tell me. And I'm saying, well, here are the potentials. Let's look at your potentials because you, you, we can't negate your free will. You're a starseed. This, this is what you came down here to do. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I totally get that. And going back to, you know, the, um, you know, the stock market crash of, of 29 and, and, and the other, um, and the Sun Uranus squares and so on and so forth. Are there any other, um, potentially big astrological kind of blips in the radar coming that might um, say that we've got something coming in terms of crashes and things like that or not not just yet? What you're just talking about, because otherwise, you know, how long have you got? But, it, you know, if you're just talking financially, I would say, well, Uranus says in Taurus, Uranus is, the, you know, the radical shocks. Taurus is money, banking, currencies, wealth. That stays in Taurus till 2026. But it is most potent 
while the nodal axis is also in Taurus and Scorpio, because that's the financial axis. So the nodal axis stays in Taurus and Scorpio until mid next year, sort of July next year, and then it changes. So I would say the most, the strongest probability for any more financial volatility is between now and the middle of next year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, shall we move on to, to, to the real meat? Um, of what I wanted to get to today, if that's all right by you. Yeah, just one thing I'd like to add to what you were saying, um, Alexander, because it's very well observed, you know, when you're talking about people coming to you and say, you know, tell me what's going to happen. That happens so much with astrology. You know, what's fated for? What are the stars going to do to me? And in every piece of work I put out, what I hope I'm saying is they're not doing anything to you. That, you know, there's strategic opportunities for you to grow. So turn that whole thing around. What are you going to do with that, that quality of energy in this moment of time? How are you going to play the music better? Get out of this victim mode, because if you're giving away your power to the planets, mm. you're never going to elevate your own sense of empowerment. You know, step into your power. Okay, what's, what's the weather forecast going to say? And how do I then play? Do I decide to go out with an umbrella? Do I change my clothing? Do I stay? You know, you're watching the probabilities unfold, but then you as an individual decide on a course of action, having seen those probabilities on the weather forecast or the cosmic news. And, and, and you, know, uh, you know, on top of that, um, Pam, you know, it's, it's actually in some respects harder than ever to predict where someone will be going energetically in a new energy we have never been in before. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I don't try. In fact, what I actually do now is I teach people how to channel themselves. So I actually just, I teach people how to channel the information themselves, what I do. So, so instead of, you know, in, in the Piscean age, it was all about you went to a guru, the guru told you what to do, you went away, you did it. Then you came back for a bit more. You know, Aquarius is much more about empowerment, giving people the tools so they can go and do it. And star seeds, quite frankly, can come down here and do what they, you know, they're meant to be getting on with, which is doing it themselves. Absolutely, 100%. Really, really endorse that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, March. Um, just uh, March, sat moving in um, to Pisces, uh, the, you know, the main stage, uh, Pluto moving into Aquarius just for a minute, uh, going back out um, and then coming back in for um, for something like 48 years or is it? How no, it's, um, it moves, Pluto moves fully into Aquarius in December 24 until 2044. So it will be there fully for 20 okay. years. But, but we're gonna get a, like, like a, like a little taster in Mars, right? Along with yeah. Saturn and Mars, also, um, I've got, I've written this down, I've written this Stop down. Stop being out of bounds in March. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and moving into Cancer, offering some more cl- forward momentum and clarity. Yeah, because for as long as it's in Gemini, it's very interesting, particularly when it's retrograde. Retrograde's about going back over. Mm. And so Gemini um, represents the the information, the facts that we've been um, perhaps making decisions on. And retrograde Mars is really asking us to question or re-examine do we still think those were good decisions on reliable information and facts? Because Mars is also square to Neptune Pisces, which brings a lot of fog and silt and, you know, other stuff in there. 
would we still make those same decisions with the information we now have going forwards? You know, so this is a real, real pivot point of awareness and choice with Mars in Gemini, I think. Very important to re-examine what choices we made based on the information we thought we had, which we thought was truthful. Mm-hmm. But maybe it wasn't quite as truthful as we thought because of the square of Neptune in Pisces. Am I making sense? Uh, yes, you are. Yes, you okay, are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you weren't, I would very politely say, don't worry, you're not. But, um, okay. But, okay, March. So, I mean, I mean from, from on a galactic level, what I see is a lot of inverted codes um, falling away. Um, a, a consciousness of definitely going to another level. Uh, soul guides, or your soul guides who you had, ETs you were working with, more are going to come in or they're going to change. There's going to be a flip. Um, shadow work, shadow self is going to be different. Those who are on top of it um, are, are going to are going to just um, a rocket, basically, because they're not going to be triggered by all, all, all of that 3D stuff anymore. But those who have still got a lot of their shadow, I, I think it's going to be downright a bit tough, if I'm being honest, if you haven't worked through that by that, that point in March. So um, I think, you know, it's funny how we have all these astrological things and these energy things getting us to slow down, have a look, rethink, expand. It's like... Almost like teeing us up for March is, is almost like what I see. And, and, and the other thing I want to add to that, apart from obviously the obvious things like um, uh, te- technology expanding, uh, technology with Pluto and sociological things, is one thing I see is more people falling into and it becoming socially acceptable. The type of work me and you do and people making more businesses out of it and that being a massive energetic leap board. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that, you know, technology is, is most certainly, um, most certainly coming in for sure, you know, lickety split. I mean, it's interesting. I have to go for some major surgery quite soon. So I had to, for the first time in many years, you know, go into doctor surgery, hospital, etc. And it was just like a different world. And I thought, wow, I simply do not operate in this. I don't recognize this world. I don't operate in it, but because it's such a mechanical thing I have to have fixed. Uh, inevitably I have to go through this process, but it was quite a shock to me because I've removed myself, I've unplugged myself so fully from that 3D matrix and all the digitization and you can't find a human being, you've got to go through the system and press, but you know, and so, you know, as we move towards Pluto moving into Aquarius, which is huge, the shadow side, the less positive side of that is controlled by technology. And, you know, for instance, if people haven't seen it or aren't aware of it, I'd strongly recommend they go onto YouTube and um, look at the Chinese social credit system and how that operates and how your life is run by your mobile phone and your credit score. Strongly recommend that because that's the less positive side of um, Pluto and Aquarius. But however, there's a very, very positive side of uh, Pluto moving into Aquarius, which I can you know, get into and talk about right now, if you'd like me to, um, which is very different. I think the core question is, what does it mean to be human? Okay, go, go for it. Go on. I, I'd love you to. What does it mean to be human? You know, unless we stay rooted in our humanity, we are, in my view, lost at sea. You know, we really are because we're we're giving away our power to um, gadgets, essentially. 
And being a dedicated country bumpkin, that's not the way I'm headed. That's not the way I'm going to go. So Pluto is the planet of power. And if we look back historically, I had to do a big live event recently where I was looking at exactly this theme and looking back over over the centuries. You know, Pluto has a 246 to 248 year cycle, so it doesn't move into Aquarius very often. And so looking back at those cycles, as it's moving to the end of Capricorn, which it always has to do before it enters Aquarius because Capricorn comes before Aquarius. And currently now it's moving through those last three degrees. It's quite a complex process because Pluto will always intensify the symbolism of the sign it's moving through. So Capricorn is about top-down structures, governments, organizations, institutions that have power over you because it's a kind of vertical structure. Mm-hmm. So particularly over the last few years, has that been strengthened, would we say, strengthened over the individual? I'd say it has. But Pluto also at the same time, uncovers or reveals any corruption that is present in those systems. So it intensifies the top-down power, but at the same time reveals the corruption. So it's quite a complex process. It's going to keep on doing that until December 24. But the fact it starts to move into Aquarius is a very different energy. Because again, look at, I mean, one of the, the best examples I can quote is Pluto was in Aquarius in 1789. In France, this was the time of the, you know, a beast, a golden, greedy monarchy of Louis the Sixteenth. And, 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 and of course, um, uh, Henry the Eighth saying um, goodbye to the Pope um, in fifteen. That was also fifteen ninety three. So, you know, Henry the Eighth weakened the top down power of the then. What was the top down power then? It was the Catholic Church yeah. in seventeen eighty nine. It was the monarchy, particularly in Europe. So the peasants couldn't even afford to buy bread. So on the 14th of July, 1789, they stormed the Bastille and took down the French monarchy, since which time it's been a republic. So the shift of Pluto, the planet of power, out of Capricorn and into Aquarius will shift the power to the people. Wow. Grassroots up, horizontal social structure, no longer top down, done with that. Ordinary people getting together in community, collaboration, saying we want to create a better world. That is happening all over the friggin' world right now. Not We're not waiting for it. It's now. It's already happening because Jupiter's moved through Aquarius. Saturn is still there. So they've become kind of John the Baptist, you know, precursors to Pluto moving into Aquarius. So we are going to see a significant shift of the power shifting back to the people. You know, yeah. and you, you know, all the groups that are happening all over the world. And, you know, I talk about these endlessly. People's health alliance, people's food and farming alliance and glass and breed, crops, not shops. You know, power is shifting back to the people. And that's what is to be celebrated yeah. because it's, it's, it's real heart to heart community. And Aquarius as a sign doesn't really have any heart. It's higher mind. It's galactic. It's very intellectual. It can be hyper rational, hyper intellectual. But that's why we've got to anchor everything in our hearts, because that's where our humanity is. Again, I, I, I could not. Um, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I actually did a um, a, a reading on uh, March. And what came up was um, people really having to move and make a conscious decision. There is this uprush of heart energy that I actually get. Are people having to really make a conscious decision? Um, I would put the, the picture of the cards on here, but I, I, it, it, I'll just talk about it for now. But 
and, and then actually people suddenly be getting a lot more psychic and there's there's a little bit of stagnation there's suddenly there's a rush of right off we go and it moves very very quickly going in towards April yeah um, is what I see yeah absolutely and uh, it's very interesting as well with Saturn moving into Aquarius uh, into Pisces at the same time now Saturn moved into Aquarius on the 22nd of March 2020 and I mean 2020. Saturn is the, is the plant of limitation, and Aquarius represents freedom. What happened across most of the world on the 23rd of March 2020? We went to a global lockdown. Limitation yeah. on freedom. Yeah. And so what I'm anticipating positively is when Saturn moves out of Aquarius into Pisces, there will be an opening up of freedoms, because Aquarius is the sign of freedom, it's the sign of rebellion, revolution, human rights, civil rights. So as Saturn, the, the, the constraint moves out of it, there'll be a kind of buoying up, you know, a buoyancy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was trying to get a, a, a take on, on, on that buoyancy, and I kept on getting the Knight of Swords, this very quick rush of energy, and people doing it together um, on a tarot level. So a bit of, a bit of tarot and astrology sort of mixed in there. Uh, I, I love all this. Eris. I know, you know what I, I, I love? Is when you mix lots of different esoterics together with a little bit of stardust galactic stuff on top and you just get a cake that I just I just love. Yeah, me too. Me too. I love it. You know, tarot, spirituality, you know, channeling all these different modalities. When they feed in and validate what somebody else is saying, because as I say, I'm coming from a much more analytical point of view. You know, it's, it's really thrilling that there are many, many aspects coming into this that feel very exciting. Now, Pluto will only stay in Aquarius from March till June. It then goes back into the end of Capricorn until the end of the year. So we might be again going back into a slight last gasp and grasp on power by you know the, the, the top-down structures. But we, you know, we'll have moved on to such an extent by then because the, the new Earth communities are starting up. They'll say, do you know what? I'm just not buying that anymore, I'm afraid. So there's much more momentum from the grassroots up at that, that point. And that will continue through through 24. And there's a beautiful conjunction between Jupiter and Uranus in 2024 that will certainly bring in a lot more galactic connection, I think, if it doesn't happen before that. Yeah. Um, and and what I think what's, what's great also about uh, March, and certainly towards the end of April, is on the readings that I've done, it, I think this winter could be a winter of discontent for some people. You know, it's going to be an interesting winter. There's no running away from that. But... What I do see is that as you know, as that Pluto starts to come in and touch for the first time, then I do see a lot of happiness around. Uh, I do see a contentedness, um, forward momentum, um, uh, psychic intuition coming back in, that lost feeling going. So it's almost like we've done all the expansion. It's, now, it's gone from the subconscious to the conscious. We're grounding it down now. Now we're going to use it. It's full on. But that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's interesting. And most of the outer planets are in direct motion by January, whereas they've been in retrograde most of, you know, for months. Saturn and Pluto are now moving direct. And that's why we're getting, you know, more of a kind of moving forwards feeling. But that moving forwards feeling will increase from January. And then by kind of April, May, June time, we've also got Jupiter coming to conjunct um, the North Node. Um, coming to conjunct the nodes, which starts to, you know, feel very positive, you know, very positive indeed at that time. So, and it will be hanging around close to that, that nodal axis. And that's about abundance, 
um, future vision, expansion, optimism, higher consciousness, all of those things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling much, you know, there's just this momentum which starts to really gather. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, 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 and on the spiritual level, I mean, I, I, I definitely, you know, I've seen new things happening all the time. When I'm working with clients, suddenly, you know, angelic energy suddenly came in the other day that I never worked with. So things are expanding so quick. I have to keep relearning what I'm doing almost on a daily basis. I keep unlearning stuff. I mean, I have to constantly keep up with myself and make sure I'm checking myself. That's so, that's how quick it's moving. And the, the problem is that, you know, the body can't always keep up with the mind. So we've got to sometimes slow down to, you know, allow these calibrations for the body really, you know, important. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And just, you know, just keep dropping into the breath, dropping into the heart, bare feet on the ground. You know, really keep it simple because I think there's so much happening out there both on the 3D level but also energetically. It's easy to get swept away by just the overwhelm of stimulus. And so therefore come back to the simple, come back to your heart, come back to what you know is your, your anchor, your center, keep it really, really simple because when we do that, we get to this one pointedness. And it's the one pointedness that I think gives us the mastery. I mean, this is so important in martial arts. It's important in meditation. It's that one pointedness that gives us that sense of power and power, not in an aggressive or egotistical way, not at all. It's just a sense of Bump. I know who I am, what my unique essence is, what I can offer to the world. And it's so simple. And that's what we've got to keep on coming back to, I think. When, when things just seem kind of crazy, either on the, the 3D level or, or, or the, the esoteric level, because it's happening so fast. Yeah. Um, someone was, I have a friend who's an astrologer, and, um, and they said to me out the blue, so what are you thinking about past March, astrologically? And I said, well, I, I'm not an astrologer. And they said, oh, um, have you, have you heard about Uranus in Gemini in 2026? 20, um, I'm like, no. Um, is that something? Um, so I thought I'd ask you, is that something? Yeah, it certainly is, because Uranus stays in a sign for about seven years. So it starts to move into Gemini in 2025, fully in 2026. Um, I mean, Gemini is the, the, the sign of communication, and Uranus represents the galactic. So are we going to start to much more openly communicate with the galactics from that point on? I think we absolutely are. It's interesting if I look back historically at a previous time when um, Pluto was in Aquarius and, um, no, correction, it wasn't in Aquarius, it was just Uranus in Gemini. And a new theory of light waves were developed by, a, I think he was a Dutch scientist called Huygens, H-U-Y-G-E-N-S, in 1691. And he developed this whole new idea about light that it operated in waves. So I think things around light, around plasma, around plasma physics, again, around the nature of our reality. Is this just inert air all around us or is it divine intelligence that we're just floating in? Mm -hmm. All of that stuff. I think becomes very exciting indeed because, of course, Pluto will still be very much in Aquarius at that point until 2044. So, yeah, when Uranus moves into Gemini, I think that is, and boy, things will be going so fast, so fast. You've got two air signs there, two of the heavy outer archetypes moving through air signs. I I think, you know, it's unimaginable. how quickly things are going to move. And, and I think we'll be living in a reality where we are much less dense, much more crystalline. We've stepped much more into the light body, which is happening for us already. That's starting to happen. And this tracks back to the Lemurians, 
Lemuria was probably one of the most perfect civilizations on earth we ever had, but they lived in their light bodies, essentially. They, they rarely came down into density. They were connected to their so-called physical body with a, a very long cord of consciousness, like a silver cord, and off they were just having a great time in the galaxies. So mm. we're moving because those frequencies are coming back in now. That's the kind of civilization that we're, we're starting to move towards. And it will come in faster than we might imagine. Life has been very slow for us in this lifetime up to this point. Well, when I, when I, uh, I brought in a, a, a channel message from the Arcturians and they talk about the new Lemuria. That's how they sometimes talk oh, about it. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so, wow. so, yeah, so the galactics talk about as well, you know, that incredible feminine energy, very, very, very high celestial sort of feminine energy. And of course, um, it is, uh, folklore, but I, I certainly believe this myself, but some of the highest peaks that still exist in Hawaii are of that, or, 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 I believe are still those final peaks of Lemuria. I believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And the mountaintops were very, very precious to the Lemurians. And they were so connected, you know, they were so connected to the earth because they were botanists, but they have this, you know, deep, deep connection to the earth. Everything was oneness. You know, it wasn't that they ever exploited or ravaged the earth in the way that we have. You know, they were just part of, of nature. And the mountaintops were particularly powerful as energy vortices for the Lemurians. Well, I, well I, I can tell you why on a scientific level, if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Fascinating. Um, when do you get, um, we do a bit of science here, but, um, you see people, uh, you know, the ancient Egyptians were actually very technologically advanced and people forget that. You know, they had hydraulic presses that were very, very powerful and they had hydro, hydro, um, uh, you know, things that went arms and stuff. So when you look at some of the sarcophagus, sarcophagus, this is, Whatever. Yeah, I guess, or sarcophagi, or yeah, sarcophagi. Um, you know, sometimes some of the archaeologists they they find like a slimy liquid on on the actual um, sarcophagi, and it's because it's the hydraulic press, the oils they were using wow. to actually um, not only um, put, put you know put put all the weights up and down, but lift those big blocks up for the the pyramids and everything else. So, if we go into you know science, um, you know, if we go to Lemuria. <laughs> And you were talking about the mountaintops, so important. Well, I'm going to tell you why. Um, because it's scientific. Because what happens if you take certain ceramics of a certain nature, of a certain material, and you freeze them to sub-zero um, temperatures? They take on quantum um, attributes that are magnetic, and things float on top of them. So, so, so they had, so the Lemurians, um, what they did was they, they, they went up to the very, very cold temperatures in the mountains and they were using that very, very cold temperature to, to magnify and accelerate quantum attributes, not only with their consciousness, but with also in certain materials in order to advance their technology, which they used consciousness to adapt, much like an ET would use their consciousness to fly a ship. So, so although, you know, Lemurians didn't have, um, like an iPod, like we might have, with a certain type of technology, they had a, a technology that was as advanced back then. So it's funny you should mention the mountain peaks, because that is exactly correct, but it's not woo-woo magic, it's just science. And what, it, and what is, and what is, um, what is metaphysics? It's, it's just one step beyond the, the, um, the, the science we have now, isn't it? That's so, so interesting because also another theme of Uranus being in um, Taurus, the Earth, 
is about changes in magnetism, the magnetic field, which, you know, we just talked about, we, we've got at the moment. But in the Russian space program, and I've mentioned this in another video recently, what they found was when they sent astronauts beyond the magnetic field of the Earth, they started to become super psychic, have visions, etc. So yeah. they discovered that magnetism was inversely correlated to consciousness, i.e. the lower the magnetism, the higher the consciousness goes, potentially. We don't have to leave the Earth currently to raise our consciousness because the magnetic field has dropped. But this whole area around magnetism and plasma, I mean, this is to be discovered. This is magical how we can use this. Well, I mean, people go on about the veil dropping, but what is the veil? I mean, the veil, scientifically is gravity and the, uh, the magnetics and the electromagnetics changing in the ionosphere mm-hmm. dropping. And that is what people uh, know as the veil, because we have been veiled, which is also, and, and that is actually governed by some of the angelic realms, Metatron, Cryon, you know, some of the celestials. So, so as the veil drops, it is actual science. All of this is science. Um, it's a bit like Ang- Angostroms. You know, have you seen a, a fan disappear when you, when you put it on? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It gets very, very quick because because light is speeding up around the particles as they're moving so quick. It becomes see-through because it's speeding up in our dimension. Well, this is how ET ships work. They use particles. They speed up the particles so they become invisible. It's like a fan. So you're looking at something solid. And it, it, I think it's Angostrom particles or how you measure it. And that's how it speeds up. So it's all science. That's all it is. Just some it's science we know about, some, some it down. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. The other thing about magnetism as well is there's some very kind of dry areas in the world, but if I'm thinking in particular of an area in um, southwest France at the moment where they get very, very little rain, but the earth there is incredibly magnetic. So the fruit, the vegetables, I mean, the, like footballs, incredibly abundant because of the magnetism of the earth brings a lot of fertility to the soul even if there's minimal rain so i think because of uranus in taurus we're going to be discovering an awful lot about um how we use magnetism how we use light how we because plants and vegetables will have different optimum growths to different colors of light that's on the you know the electromagnetic scale so there's a whole you know there's a whole thing there that we are only we've got l plates on at the moment in in our understanding that we can grow food much more efficiently absolutely and that's how you get lost time um because there are put there there are there are parts because there's the gaia grid and there's the crystalline grid but in the gaia grid there are parts of the magnetics of earth that are completely different and you get a pocket and if you walk through it you get missing time because time travel is electromagnetic and gravity you know, the Philadelphia experiment, so blah, 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 you go, this is, this is my Arcturian self coming through, the scientific part of me. So, um, but uh, yeah, we could go on and on and on and on about it. Um, Pam, is there, is there, I, I, I'm so grateful that you, you could be with me today. Um, I'm so grateful that you said, um, yes. Um, is there anything, um, you'd like to kind of round up, finishing, finish on, sort of ask, um, advice for people to think about something you, you want to give? Um, something to think about maybe yeah I, I just come back to that really basic principle of keep it simple drop into your breath drop into your heart close your eyes switch off external stimuli particularly the news um, and just be with yourself and start to discover maybe for the first time what it's like just to sit in stillness 
sit in stillness and start to find that still point. Because the more you can land at that still point, the more power you have in controlling and determining your reality. And it really is that, I mean, it sounds incredibly difficult and common. It isn't. It's absolutely elementary, but it's practice that gets us to recognize that still point. So that's the overriding thing. Um, I'm not doing any client work. I'm spending seven days a week really trying to, with interviews like this and my YouTube updates and social blogs, long newsletter, really help people go through this big transformation as as best I'm able. We've all got a different piece of the puzzle with this. So yeah, yeah, that that, that is absolute sage of honest. Yeah, no, go, no, stay silent, go inside because. With stressed nervous system, your crown chakra is going to shut down, your third eye is going to shut down, you're going to have root issues and so on and so forth, and, and sage advice. And, and, and just for me to finish, I love, again, I love how the galactic stuff, the astrological stuff, all these little dovetails, and when you do have that big overview perspective, and you can see it, it is so, it is, it is, it's, it's just incredible how it all fits together. And you, and you think, you know, the creator, you know, the, the person that put this universe together. I mean, it's, it's just the magic behind it. It's, it's, it's immense. And, you know, even when times are rough at the 3D level, and, and they are going to be rocky, is, you know, the old world is breaking down. The world we've known, the systems we've known, the foundations we've had, that is breaking down. So, but if you, if you say, okay, well, the astrology says that's going to happen, yeah. even though you go, you know, you're demolishing your, your old kitchen and it's a mess and it's uncomfortable, but it, you have to go through that process. It is meant, it's meant to happen. And astrology in that sense is massively reassuring because it says, yep, it's meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to collapse at the 3D level in order to get us to a better place. But remember, you don't have to live at the 3D level. You can step back and observe. That's so important. Absolutely. And, and one thing I like about the Arcturians and the Pleiadians, so people won't know that the Arcturians actually seeded Pleiadians, but that's a galactic uh, bedtime story for another time, is that I, you know, they have always said, and this is where I get my information from, that the big reconstructing years would be 2020 to 2025, and then you get the base all built on from there. And then you start seeing some of the big changes really coming to, into real fruition on a physical level, maybe around 2027 20, or something there onwards. And, and, and then, you know, there we go. So Fantastic. Well, let's, let's hope we can speed that up, particularly if time doesn't exist. Let's hope we can speed that up. I'll have a chat to some, some of my galactic mates and see what I can do. Let's see what they do. Let's <laughs> in for another upgrade. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Pam, well, look, thank you so much for your time. You know, it's a delight to chat to you, and you're, you're a total intellect. I mean, I love just, you know, you know, buzzing off what you're saying, vice versa, and dovetailing all our, our stuff. So you're, you're such a joy to speak to you, and um, have a wonderful, um, very cold, wet, rainy evening. Um, and uh, and I'll see you soon, and thank you again for... for yeah, thanks so much, Alexander. Really enjoyed that. It was great fun. Thank you so much. Have a lovely evening yourself. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Oh, my, my. Mm. That was a, quite a British conversation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a little break here in the sense of we're going to do a meditation. And Ram is pulling it up at the moment. Yeah, this is... Um... It's roundup and wrap-up time. That's the words I get. What do you say, Rama? Yeah, this is cryon. 
talking about the changes that are afoot within the 36 years. Which 36 years? The next 36 uh, years? Well, like the lady just said, all time is now. So, uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, we will. Okay. Okay, everybody, let's get settled a little bit. And, uh, here we go. Let's put the, all of this into the highest good of all concerned, the outcomes for all of humanity and all life on planet Earth. And beyond. All right. Here we go. Hello, I'm Lee Carroll. You know, greetings, dear ones. I'm crying of magnetic service. Each time we come to this place, in that circle of 12 energy that you have come to experience, each time we get to this channeling place, I'm reminded of the differences of what this is today as opposed to perhaps 10 years ago. And the difference is empowerment. For those of you who have studied my channels from the beginning, or perhaps you've even read that which are the transcriptions, you realize that all along in these 31 years, there's been a theme. And the theme is this, that changes are afoot. Well within the sphere and the timing of the precession of the equinoxes, well within the 36 years, we started talking about the changes that are afoot. Those changes we told you would bring about significant consciousness in the planet that was different significant all of this has begun some of you are aware of it some of you are wondering as you hear this what I'm talking about because perhaps this is the first channel you've heard but all of these years I have said this you are dearly loved you're never alone. Stand by for change. Some years ago, we started talking about a phrase called the new normal. Today, the phrase is being used even in the media. Now they're using it because they're starting to understand and realize things are not going to come back to a place where they were. Let me ask you. If you expose a secret, let's say it's a secret that is something that you you don't want to look at because it's, it's too awful. And you see this secret and, and others see the secret. Let me ask you, can you go backwards? Can you unknow it? Can you, can you find a place in your brain to delete no. what you found out? If you graduate into a more aware level... Are you able to simply go back to unawareness? Yeah. And the answer is no, you cannot. Yeah. This is what is happening to your consciousness, to your planet, to your society, to your bodies, to your awareness and your perception of what might be out there that always has been. And when I mean out there, I mean 
knowledge that has always been there, always been available, but you either felt that it wasn't for you or you were not allowed to use it. Let me ask you. In your scriptures, when you see the various masters, whatever scriptures you have, you see the various masters and they've done miraculous things. And you read about it. What is your first impression? We told you the last time we channeled last week, the perception, the training is that God is great. God is good. These are the things the masters did because they were part of the God energy. And look at that. Isn't that marvelous? Did you pull it to yourself? Did you say, well, of course, I am too, and I can do that? And the answer is, uh, no, you did not. You looked at it, and it was apart from you, was it not? Totally and completely apart from you. Again, this is a perception. It is a training. And you made up your mind either because others told you to or because you then went with the flow that these were sequestered to the masters of the planet. This is what they did. This is what you do. What's the next, the next logical thing? Well, you say, well, if they can do it and you cannot, then you ought to follow them. And that's what's happened. And that's happened worldwide. And it's not just one master we're talking about. You can see it. In so many of those spiritual systems and doctrines, the one person that is followed did miraculous things, was very wise. But very few human beings looked at that and said, you know, it appears that they have discovered a tool. A tool that is made in his image means that I can have it too, because I may also made in his image. This, this master, this very aware master, maybe I could sit at the feet of that master and they could, they could show me more of those tools so I could do what they did. There isn't much of that. And now there is. And that is what I am telling you. Again, this channel has to do with getting out of a paradigm that says you simply assign all good things to somebody else. And you follow them instead of you, hoping that some of what they have will rub off on you instead of the idea you have it too. And you do. Mastery is always, has always been part of the human experience. If you wanted to look for it, if you wanted to study it, if you wanted to go there. In the healing circle, we started to give you information. We started some weeks ago talking about the innate and, and cooperating with it. We also told you that there is an energy that happens when you give intent for healing. The energy is almost like little post-it notes that you put on every single cell that says, look, she's doing it. Look, he's doing it. <laughs> and then you get a cooperative effect from your body. We talked about that. Let's now talk about an extension of last week's channel. Now, there will be those who say, well, I wasn't here last week. What am I going to do? <laughs> well, if you are a member of the Healing Circle, you can go back to the replay. Also, these particular channels are all given for free, as all of them have been, and you can go back and check it out. What I told you back then 
was how you must continue the process that you start with the healing circle of 12. And when I say continue the process, it doesn't mean then to report every Wednesday. You've heard that before, haven't you? <laughs> You've heard that every every time there's a doctrine that says report to the building every Sunday. And do this and that, and then you can come home. Be sure and report to the building every Sunday. It would be similar. If I said that, you have to come every Wednesday because here's where it happens. That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is where it happens is within you. That is the temple you go into every single week. That is where we talk about these things succinctly. And we will again, right now, right now, you must continue the process. When I say must, I mean this. It is free will, but if you mean it, and you start some kind of a healing process, and it might be in these series that we're giving called the Healing of Twelve. It might be by yourself, totally intuitive. But if you start it with pure intent, you don't then walk away and hope it works. What you do is nurture it. You are the steward of your own process. You are the one who started it. You are the one who imagined it. You are the one who told yourselves to to accomplish it. Therefore, there has to be consistency all the time. It's almost like a constant reminder to the cellular structure, which is always growing, it's always morphing, it's always rejuvenating, to continue the process and continue it with a consciousness, with a goal. What are you going for? Lack of fear, perhaps, in your life. Consciousness, lack of fear. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, lack of fear isn't really cellular. Oh, yes, it is. I want you to know that there is more going on here than the synapse of your brain. There's more going on here even than your your Akashic record or, or the remembrance of certain kinds of things. At the cellular level, yet to be shown to you, is all of the memories you've ever had. If you're afraid, all of your cells are afraid. Crying, can you prove that? Absolutely. If you're afraid of catching a disease and you catch it, who cooperated? <laughs> Every cell of your body cooperated. Are you getting the idea that what you think you are? Your thoughts are instructions, period. If you're afraid, all of you is afraid. If you're joyful, your body shakes with laughter. All of you is joyful. Did you know that? Whatever's going on with you right now has to be a whole body experience. And if you're going to go through that beautiful process of healing, which we encourage and tell you about, everyone has to be on board with it. And when I mean everyone, I mean every single organ, every single cell. Does that even, crying, does that mean even when I'm trying to get over something? Or What about grief? Let me give you something to think about. Every cell in your body is grieving. You could feel it, can't you? If something has happened to you recently and you are grieving, mom, dad, brother, sister, if you're grieving, you know every single cell. There's no one happy part of your body. This is what I'm talking about. 
So it must be a whole body experience, the healing from grief or from, from anger perhaps, or, or, or you trying to then change the, the aging of your body. All of these things will be accomplished. But you've got to be consistent and you have to say every single day what you're doing. You are so used to this approach where the doctor will say, well, here is the medicine. And you will ask the next question on how long do I take it? That is a paradigm that you are used to for healing, for curative, for feeling better. You take the pill and then you stop and then things are fine. (laughs) This one's different. You cross that bridge. You get into a multidimensional state that is unusual. You carry that and work with it every day for the rest of your life. And there will be some of you who say, that's a lot of work, Ryan. <laughs> Let me ask you, why are you here? God loves you every day of your life, every minute, every moment. There is such amazing love and caring. God doesn't sleep, but you do. And when you're asleep, there is love every moment, every day. And God never says, you know, this is a lot of work. Do I have to do, I have to do this all the time, every moment? Since the day they're born. That's how much you were watched over and cared for. So that someday you might awaken. And cooperate with this. And love back the creator that loves you. Every moment of every waking hour. Is it worth it? And the answer is yes. Because what happens to you is health. The beginning of a settling of peace. Lack of worry. A happier countenance and the grieving process starts to diminish and you realize that although it may always be there, you now have a handle on it. That is to say, you can put it where it belongs instead of it occupying every moment of your life. I'm talking to somebody here who needed to hear this. That's the channeling for today. And so it is. Hello, I'm Lee Carroll, you know. With that being said, let's do a, a short meditation to prepare ourselves to receive the message from Cryon. And it's as simple as this. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And focus on the area of your heart. Your heart has emotional intelligence. And your heart knows what you wish to do, which is to relax, find the centre of your being. The centre of your being is always in a state of peace. Being peace, tranquil and calm is your natural state of being. And this meditation is to remind you of that natural state of being that is innately yours. And as we connect with our center, we feel the eternal peace because it's connected with our eternal soul. 
And in gratitude and love, let us now continue to receive the messages from the loving entourage of Kryon that is coming through the veil in a third language being delivered to you. Greetings, dear ones. I am Kryon of Magnetic Service. Each time that my partner brings me to this place, in this, which is a place where many observe, it's different. This is a healing program. And yet it's also a platform to discuss so much that is magnificent about the human being. And so you're going to hear a various array, you might say, of subjects, but they're all going to center on you. We've spoken about the times that you're in, and that will play into this channel a little bit. Because you wonder, is all of this random, this being your existence here, the systems that put you here, past lives, if you believe that? And coming to this planet at this time to experience this, there are many who would say, well, it's too bad I had to be this time without understanding. This is an appointment you made. You wouldn't have had it any other way. It brings up the whole question of how much control you have over what happens to you. And I don't mean here, because we have discussed that many times, dear ones. We've discussed a a reality that you have that is indeed one that you choose one that you direct. We have told you many, many times that how your consciousness sees the world is how the world becomes for you. This is very difficult for many who say, I see. You mean that I'm not going to step out and have the chance of being run over by a truck like everyone else? And the answer is, you're right, you won't, because your consciousness won't put you in that situation. We have discussed that very thing. Can consciousness field those kinds of issues? And the answer is yes. And we say field those kinds of issues because you are dealing with something called the field. Fielding something means to work with it. You work with the reality so you be in the right place at the right time. Your consciousness, if it's high enough, will direct you there. This is you controlling your own reality, but it's far, far greater than that. That's why you're here. Are there systems, you might ask, that would put you in other places where you have a say about esoteric things? What would those things be, you might ask? The answer is 
How esoteric would you like to get? Well, seeing as though you're listening to channeling, you're already there. The first belief systems on this planet, long time ago, started understanding a staple, a staple of existence for you and your soul. And that is that you come and go and come and go and come and go. The soul that you have is eternal. But many of your belief systems today that are supposed to be modern have decided that that soul is somehow linear. It shows up when you're born and it goes somewhere else when you die. And it goes from A to B. And that's it. Not understanding that that soul of yours has no beginning. It has no end. Because you see, the soul is part of that which is the creative source. It's part of God. So in that, there is a system, and that system is past lives and future lives. The system is, if you wish to call it, reincarnation where your soul reincarnates over and over again. This was the intuition of the first systems on the planet. And even this day, right now, more believe in that system than not. So it's not something that belongs to a few. But let's ask the question, if you believe in these things, what is the system? And in that, How much do you have to say about it? Now, if you buy into what many tell you, you don't have anything to do with it. It's like the the king on high directs it. And that, dear one, is linear. It comes from you in a human family. That's what your father would do or a king would do. That's what government would do. And that's often how you see God. That's not how it works at all. You've heard of collective consciousness. It's more than that. When you're on the other side of the veil, dear ones, you are connected to all that is. Are you understanding that? You may understand the verbiage, but you can't really truly understand it because that is a connection that is not for you here. You are part of all that is when you're not here. And therefore, there is no committee meeting to decide if you're coming back, when you're coming back, what gender you will be, what you're going to do, who you'll be with, what culture you'll be with, all of these things. There's there's no committee to decide that. There's, there's no instructions that come down in a book to help you decide that. I've described this many times to you. And yet I want to tell you again, this is more magnificent than you think. It's you with that which is all the other entities making instant decisions. If you even want to call them decisions, it's a knowingness of how you will come back, who you will be. We've told you many times that the system of reincarnation is one that honors the human. And that means you often come back in the same culture and the same language 
even often the same gender, for many years before there's ever a change. This honors you. Well, that means that you awaken with an akash that you recognize. The language is recognizable. The culture is recognizable. And as you grow up with certain parents, you're, you're having the same experiences you've had over and over. And it's comfortable. And you fall into a pattern. The entire reason for reincarnation is learning. You might say it is a school of consciousness that creates an old soul. And with many, many lifetimes, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, what happens at the end of that is maturity. And with free choice, you either awaken or not to a grander truth. Welcome to the grander truth. But I want to tell you more about what's happening there. You're part of it there. I want you to understand just how much is involved in this that you have something to say about. Oh, I know what you're going to tell me, Cryon. You're, you're going to tell me that I selected my parents and you're going to tell me that I selected all the things that I'm going to doing. I'm going to tell you, Cryon, there is no way I would have chosen those people. <laughs> you see, I've been here before and I've heard you, human being. Because you don't understand. You don't understand the system. The system is not about personalities. It's about energy and love and compassion and learning. You will stand there at the wind of birth, seemingly with millions of other souls making decisions at the same time, and you will look and see and understand you're going to come down to this planet and be born, perhaps, of difficult parents in dysfunctional families. And the entire reason is because you're going to be the only old soul. And as you start to grow up, you'll have an awakening of knowingness and they will have not a clue. You understand where this is going? You become their teacher. How do you like it so far? (laughs) This is what many of you have chosen. And you have to do this. Because that is the compassionate way of God. When I say you have to do it, I mean there is no other choice. That is the way of it. That is the road of compassion. That's the road of understanding and maturity. And you will stand there and say, what is the most difficult place? Because there is light needed in this family. I want to come over here and do this and that. And then at the same time, you'll say, and I want to continue being a musician. I want to continue with my artistics. I want to, I want to continue to think a certain way. All of that is honored, if you noticed. And musicians become musicians. So the creative parts of you, those blessed, beautiful parts, can continue, even in dysfunctional families. This is more complex than you think. There is this idea that that the more lifetimes you're in, the more you graduate, and the nicer life you're going to have. So the more lifetimes you live, the more the more comfortable you'll be, lifetime after lifetime. Let me give you a reality check. <laughs> the more mature you are and the more lifetimes you have under your belt, the more you can do for the planet when it needs you, especially in dysfunctional places like families who don't know anything about that creative, beautiful source, and you do. I'm talking to so many of you. 
who become what we have called the black sheep of the family, you're not welcome home. But let me tell you something. You have had a huge influence. You've made them think about things. You've made perhaps changes in their Akashic record. Did you know that's possible? You are interfacing with everyone here in a multidimensional, grander way than you think. You're planting seeds everywhere you go. What they do next, the lifetimes they live next, will have you in their Akash as a remembered teacher with things they can never forget, things you've told them that they may disagree with, but then they can see who you are. We've told you before, no matter who says what to you, show them kindness. No matter what names you are called, show them understanding and kindness. No matter what they do, because they don't agree with you, even perhaps to disowning you or telling you to go away and not come back, I want you to see what they are going through in their dysfunction because they don't have the love that you do. And treat that accordingly because you have the compassion and the love to look at them and say, no matter what you say or what you do, I love you. And that will change them. It always does. It always does. Oh, you have so much influence on who you are today by appointment on this earth to be right here going through this old soul. And so it is.
affirmative of who we are, everyone. I'm going to play um, our brother, uh, Professor Wolf, from Tom Hartman on Wednesday. Let's just see how that sits well with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. we got a minute or two here, so let's see if we can do this. Let's do this. Welcome back to hour two of our program. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available as an e-book. He's the host of Economic Update, a program right here on Free Speech TV, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf. And Prof Wolf on Twitter is his Twitter handle. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I, I'm, I'm reading um, uh, actually in numerous sources. The one that kind of flagged this for me was uh, Adam Tooze's Substack newsletter, but uh, uh, others as well. That you know there are basically three large asset classes that, that fly around the world: uh, the securities, um, you know, uh, stocks, uh, debt, bonds, and real estate. And as the inflation rate is going down and the interest rates are going up, uh, the price to the, the, the monthly payments that people have to make in order to buy a house are just exploding, um, which means that they can afford less and less expensive houses, which is starting to drive housing prices down. And if this precipitates a crisis or a crash of some sort, and because every country in the world basically has to raise their interest rates when we do, even if they don't feel the need to, because otherwise they're currency gets debased against the dollar. I mean, it, are we looking at a, at a worldwide real estate crisis? And if so, what does that mean? Well, I think the, the honest answer is we don't know, but we're very afraid. Adam Tooze uh, is in that group as well. So am I. We don't know because everything now depends on all the linkages in our economy, all the ways that producing fish in Japan is connected to getting bananas out of Central America or making software programs in Silicon Valley. Uh, the network of, of debts of buying and selling is so intense, so intricate, and so poorly understood that the question is only, will the downturn in housing, which we are already involved in, ramify? How will it impact everything else. Could it take everything down with it? Absolutely. I mean, the conventional wisdom now is that the crash of 2008 and 9, the so-called subprime mortgage crash, begins where its name implies in the housing sector. And it was one of the second worst collapse of capitalism in the history of 400 years of this uh, system that we've now had. So could it do it? Yeah. Could it be the beginning of real economic distress? Absolutely. Um, will it be? That depends, again, it's like we're making a test case, only the problem is the test case is us. We're, we're testing it on us. Do we have enough resources? Have we adjusted enough since the last crash in 2008 and nine? 
did we learn enough lessons? Are the political conditions going to allow us to apply the lessons we've learned? All of those are questions which we don't have the answer to, but how we get finally to an answer will tell us whether this downturn in housing is going to be the, the, the canary in the coal mine and the explosions are coming. Yeah, that is something that could bring the whole thing down. We're, one of the other phenomena that we're seeing with regard to housing is uh, hedge funds and uh, giant vulture capital funds and whatnot moving into housing. I mean, literally, there was a piece of the Wall Street Journal about a year ago about how uh, every Monday, I guess, they hold the auctions for distressed properties or, or uh, uh, tax sales in uh, Atlanta. And uh, these guys would show up literally with with uh, laundry bags, you know, kind of cloth laundry bags filled with checks, uh, you know, bearer checks, uh, bank checks, whatever you call them, um, you know, uh, certified checks um, in, in in quantities of hundred thousand, uh, five hundred thousand, and and ten thousand dollars. So they can just buy anything and have the, you know the money to instantly pay for it. And they're, they're buying up all these houses and then uh, turning them into rental properties. And in some communities, there was one that they talked about in Nashville where, where uh, it's something like a, a major chunk, I forget the percentage, of the, of the housing in that particular community, that particular suburb of National, Nashville, is now owned by one company. I think it was BlackRock. And the average rent has gone from around $1,000 a month up to $1,700 a month, again, if, if my memory serves me correctly, in just a couple of years as a consequence of this. Because once they kind of control the marketplace, they just start jacking prices up. And you combine that with the fact that it's getting harder and harder for, for first-time home buyers. Uh, you know, entry-level homes uh, are just, you know, kind of a thing of the past. Um, what, are the, what does this mean for housing and for our economy, first of all? And perhaps more importantly, in your mind, what are the best policy uh, solutions for this? I know some countries aggressively limit who can own residential uh, real estate, uh, limit speculation in residential real estate. The other thing is um, there are a lot of foreign buyers for real estate in the United States. My understanding is there are more uh, foreign-owned, empty homes in the United States that have been bought as investments than there are homeless people in the United States. Oh, um, now, I can't, I can't verify that number, but I've, I've read it several places. So what does all this mean, and what do we do about it? Well, let me respond by telling you a, a brief little story. I live in Manhattan, not very far from Fifth Avenue, and I have friends of mine who take uh, visitors, uh, Americans mostly, from other parts of the country uh, on a kind of a tourist trip, a trip in New York while they're here. And one of their favorite things is to walk up Fifth Avenue, a very chic part of New York City, uh, in, in the southern half of the city, and they do it at night. And they and point out to the tourists, look at all the windows that are dark. Here we are, it's a winter evening, nobody's out and about, or very few are, but there's nobody there. And then it's explained to students what you just, excuse me, to the tourists, what you just said. Namely, these are safe deposit boxes. Uh, they've been purchased by wealthy people around the world as an investment. It tends, it tends to go up. If you have a niece or a nephew visiting New York for a few weeks, they stay there. But other than that, it, it's loads and loads of empty houses and of empty apartments. And across the street, sitting on the curb, are homeless people staring at the empty apartment, but they can't put these two things together. Yeah. I think the basic way to answer your question is this. 
Housing is one of the most important things in any society. Food, clothing, shelter, right? Those are the basic things we need. Housing is the shelter part. Either you manage that as a basic right, it's like having enough food, having enough water, having enough air, or you don't. If you leave it to the market, what you're saying is housing will be a profit-making enterprise. If it's profitable, it'll be produced. If it's profitable, its price will go up. If it's profitable, its price will go down. But profits is what the key decision-making variable is. And we now see what the results are. Two statistics to keep in mind. We have a higher percentage of young people married in their 20s living with their parents in the same house as we've ever had in the history of this country. Young people cannot afford what it now costs to get an apartment, let alone uh, a freestanding uh, building. That's very, very important. People doubling up and tripling up, uh, a statistic that you have to really search for uh, to get a handle on, is also exploding. We have a crisis. We don't have enough housing for the people who either you give them more money so they can afford it, or you bring down the price, don't give them more money because they can afford it at the going rate of wages and salaries. you got to do one or the other if you allow the market to control it. So what, what can people do? Well, they, the most famous example in the world is the city of Vienna. In the city of Vienna, half of all the housing is public. It's owned and operated by the government, the city government of Vienna, uh, rents are maintained by the government, very affordable, uh, as a percentage of income, much lower than here in the United States. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. I visited them. These are beautiful apartment complexes. You'd love to live there. None of the social negativity associated with public housing here in the United States. And by the way, conservative governments, liberal governments, left-wing, right-wing, no one dares do anything to change this situation in, in Vienna because literally half the population would immediately vote you out of office if you even threatened to do anything to take away. They have lots more money for everything else in life because the cost of public housing maintained as a public service is much lower than each competing landlord, even if they own bunches of apartments, they are driven by a profit motive. The city doesn't have to do that. And the end result is subsidized housing. Yeah, but it, it's beloved by the people of Vienna, and they're not all stupid, and they're not all backward. They're just as clever and smart as we are here, no more, no less. Uh, but they've opted to make sure that they have their housing problem solved. So what what are they, we have a minute and a half left before our break, by the way. What are they doing right that we did wrong with public housing in the United States? How did, how did our public housing projects that largely started in the 60s uh, out of the, uh, you know, the Great Society, with the best of intentions, turn into ghetto uh, hellholes in many cases? Well, I mean, I, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in all of that stuff. But I will tell you that a lifetime of studying urban politics in our country has taught me that the real estate interests private real estate interests are an enormously important part of the political... Oh, yeah. John Kirchner's a slumlord. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 
they don't want to lose the investments they've poured in. They own private housing. They don't want a well-run, low-cost public alternative because it would threaten, at least to some degree, their private enterprise and their private profits. With the justification that comes later that somehow we're supposed to believe that the private profit motive will get us a better result. I mean, it simply isn't true. But if you are a private realtor and you are threatened by public education, making sure that the public education isn't, uh, sorry, the public housing isn't properly maintained, isn't properly serviced, isn't made uh, an attractive way to live. That's why I use the example of Vienna. Go there, look at them, you'll see what it can be. Yeah, I've I've been there. It's a beautiful city. Uh, Professor Wolf, it's always great talking with you. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you uh, and and best of Thanksgiving. Same thing and for all of you at at that station, a pleasure working with you. Thank you. Back at you, sir. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, Democracy at Work. Info. We'll be right. Okay, everybody. Um, now we got to take a break. We are becoming the master of our home. And when I'm talking about on a collective basis, we're changing the world right now. And that was a great, great uh, contribution there. So see you in a little while. Satnam. We'll be back about 15 or so. Namaste. That's a talking stick to you, Richard. Alright, hello, thank you, and good evening on the 26th of November. Good evening, Richard. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> Get All right. up. We, yeah, we had a long, we had a long astrology discussion earlier today by a couple of, uh, Brits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a uh, pretty informative. Uh, I I like her take on things, and I, she's she's traditional, and she's put some key things together. The one the one thing that um that caught my attention here was. Uh, the upcoming com- combination in a couple of years when Pluto gets into Aquarius and Uranus gets into Gemini. Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> so that will be interesting, very interesting. But in a shorter term, you know, we we just, you know, we got to, we get to look forward to. Uh, Sun conjunct Pluto, you know, Sun, Venus, and Mercury conjunct Pluto. That's the next big thing coming up for mm-hmm. us. That's a good and one. That's, you know, that's, uh, less than, uh, 60 days away, you know. Mm-hmm. The moon tonight is in Capricorn. And it'll conjunct Pluto exactly tomorrow. Uh, Mercury is, uh, is, le- is leading the threesome. Let's see, Mercury's at 16, Venus is at 14, the Sun is at 5, and Mars is at 
21 Gemini. So Mercury and Venus are opposite Gemini, and they're square Neptune. Now the sun is trying Jupiter, but Venus is square Neptune. It's going to be more square as we go through the week here. Okay. So uh, with Mars at, at 21, the square Neptune at 23, Jupiter at 29, it's trying Saturn at 20, Aquarius. We talked about that last week. We talked about all this stuff last week. We've got an inconjunct Uranus 17 retrograde and Mercury 16 Sagittarius is an inconjunct 150 degrees. And the moon is 150 degrees from opposite Mars. So, let's see here. One, two, yeah, two days ago the moon was opposite Mars. And it's moved about 30 degrees in the last two days. Uh, moon is trying Uranus tonight. So... We got a bunch of sextiles, moon, moon and Pluto sextile, Jupiter and Neptune, and that's about it. Chiron's at 13. Um, I noticed, what did I notice? I noticed, let me look at this, I noticed that, uh, when I was, damn it, I didn't want to do that. Okay, let's try this one. No, I, I guess it's a, never mind. Skip that because it's not cooperating. All right. Well, let's see what Kai Pacha's got in mind. He said he was going to talk about the new moonness because he didn't talk about it last. Yes. But this Sagittarius is ruled by Jupiter. So that means there's uh, cooperation for lots of Mercury stuff and Venus stuff and solar stuff. Uh, Chiron trine Venus. Chiron trine Mercury. All this Chiron healing going on. All right. That's it for now. Okay. Here we go.
This is Kai Pacha with the weekly Pele Report, and this one is for uh, November 23rd, Wednesday, November 23rd. Hallelujah. I mean, we are still in the very end of, you know, the moon is in her balsamic, balsamic ending, closing phase of letting go. So let it go, baby. By this afternoon, my time, we are going to have a new moon. She goes into Sagittarius, and we have a new moon at 1 degree, 38 minutes of Sag. Sun, moon, and Mercury and Venus not far away. So they're going to be moving along, and I'd say the big thing I want to be talking about today is that um, Mercury and Venus are both coming into a trine with Chiron and an inconjunct with Uranus, all in the same week. So that's, yeah, that's something that I want to be talking about. <laughs> um, and, of course, the other aspects that are happening is that Mars is retrograding back into a trine with Saturn. Yeah. And <clears throat> Mercury is going to come into an opposition to Mars. Sextiling Saturn. That's really not until next Tuesday, but still, I think, uh, you know, we'll be feeling that approaching a little bit, and uh, I'll get into next week's aspects next week, but yeah, that's, that's going to be carrying on for a little while. Moon moves up there into Capricorn on Friday, comes around and, uh, you know, conjuncts with Pluto on Sunday, and then... Uh, Heads on uh, through Aquarius. So, you know, this is the new moon phase. She's a, a slight sliver right after that new moon, starting out anew. That's what the mantra is about today. And she'll be moving, you know, into the first quarter square. That first quarter square is, uh, is really not until next week. So uh, let me find a place. Sit down here and talk about it. All right. All right, everybody. In true <clears throat> Sagittarius style, let's just knock this baby out. <laughs> uh, if you've been listening to these reports, you already know that I really feel like this zero degrees of Sagittarius, the first few degrees of Sagittarius, is the phoenix rising from the ashes. So we've been through a month of the underworld. We've been through a month of hell, particularly this last month with these eclipses that have like blown up and stirred up and exploded our volcanoes. And, you know, we're in the midst of like, uh, you know, very deep, you know, emotions, needs, feelings, fears, relationship issues, paramount financial issues, sexual issues. I mean, just it's been one issue after another. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, it's uh, it's really something. I was uh, 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 doing a Zoom call for my uh, school on Sunday, and uh, we're going through the houses. I'm looking over Dane Rudyard, and he goes, planets are problems. Planets are focused... <laughs> A foci of consciousness. I've always said that, you know, uh, you know, a planet is a psycho-spiritual function of the soul. 
And wherever your planets are placed, that's where you are, that's where your consciousness is evolving. And so what does that mean? Problems. <laughs> Self-discovery comes through, you know, bumping up against the envelope, bumping up against our limits, bumping up against what we can control and what we can't control, bumping up against, you know, uh, just where, you know, our edge, our edge, the leading edge. So this evolutionary journey that we are all on, we've incarnated, you know, with evolutionary intentions, and that has to do, okay, with expansion of consciousness. So Sagittarius is really big. Jupiter is really big. It's the biggest planets. It can hold a thousand Earths can fit inside of Jupiter. The ruler of Sagittarius, right? So, you know, this coming out of Scorpio, Yes, there are forces beyond our control. We are not always in charge. Our egos are limited. Our knowledge is limited. Our bank account is limited. Uh, our energy is limited. The, the, the number of hours in a day are limited. So we in Scorpio, we bump up against. Our lives are limited. Death. Other people's money. Other people's values. Other people's, you know, sexual, emotional needs, uh, psychological, you know, warfare and games and conflict. I mean, it's just like, whoa. And this is all about finding our limits. And then everything moves into Sagittarius. And Sagittarius is a mutable sign. We have a mutable cross. This is what we're going to be dealing with all month. Sagittarius opposite Mars and Gemini, squaring Neptune and Jupiter in Pisces. The only thing is there's nothing over here in Virgo. So we've got this mutable T-square going on this month with an empty Virgo. We need to be Virgo. We need to, like, finish out that diamond. Yeah? So we need discernment. We need discrimination. We need to ground. It's the earth. Sagittarius fire, Gemini air, Pisces ether. So we have this, you know, energy that is like mutable, changing. I forgot to mention Jupiter is stationing direct today as I speak. So it's gone retrograde back from Aries back into Pisces. It's as close as it's going to get to Neptune. And now it's going direct and it's going to start moving away again. So we're going to start seeing what? Our beliefs turn into realities. Yeah? We, you know, the power. If you connect your beliefs with your Plutonian lunar emotional energy from the root and you connect these two boom this is the power of belief I'm going to come back to that when I come to the mantra but I just want to talk a little bit about these mutable signs because you know cardinal we have cardinal fixed immutable right cardinal Brahma is externalization creation from the outside, from the inside out, fixed, 
Vishnu, maintain, sustain, build up this inner, 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 inner world, mutable, adapt, adjust, you know, get a new philosophy, get more information, meditate, get downloads, you know, so, you know, there is all this mutate. This is a month of mutating ourselves. And we mutate ourselves through, right? We hit our limit. Well, now we go beyond our limits, right? We have to expand into the unknown. This week's song is Rocket Man. <laughs> you need to take off, baby. Go on the quest into the unknown realms. So Sagittarius, long distance journeys, travel, higher education, uh, you know, uh, university, intuition, right brain. And so what do we have now? Mercury coming into oppose Mars in Gemini, left brain. Mainstream media, graphs, data, analysis, uh, you know, misinformation and disinformation and that information and blah, 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 And it's retrograde, retrograde Mars. So this is where we want to not be distracted by too much of this linear, logical, social media, Google, whatever, internet, blah, 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 blah. But really reach for the highest realms. Yeah. The difference between knowledge and wisdom. So you can have a lot of Gemini knowledge. Gemini is the student. But what changes the student into the teacher is wisdom. And wisdom is having that higher objective perspective of the overall situation. So this travel, airports, airplanes, you know, uh, religion and philosophy, this is all about looking at the bigger picture. Yeah? So, this is where we want to be going now. It's, it's you know, it's uh, it's not about information. If we want truth, Sagittarius is the seeker of truth, the holy grail, right? The meaning of life, the the purpose. What is the point of me having to break up or me wanting to get married or me having a baby or me uh, having a miscarriage or me having, I mean, you know, all these things that have just been really stirred up. Now is the time. To look at that, take a step back, take a step out. So Sagittarius wants freedom. Sagittarius needs space. It's the country, it's the mountains, it's the nature sailing the high seas. And so let me read the the uh, Sabian symbol for this degree of the new moon. White-capped waves display the power of wind over sea. The mobilization of unconscious energies under the pressure 
of super personal powers. This isn't Aries. This isn't Leo. Personal, subjective, instinctive, me, I, me, my. This is the beginning, Sagittarius, is transpersonal consciousness. Super personal consciousness. So Scorpio in this, you know, is the underworld of unconscious emotional forces that are now being transmuted into the fire, the thunderbird, right? You know, into understanding the super personal powers at work in our daily, earthly, worldly, third dimensional reality. Ow! Got that, baby. Wind and sea, air and water, are in constant interplay. And the results of that interplay are inspiring and beautiful. In symbolism, the wind, pneuma, is the early Greek word for spirit, is associated with spiritual dynamism. The stirring of deep energies. This dynamism produces, obeys cosmic or superpersonal rhythms. The power of which is irresistible. The waves, the constant waves. If you ever sail or you're out in a boat, I love sleeping. In the hull of a sailboat. Oh my God, right? You are rocked to sleep. Provided it's not a storm. <laughs> you know? And, and, and you can feel, you can feel the ocean and like your astral body goes through the hull of the boat, out through the ocean and, and goes around the whole world. Ah. Envious of sailors, baby. Anyway. The picture presented speaks of, and this is all in capital letters, the subtilization through rhythmic intensity. So this is, right? I posted a long time ago that the meditation that I'm doing every day now is the Chacha Chacha Karate. Yeah. And it is, uh, it is for lifting the spirits. And I posted it on YouTube quite some time ago, but, uh, it's a very powerful meditation that really looks at the spirit in all four directions as not only merciful, but enjoyable. Yeah. Jupiter is this expansionary realm that really sees this bigger picture and realizes, particularly with this Jupiter-Neptune in Pisces, the sign of bliss, blissful states of union, yeah? Like really coming into peace, serenity, the calm within the storm. Yeah? Not just the eye of the hurricane, 
this is coming into, you know, kind of moving ups, upside, outside, beyond the storm. Into the, the causes of the storm, the purpose of the storm, the evolutionary intentions of the storm. You know, planet Earth is going through a storm. Whether it's FTX and Bitcoin or CBDCs or vaccine passports or however you want to, you know, look at all of the totalitarian movement that's going on right now. This is all, you know, where you can get swept into this vortex of Mars, you know, moving through, retrograding through Gemini. And you can get, you know, into a place of, you know, loss and bewilderment and despair or depression through this Jupiter, Neptune and Pisces where I've got no control. I've got no say. I can't, you know, I can't help it. I'm a victim. I'm a martyr. Everything's just going to happen and it's just going to go downhill. And I mean, you can slide down the rabbit hole. So what this is about is courage. That's what the mantra this week is about, is this place of courage, the quest. We seek the grail. We leave the comfort of home. We leave the comfort of the known, of our knowledge base, of our supporting relationships, you know, of our social position and influence, you know, of our money and security. And we strike out. <laughs> and, and for the, you know, for the, let me read the mantra because I want to talk about it a little bit, right? You know, it is. I have the courage necessary to set off into the unknown, humbly believing that as I am seeking the truth, to me shall be shown. Humility is important. The Pisces Virgo axis is humility. Yeah? And Virgo in particular is service. And we know that Sagittarius Gemini, it's called the thought, I call it the thought axis, left brain, right brain, okay? A lot of times there's a bunch of ego in Gemini Sagittarius. They get very righteous. They get very, uh, you know, know-it-all. They get very opinionated. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. I got that. I've seen that. I read that. I da 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 you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and here's what I think, and here's what I know, and here's what I'm telling you is the, you know, the... The more people that believe what I believe, the more right I am. So I'm going to convince you, you know, to follow me and blah, 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 blah. This, this gets into, you know, kind of a spiritual or mental, uh, you know, arrogance. Yeah. And we need to be real careful of this, of really thinking that we know more than we know. <laughs> Jupiter, Neptune, in Pisces show us that there's way more than we could ever, ever, ever possibly grasp with our mind 
We need to go out of our minds. And Pisces is unity and love consciousness. Spiritual love. Divine love. The truth cannot be spoken love. This is very humbling. So it's important to, as we seek, it's not like we're going to storm the gates of heaven and demand to be told the truth and instructed and shown and, you know, you know, have the guru enlighten us or whatever. No, 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 no. This is not a willful action. This is mutable. This is humbly opening ourselves that the truth may be revealed. Yeah? So, the other ask, the other word that I really look at there, and I have a little bit of problem with this word believing, because I like to think that, you know, it's not believing, it's knowing that if I seek, it will be shown unto me. You know, I would like to say knowing, but I can't say no twice in the same mantra. <laughs> if I've got courage to go into the unknown, and then I humbly know, that's using no twice. Yeah. And to me, it's a little bit of a no-no. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, babe. <laughs> so this word believing. But that's very funny because actually Sagittarius, Jupiter, and also Pisces has to do with this believing and having faith. It's... It, you know, belief and faith are something that cannot, it cannot be given to you. Right? It has to come from this place of humbleness and this place of really longing and seeking and asking, praying or contemplating, meditating, receiving. You know, it's like opening the container that I may be filled with wisdom, that, that I may be shown the truth. Yeah? So it's not demanding the truth and just the facts, ma'am, and, you know, I deserve it. No, no, no. This is more about, whoa, you know, uh, may I gracefully be open enough to understand what is really beyond my capacity as an ego human being to comprehend. So it is about believing. And believing is also, I think, it's got this feeling element to it. I was almost going to say humbly feeling uh, that, you know, as I'm seeking. Because there is this Believing is not just a, a mental thing. There is this, this open kind of innocence. You know, this is the beautiful Jupiter, Neptune, and Pisces. This innocence, you know, uh, like, hey, you know, show me the way. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm new to this, to this, uh, 
invisible spiritual world full of forces and powers and dynamics that are like, you know, way mysterious. So, you know, I'm, I'm an initiate. Okay. I am a humble student of the divine. So like, you know, we got to take, we got to take our self a notch down. It's so funny because Scorpio is about power and mastery. And no sooner do you get some power and mastery, then guess what? Well, <laughs> time to get humbled again in order to understand the bigger picture. Yeah. So it's kind of just a, a thing of, you know, this, this energy, you know, of needing to have the feeling nature involved with all of this. Yeah. So. I have the courage necessary to set off into the unknown, the new moon phase, the first quarter from new to first quarter, instinctively, okay, just, you know, just, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going, I'm trusting that I'm guided and my instinct and synchronicity is going to, you know, it's, you know, it's all going to happen. So trusting that instinct, trusting that self, setting off into the unknown. Ow! Yeah, baby. You feel it? I hope so. Humbly believing that as I'm seeking, the truth to me shall be shown. May the truth be shown unto you, baby. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> talking stick to you, Richard. All right. I'll take that piece of wood. All right. Looking at next week's chart, we've got coming up tomorrow, Moon Conjunct Pluto. And then in about a day and a half, we're going to have Moon Conjunct Saturn. And then, let's see, from Saturn to Neptune... That's two more days. And then next Friday, we'll have Moon Conjunct Chiron. And next Saturday night, the moon will be at 25 Aries. How about them apples? And Mars will be back to 18 Gemini. Let's see here. I was going to look at this. Uh, yeah, Mars is retrograding at 23 minutes, 7 seconds per day. So that's about a third of a degree. And uh, Uranus.
Janus is only backing up two minutes of arc per day. And the node is backing up at three minutes of arc per day. And Chiron is backing up one minute of arc per day. So these retrograde motions are are quite slow, but Mars being closer to us, the relative velocity is higher. So you got that going on. And that's uh, all, all for now about this. And I, I've got an interesting topic lined up for after uh, Tanya, Miss Gabrielle. Okay. I've got, yes, I've got a book report for you, Tara. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> okay. Talk to you in a bit. Okay, here we go. Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at a celestial event before it becomes exact so we can learn from it and prepare for it and understand the dynamics of the frequencies that are being activated. So here we have such an exciting moment. The Sagittarius New Moon is exact on November 23rd, Universal Time, and literally five minutes later, Jupiter, the ruler of Sagittarius and that new moon, stations direct. Now, this is an incredible moment because not only does Jupiter station direct literally minutes after its own new moon in Sagittarius, but it does so while forming a trine to the sun and moon. A trine is the most harmonious aspect in astrology. It creates ease, harmony, effortless flow. And of course, Jupiter is one of the two benefics in astrology, Venus being the other one. So when we have all these concurrent events happening at once, that is literally a very significant moment in the year. And it, it signifies forward momentum, opportunities, an ignition of joy being infused in us in a major way because it's coming to us from so many angles. Now, the new moon also happens at one degrees, and that's new beginnings. So the sun and moon will be at one degrees. Now, that one degree number is very significant because we also have a very significant numerology code for this Jupiter change of direction. And as you may know from watching my videos, if you've been listening to the way I approach the universal cosmic events is I don't just look at the astrology, I look at the numerology. And the reason is they literally are sister divination arts. They belong together and you can't have one without the other. You can't have codes without describing the frequencies of the stars. You can't describe the frequencies of the stars without the codes. They are all one. So having said that, 
let's look at Jupiter's code. Jupiter stationed retrograde in 2022 on July 28th. Jupiter stations direct five minutes after the new moon in Sagittarius at 28 degrees Pisces. 28, 2 plus 8 equals 10. 1 plus 0 for 10 equals 1. So the 1 degree Sagittarius new moon with the sun and moon both at 1 degrees is echoed in Jupiter's own code, which began in July and is now really, you know, with the retrograde and now the forward momentum, which is new beginnings, is being echoed in the numerology code. One is the number of new beginnings. It's the first number. (laughs) So it indicates a fresh start. And furthermore, the first important transit, astrological transit, following the Sagittarius new moon and Jupiter's direct motion is Mars trine to Saturn. Not only is that another trine, the most harmonious aspect in astrology, but it happens on November 28th. So we have a triple 28 code, a double one code, and 28 reduces to one as we already know. And so that indicates so much good news in terms of forward momentum, new beginnings, a fresh start, and all infused with Jupiter's joy. So another thing to know about the number 28 is that 28 is a number of trust. It teaches us about how to trust, how to trust our intuition, our inner connection to the divine, to God, to creator. So we have a new beginnings here regarding trust. And that means distrust is also going to come up because when we are exploring any frequency, we need to look at all aspects, all dimensions of the frequency. So any distrust or wounding that you hold inside is going to be recalibrated, is going to be brought to the surface through an external event or whatever the case may be. You may have already experienced it. These things don't happen literally on the clock, but there's an energy surge that comes into play as we approach these events. And since Jupiter magnifies everything it touches, we will see all the expressions of Sagittarius in the next weeks. Sagittarius governs wisdom, honor, opportunity, the law, And it, of course, governs joy and major expansion and seeing the bird's eye view. It governs multiculturalism and long distance travel and our belief system and higher learning. Now, we all have a code of honor that we either live by or not. The code of honor is to trust the divine within you. To say, be, and do the honorable thing in any situation. So the only spiritual battle that goes on is the one within us. Now, if you feel like you've been swimming upstream in any area of your life, 
the greatest thing you can do is to breathe and be in a place of neutrality. Now, will you stay in this place of neutrality at all times? Of course not. Because we're learning to adjust to blending our human experience with a consciousness that is divine. It is not human. So, of course, we're going to make mistakes, fail, but we're encouraged now not to use those words, not to define that way. We use a lot of words that put a definition on, you know, like a a stamp of disapproval, literally, uh, by the virtue of the meaning of the, of the word, meaning failing or making a mistake. We do that and it really rings true on a deep level unconsciously. So we have to start being very cognizant of the words we use. Really what's happening, instead of looking at it as those words, is to look at every step of our journey as an unfolding of mastery. And this goes for anyone, no matter where you're at with this unfolding of mastery. That's how we need to see it is it truly is a step by step by step journey as we learn to unfold our mastery. So since Jupiter governs legal matters, the judicial system, it's going to bring certain subjects to the forefront. International relations, because it governs the whole world, international travel, long-distance travel, communications. It governs religious doctrines. It governs higher education, higher learning. All of those are under Jupiter and Sagittarius's domain. And... During the last four months where Jupiter was in its retrograde motion, we've been asked to turn inward for answers rather than seeking them more at an external level. Now we can take advantage of the forward momentum and Jupiter's expansive influence as it begins to move direct again and pick up its pace over the next few weeks. Now there is more good news too because Jupiter will be moving into Aries very shortly. And then in 2023, Jupiter will be moving into Taurus. And remember at the beginning, I was saying that the two benefics are Jupiter and Venus. Well, Venus rules Taurus. So when Jupiter goes into Taurus next year, it literally will be merging with the energy of Venus as well the two benefics of astrology. So, so much goodness will be felt with that transition as we blend Jupiter's energy with Taurus and Venus. And we're going to be really diving into that storyline, that major shift, and so much more in my 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast. I'm so excited about it. It's my ninth edition and it happens on December 14th and our focus will be the extraordinary support and wisdom that we receive from the stars and numbers. I'm going to give you that huge preview and many handouts and tools. So if you would like to join me, go to 2023forecast.com and watch a short video about 2023 
and just know that you're going to receive your own 2023 personal forecast for your sun, your moon, your ascendant, your personal year in numerology, and the incredible 2023 universal star code guide, which is a great detailed PDF guide that has so many goodies in it for the whole year and so much more. And of course, the live stream and a Q&A with me as well, where you can ask, actually ask me questions. And you can register without any risk because we have a no questions asked 15-day refund policy, which means you can watch the live stream or the instant access reply, and we will refund you if you contact us within that period. So go watch that short video at 2023forecast.com. Enjoy that. Have a gorgeous Sagittarius new moon, Jupiter direct motion. Enjoy that energy as it starts really moving forward over the next few weeks. And, you know, just in time for the holidays, which is super awesome. So I wish you a beautiful week and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast.
about 140 pages, so it ought to be inexpensive in, in paperback. So here's here's his, and he puts all of these. They put all of these in the in the front, so you can kind of each one of these is then filled out in the in the quote unquote chapter, which is about generally are about 10 pages. So he starts off. They start off with this choice. This, our present cycle, is the end of the age. And the next 200 years will see the abolition of death as we now understand that great transition and the establishing of the fact of the soul's existence. And... Most of, a lot of these are from Esoteric Healing, Volume 4 of the Treatise on the Seven Rays, because it's about healing, right? Mm -hmm. Our ideas about death have been erroneous. We have looked upon it as the great and ultimate terror, whereas in reality, it is the great escape. The entrance into a fuller measure of activity and the release of the life from the crystallized vehicle and an inadequate form. Why not welcome transition? Learn to glory in experience, which is the gift of wise old age. And look forward to the great adventure which confronts you. You know well, in your highest moments, that transition means realization without any physical plane limitations. That's a good one. Four. Disease and death are essentially conditions inherent in substance. Just as long as man identifies himself with the form aspect, so will he be conditioned by the law of dissolution. Dissolving. (coughs) Excuse me. This law is a fundamental and natural law governing the life of the form in all the kingdoms of nature. What happens when the, when the, when the soul removes its threads from the, from the physical bodies, the body decomposes. And this is called uh, restitution. Right? So the, the matter of the body goes back to the reservoir of all matter, right? Which is the physical body of the planet. Right? And of course, in, in thousands of years ago, Bodies were just put in the ground, you know, maybe wrapped in cloth or hide or something like that. They didn't stick them in iron boxes and, and you know, 
stuff like that. Part five, there's a technique of dying just as there is of living. Six, people fail to relate death and sleep. Death, after all, is only a longer interval in the life of physical plane functioning. One has only gone abroad for a longer period. Seven, death can best, death can be best regarded as the experience which frees us from the illusion of form. Eight, death is only an interlude in a life of steadily accumulating experience. It marks a definite transition from one state of consciousness into another. And it's the consciousness of, a, of the human soul, which happens to be omni. Omniscient, omniscient. Your soul is omniscient, but your personality is not. Nine, death comes to the individual man in the ordinary sense of the term when the will to live in a physical body goes and the will to abstract takes its place. This we call death. And having read this chapter, it's the soul who wills to remove itself from the physical form. As humanity becomes soul conscious, death will be seen as an ordered process carried out in full consciousness and with understanding of cyclic purpose. Chiron mentioned that. In our yep, you come in to learn and eventually you've learned enough you come in and teach. Eleven. <laughs> the work of restitution, the art of elimination, the processes of integration, these three processes are death. So with restitution, the, the matter of the body goes, goes back to the earth. The forces, which are the organized etheric body, go back to the reservoir of energy, alright, and the processes of integration is what the, what the soul does in, in this, uh, extraction, uh, process. Twelve, death 
is an act of the intuition transmitted by the soul to the personality and then acted upon in conformity to the divine will by the individual will. And Thirteen. And then a word, capital W, sounds forth. The descended radiating point of light ascends, responsive to the dimly heard recalling note, attracted to its emanating source. This man calls death, and this the soul calls life. And the last one is, resurrection is the keynote of nature. Death is not. Death is only the antechamber of resurrection. So these are these are fourteen themes here that these uh, these uh, two students here research collected and and rearranged and I don't know how I how they chose to rearrange them because sometimes they'll they'll do a couple of paragraphs on 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 one page and then it'll come back and follow that with with a paragraph from an earlier page, you know. And these are very interesting here. So we've got we've got a few more minutes. Let me read let me read you something here which I was actually started reading this morning. I read a little bit before I went out and, and did some yard work. Part from part twelve. With the undeveloped or the average man, the soul plays a very small part in the death process. Beyond the contribution of a simple soul determination to end the cycle of incarnated life prior to another return to the physical plane. The seeds of death, in quotes, are inherent in the form nature and demonstrate as disease or as senility, (coughs) using that word in its technical and not in its colloquial sense. And the soul pursues its own interest on its own plane until such time as evolutionary process has brought about a situation wherein the integration or close relation between soul and form is so real that the soul is deeply and profoundly identified with its manifesting expression. It might be said that when this state is reached, the soul is, for the first time, 
truly incarnated. It is truly descending into manifestation. And the entire soul nature is thereby involved. This is a point little emphasized or realized. In the earlier lives of the incarnating soul, and for the majority of the cycles of life experience, the soul is very slightly concerned in what is going on. The redemption of, sub of the substance of which all forms are made goes forward under natural processes, and the karma of matter is the initial governing force. This is succeeded in time by the karma generated by the fusion of soul and form. Though very little responsibility is engendered by the soul. That which occurs within the threefold soul sheath is necessarily the result of the innate tendencies of substance itself. However, as time goes on and incarnation follows upon incarnation, the effect of the indwelling soul quality gradually evokes conscience and through the medium of conscience, which is the exercise of the discriminative sense, developed as the mind assumes increasing control. An awakening, and finally an awakened consciousness, is evoked. This demonstrates in the first instance as the sense of responsibility. It is this which gradually establishes a growing identification of the soul with its vehicle, the lower triple man. The bodies become then steadily more refined. The seeds of death and of disease are not so potent. Sensitivity to inner soul realization grows until the time is reached when the initiate disciple dies by an act of his spiritual will or in response to group karma or to national or planetary karma. And then, then they get the little reference point, 17, pages 500 and 501. And 17 is esoteric healing. So, how much time over can we go? You want to do another paragraph? Go for it, Richard. Huh? Go for it. We're listening. In the case of the ordinary man, where death is intended, the battle between the physical elemental and the soul is a distinctive factor. It is occultly called a Lemurian departure. 
in the case of the average citizen, where the focus of the life is in the desire nature, the conflict is between the astral elemental and the soul, and thus is given the name the death of an Atlantean. Where disciples are concerned, the conflict will be more purely mental and is oft, often focused around the will to serve and the determination to fulfill a particular aspect of the plan, capital P, and the will to return in full force to the ashramic center. That's the, that's the, an ashramic center is an organized group of souls where, where masters hang out, right? And, and workers and all the rest of it. Where initiates are concerned, there is no conflict, but simply a conscious and dis- deliberate withdrawal. Curiously enough, if there appears to be a conflict, it will be between the two elemental forces then remaining in the personality, the physical elemental and the mental life. There is no astral elemental to be found in the equipment of an initiate of high standing. Desire has been completely transcended as far as the individual's own nature is involved. Uh, see, they put this, this is from page 464, which comes before page 500, 501. There is another point upon which I wish to touch and which has relation to the eternal conflict being waged between the dualities of the dense physical body and the etheric vehicle. The physical elemental and the soul as it seeks to withdraw and dissolve the sum total of the combined energies of the etheric body are in violent conflict and the process is often fierce and long. It is this battle which is being raged during the long or short periods of coma which characterizes so many deathbeds. Coma, esoterically speaking, is of two kinds. There is the coma of battle, which precedes true death. There is also the coma of restoration, which takes place when the soul has withdrawn the consciousness thread or aspect, but not the life thread, in an effort to give the physical elemental time to regain its grip upon the organism and thus to restore health. As yet, modern science does not recognize this distinction between these two aspects of coma. <coughs> Later, when etheric or clairvoyant vision is more common, the quality of the coma prevailing will be known and the elements of hope or of despair will no longer control. 
the friends and and relations of the unconscious person will know exactly whether they are watching a great and final withdrawal from present incarnation or simply looking on at a restorative process. In the latter case, the soul is still refraining. In the latter case, the soul is still retaining its hold upon the physical body via the centers, but is restraining temporarily the energizing processes. The exceptions to this with strength are the heart center, the spleen, and the two minor centers connected with the breathing apparatus. These will remain normally energized even if somewhat weakened in their activity, and through them control is retained. When true death is the soul's intention, then control over the spleen first of all takes place, then control over the two minor centers follows, and finally control over the heart center supervenes and the man dies. And that's a good place to stop. Mm. That is definitely a good place to stop. Thank you so much. We'll stop when the man dies or the woman, you know. (laughs) But as, but in, but in reading this, you see, if you, right, you, you, this is all about the relationship between the soul and its physical body, right? And our, our three part, you know, our three parts. And so when, 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 when the, when, when death is the intention of the soul, right, the, the, the physical material of the body falls apart, it loses coherency, you know, all the organs, you know, fall apart, they quit working, you know, all that. And then the, then the second death is with the etheric body, which is a support system for the physical body. So modern medicine still has a long way to go. You know, I just wish I wish all the all these medical schools would would put esoteric healing, you know, in their curriculum. And then go hunt go hunt clairvoyance <laughs> to help them with their uh with their prognosis, you know. So anyway, the seven centers of the etheric body energize the seven major glandular systems. The glands produce their products. They go into the bloodstream. The bloodstream, powered by the heart and the lungs, distribute all these fancy hormones and stuff and that keeps us alive. So Yeah. Yep. All right, everybody have a great week. You too, Richard. Yeah, I'm about there's a big old rainstorm sitting over Alabama coming my way. Oh. Well Yeah. <laughs> well, um 
All right. Well, have a good week, and uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you back, Richard. Thank you. Namaste, everybody. Namaste. All right, Rama. Phone numbers for the conference call. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POW. Okay, everybody. We better hop to it because time is flying. <laughs> mm. And we'll be right back here at BBS Radio at the top of this following hour. So see you on the conference. Join us, everyone. Namaste. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. We haven't heard that one for a long time. Yeah, I just... This is a Hawaiian man. I don't remember how long ago. Maybe 30 years ago now, right? Mm, he left in 1997. 1997, 2007, 2017. Yeah. 20, 25 years. Okay. That was five years ahead. But, uh, I'm just gonna say that the whole island of Kauai got out there and cheered him on. They did a performance in the sea. Yeah. With their canoes. Whole thing. He was just... 38 when he left. That young? Yeah. Wow. 38 when he went over the rainbow. But he was just... That spirit in him was just... Very sustaining for the people, but... Um, we're going to go to Ascension, Twin Flames and Soul Contracts is the name of this presentation. And um, as we connected across lifetimes with the people, are we connected, excuse me, are we connected across lifetimes? with the people we know. Based on her work with the Akashic Records, Debbie Solaris returns to Beyond Belief to guide us through different types of soul contracts and karmic relationships that we all may have across lifetimes with our family and friends. These agreements with other souls can be soulmates, or even twin flames connected to our karma. Solaris explains that the soul contract exists to help us go through experiences together, reincarnated through one lifetime after another. In this process, we help one another ascend on an individual level and ultimately guide Earth to a higher fifth dimension ascended state. She describes how humans with starseed origins may also have soul contract connections with ET beings from other star systems. When our soul contract is completed, our higher selves can move on from that karmic lesson. 
Debbie Solaris is an ET contactee and galactic historian whose reading of the Akashic Records helps her clients transform their lives. Her previous interviews on Gaia are cosmic connections and collective destiny. Arcturians, Pleiadians, and Lyrans, Galactic Akashic History. Okay, so this is George Nury with Debbie Solaris. 46 minutes, here we go. Coming. The Akashic Records, can we rewrite them? When souls are formulated in the beginning of time, they're very large. They might have to split. Everybody makes these soul contracts. Can you break the contract? Yes, you can break contracts. That's probably not a good idea, right? How do we know this is a soulmate? Oh, that's uh, that's a question I get a lot. A lot of times I have clients that say, you know, I think I'm being abducted a lot. I'm not sure if I have a contract with gray aliens. Is there a guiding force that kind of overlooks these agreements? Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. Debbie Solaris with us, an ET contactee and galactic historian. Now, through her connection with the Akashic Records, she receives downloads of galactic history. Debbie, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me back. And um, we got to stop meeting like this, though. It's, it's, it's the best place to meet, though. I know. It? it is. Yeah. It's, and we're still getting a lot of response from your last presentation some yeah. time ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, what is a soul contract? What is that? A soul contract is an agreement that one soul will have with another soul in order to learn lessons or to go through different experiences together. As souls, we're very expansive. And uh, this is something that I work with a lot through my Akashic Records um, work that I do. So give me an example of a soul contract. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of people know the terminology soulmates. Uh, that's an example sure. of a soul contract. Uh a soulmate is usually somebody that we've had past lives with, um, usually romantic, not always, but um, uh, but usually we feel this familiarity when we meet a soulmate, you know, even in this lifetime. Or at least an emotional connection, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, very much so. So many people, when they break up with a soulmate, think it's the end of the world. It's not, is it? Not at all. There's a, um, unlike twin flames, which we'll also talk about, Soulmates, uh, we have many soulmates, you know, so there is an endless amount of soulmates. So not just have. one. No, you not at all. No. That's good. Now, yeah. why is it so important during this time period to have the soul connection? Uh, the reason why soul contracts are very, I think, um, I think popular these days, people are really looking at them. Uh, when I do Akashic readings, people are always asking me about their soul contracts is because, um, We've gone through many lifetimes where we're learning lessons through these soul contracts that we have with others. Sure. And so we go through, you know, many, many lessons with the same, you know, the same, same souls. Uh, so in this particular lifetime, because we're all here to help Earth ascend to the fifth dimension, 
we are all trying to clear out our soul contracts and work through those old lessons in order to help Earth ascend to the fifth dimension and also to help raise our consciousness to the love consciousness. Um, so we're clearing away, you know, the feelings of resentment, hate, uh, grief, sadness, depression in our contracts in order to achieve that um, that higher love consciousness. Is this a contract? Is this a deal with God? Um, it can be, yes. Uh, I think as um, as all, we're all soul shards of source, you know, so we're all pieces of God. Um, that's what I believe anyway. And so um, part of us separating from source is to have different experiences. And we all want to have a multitude of experiences with our soul contracts. And even uh, we learn a lot of times um, our most valuable lessons, even through some of the so-called negative experiences we might have with souls. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I think it definitely is part of a contract we have with God or a uh, source or the higher intelligence. Does everyone have that soul contract ability? Absolutely. We do. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody has uh, a soul contract. Um, some of us might have, different soul contracts, depending on what lessons we've chosen to have in our incarnations. Uh, usually we make decisions about soul contracts in um, that in-between life state where it's called bardo in Tibetan Buddhism. So it's uh, between uh, death and, and reincarnation. Uh, so in between that time, we usually go through a life review and we're setting up um, decisions that are made during uh that we're going to have in our our next incarnation so so yeah they definitely uh you definitely make uh so everybody has this uh makes these soul contracts um can you break the contract yes you can break contracts that's probably not a good idea right um actually in some cases it is a good idea oh really oh yeah yeah i think so um sometimes we might repeat old lessons over and over and over again and it's no longer serving our highest good. So um, so sometimes, you know, you might want to do an Akasha clearing or, you know, maybe some shadow work to release those contracts that are no longer serving your highest good and uh, contributing to your soul growth. Do people generally make contracts with friends, loved ones, employers? Who do oh. they make it with? Oh, with um, there's a multitude of different types of contracts. Uh uh, there's twin flame relationships, there's soulmates, which we mentioned before. Sure. And, uh, a lot of people are very focused on the twin flame right now. Um, and what is that? A twin flame is a soul and you usually only have one, uh, that is the other half of your soul. So a lot of times, uh, when is souls it your doppelganger type thing, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, it's kind of like the other half of your soul. So when souls are formulated in the beginning of time, they're very large. So when a soul chooses to incarnate in physicality, they might have to split. And usually they split as a father God consciousness or a divine masculine expression of the soul and a mother goddess consciousness or a divine feminine expression of the soul. So you might have a twin flame that's more masculine and another one that's more feminine, even if they are the same sex, you know. Um, but uh, but usually with twin flames, it's usually romantic, but not always. I've known of twin flames that are 
maybe brother and sister or grandmother. But, but there is a close relationship. Absolutely, yeah. Very, it's very magnetic relationship. Um, you learn a lot of lessons with your twin flame. What is that connection, Debbie? When we find our soulmate, how do we know this is a soulmate? Oh, that's a uh, that's a question I get a lot, um, especially when I do akashic readings. Uh, a soulmate is somebody that we just feel that instant connection, that familiarity. Uh, we feel like we've known them for lifetimes and many lifetimes. Oh, many lifetimes, yes. And uh, and we usually feel like there's a connection there. There's a soul connection. There's um, many uh, like a contract with them. Uh, usually the contract might be we might share missions or we might share our lifetimes. It's sure. usually somebody that we end up either marrying or somebody that we might have a long-term relationship with. And it doesn't have to be romantic. Not at all. Yeah, out. no, there's many types of soulmates. On the Gaia Show Open Minds, Ariel Ford talked about soulmates and how soulmates can recognize each other. Oh, this is amazing. fascinating. Oh, very cool. So my definition of a soulmate is that it's, First and foremost, somebody you can completely be yourself with, somebody with whom you share unconditional love. And when you look into their eyes, you have the experience of being home. And if you accept that definition, then I want to expand it even further because we're going to be talking about romantic soulmates today. But your kids, your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your best friend, your cat, your dog, all are also soulmates if they fit that definition. And to take it even a step further than that, I would also say a soulmate is somebody that you feel emotionally and physically safe with. We have a tribe and we have recognition when we connect with our tribe. And I do believe when we're planning to hook up in a particular lifetime with a soulmate that we go to a place that they call recognition school. Mm -hmm. And we plan out the coincidences and the synchronicities so that we can recognize each other. We can fall into nature's trick and be crazy in love mm -hmm. and see this so that we can get together and grow and heal each other as a couple. Debbie, what do you think of what you just said? I love what you just said. That's exactly the same way how I feel about soulmates. Yeah. Um, the beautiful thing about a soulmate relationship is that it, it's it's uh, we oftentimes embark on those uh, contracts in order to learn self-love. So when we get into a relationship with a soulmate, they're reflecting love to us. And so we're learning, hey, this person loves me. So maybe I'm not so unlovable. Maybe I can love myself. And uh, so we get to see ourselves mirrored in that and in, in that other person. Can we be cutting contracts and we don't even know we're doing it? Uh, sometimes, yes, I would say I've seen that happen before with some of the uh, Akashic clearing work I've done with clients. Um, but usually I think it's a higher self. Uh, our higher self kind of takes over at that point. So the higher self will, will say, OK, we no longer need this contract. Let's go ahead and, you know, um, and dissipate the contract. So what causes the disruption between soulmates when things fall apart? The relationship falls apart. Right. The friendship falls apart, whatever it might be. There's many reasons why that might happen. Uh, I, I've, a lot of times when I do work with clients, um, we're looking at their Akashic records in order to see where the disillusion of the relationship what happened occurs. To it. Yeah. yeah. What happens? Maybe it's caused by a past, uh, 
maybe an old trauma signature from a past wife. Maybe it's because the the other party in the contract doesn't want to learn their lessons. You know, so sometimes, you know, the relationship just falls apart. Interesting how this is done. Yeah. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. Hasn't Absolutely. It? Yeah, I know. That's why. And during this timeline, you know, here on Earth, um, the reason why so many of us are trying to clear and work with our soul contracts is because we all want to ascend to the fifth dimension, you know, at least those of us that are on the spiritual path. So um, a lot of my clients now are, are coming to me and they're asking a lot of questions about their twin flame, soulmates, uh, karmic partners, et cetera. So. Can you have a relationship, a contract with someone you don't get along with? Oh, absolutely. That happens too? How does oh, yeah. that happen? That's a, called a karmic partnership. And I deal with a lot of those, too, with my readings. Uh, a karmic partnership is usually somebody, uh, it's usually uh, a contract where we didn't learn a lesson from a previous life. So then we contract with a master soul. Usually it's a master soul sure. that actually loves us. But they, they choose to play the bad guy in our life in order to help us master this lesson in this life. So the quicker we can transcend the lesson, the quicker we can close out that that soul contract and move on to more positive relationships. Back to Open Minds again, where Nicholas David Nagan discusses what you've just talked about, yeah. these karmic relationships. Oh, wonderful. That's interesting because a lot of people experience this, especially yeah. in their personal relationships where they have this internal conflict all the time. But then when they're apart, they think fondly of each other. Yeah, because they're not in the, what I call the cauldron of karmic relate, relating, which is... Yeah. how a lot of initial relationships are to bring our attention to our patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that happens is, for example, if I had a, say you had physical karmic sevens, which are about healing the heart and opening to show your true feelings and thoughts in the world. And I had physical talent sevens. Okay. My positive energy would go into your physical talent gateway up into your f- physical karma and it would help you heal the heart. So that's called what called a karmic lock. So that is actually what draws people together. That's actually the tractor beam effect. That actually pulls people that's in. That's what happens when they're falling in love. That's, yes. A lot of the time you yes. just get pulled in and it's like, yeah. well, what's happened? Yeah. What's happening? Okay. Mm-hmm. It's because you're getting the positive frequency that you need is a perfect match. Mm-hmm. And so you will grow much faster by going through that. But you have to feel your way through a lot of more of the negative karmic issue initially. But if you stay with it, then you'll find, oh, I don't have that feeling of heartbreak. I actually feel more decisive, which is what a seven is all about. Mm-hmm. I feel I want to show myself. In fact, I'm opening and I feel safe. And so those sort of relationships are where people grow much more rapidly than they would by themselves because they're getting this transmission, I don't know, 12 hours out of seven days a week. I have a friend in St. Louis, Debbie, whose wife died a couple of years ago, and he's been brokenhearted ever oh. since. And I got a text from a buddy of mine last week who said, Steve just died. <gasps> and the doctor said it was broken heart syndrome. Oh, my God. That's tied into all of this. Oh, it? absolutely. That happens actually quite a bit. Um, I also have a friend recently who uh, her husband passed away, or I, I'll say her partner passed away because his his brother passed away two weeks earlier, and he was very close to his brother and uh, felt that. Um, 
he was so heart heartbroken that he ended up having a heart attack two weeks after his brother passed. So oh, it's very common. There's yeah. something that it affects the heart physically, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. This emotion. Yeah. These contracts, uh, how important are they? I would say they're extremely important, especially during this timeline, because this is our apex life as far as um, a lot of us have chosen to be here on Earth during this time because this is an evolutionary And these time. are interesting times. Oh, they What's sure that are. saying? The best of times and the worst best of, of times? times? Oh, yeah, definitely. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, so we are having some interesting experiences, and uh, even on a global scale, you know, a lot of these contracts are being played out. Um, even with some of the world events. Do children make contracts? Oh, absolutely. With adults and oh, parents yeah. and stuff like that? Absolutely. At a young age? Yeah, it's it's all determined even before they're, they've incarnated. Uh, children will often have contracts with their parents, with family members. Um, a lot of times when I'm doing Akashic readings, you know, um, I'll have parents that ask me about their children and, their connection, their soul contracts with their children. So very much so. Some people do contracts with the devil. Is that the same thing? <laughs> that is more what I would call spiritual suicide. So when uh, what spiritual suicide is, is when you're turning away from the light. You're turning away from the light. Intentionally. Path. Intentionally. Yes. Why would somebody want to do that? Maybe to gain power, fame, money. Um, there's many reasons. Can't you do it by not doing the evil end of it? Can't you cut a deal with an angel or God to do the same thing? Why do you have to cut a deal with the devil? Um, I don't know. I think sometimes uh, when you go the dark path, you get that more instantaneous uh, gratification. So sure. some people want things faster. And sometimes they the devil can't will wait, promise. No? Oh, they can't wait. No. What, Debbie, is a walk-in or parallel soul agreement? That's a really interesting soul contract. It's not one I see very often, even with my work, but I have worked with walk-in souls. That is a contract where um, a person is born, and they're born with a soul. And then As some, we all are. Yeah, like I we hope. all are. Yeah, we all have a soul. And that soul decides to, to walk out. But another soul, usually a more advanced soul, will walk in. And this usually happens during an accident or some sort of traumatic event, maybe a near-death experience, sure. you know. So, um, but it's a contract that's made even before, you know, the, 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 the physical body is um, incarnated. So, one soul will oftentimes, and there's many reasons why they agree to this. So, but one soul will walk out, the other one will walk in. Usually the walk in soul comes from a more advanced star system. So now when you say walk in, are you talking about literally walking into the physical body? Oh yeah. Of yeah, the other individual? Yeah. Oh yeah. Is it's, it like possession? It's a little, it could be seen that way, but it's more like they're taking over. So it's like, the other soul the walk -in is taking, taking over. over. Yeah, it's just kind of taking over the contract with with that particular lifetime. Is that done with the individual's acceptance? Oh, absolutely, on a higher over? level. Yeah, on a higher level. Um, the, it's usually done maybe not consciously on the 3D uh, person's level, but on the fifth dimensional higher self level. Yes, that is an agreement. How do you break a contract? 
there's many ways you can break a contract. Uh, some of my clients will choose to break contracts through doing an Akashic Records clearing. Um, some of them will do shadow work in order to break a contract. Sometimes when they learn their lessons with that soul, the contract is then broken. So there's no no longer right. an attachment of some sort. So there's there's different ways you can break a contract. It lived out its agreement, I guess. Exactly, yeah. Interesting take on all of that. Generally, in terms of uh, male, female, who cuts the most contracts or does it matter? You know what? I don't think it even matters as far as sex. Um, I've had... I had as many women break contracts as, as men, so um, it's it's not a gender thing. It's more of a soul a soul decision. Do we as humans cut deals with extraterrestrials? Oh, absolutely. That is a question uh-huh. I get a lot, and uh, we have we have soul contracts with with both benevolent and malevolent um, extraterrestrial beings. And where are these beings from generally? What star systems? Uh, Sometimes we'll have contracts with um, with extraterrestrials of star systems that we have a connection with, such as maybe the Pleiades or Lyra. Or well, we've heard a lot about those, those systems, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Um, and some people might even have contracts with beings from Zeta Reticuli or even Draconian beings or benevolent or I would say benevolent beings from from Orion. Are the contracts different depending on the star system? Uh, yes, they can be different. Yes. Uh, usually with a malevolent race, uh, it's usually some sort of agreement where they're working out shadow aspects of themselves. You know, so, you know, maybe a soul has chosen to to delve into dark aspects of themselves. And so they make contracts with dark beings. Um, uh, most of us, however, I think, choose to have um more uh, light, you know, or more benevolent contracts with higher dimensional beings. Uh, a lot of times what I see with more of the benevolent beings is that maybe for some reason we've chosen to help them, you know, through, because uh, I get a lot of abductees. You or know, they even, help us. In a way, yes. In a way, no. yeah. It's like, or, or we're helping them and they're helping us. So it's How do we know, Debbie, that we've made this connection, this soul agreement? Uh, usually you have a sense of it. So, um, a lot of times I'll have clients that say, you know, I think I'm being abducted a lot. I'm not sure if I have a contract with, you know, gray aliens, you know, for instance, like, you know, I'm, you know, I remember, you know, in my childhood, I'm getting abducted. And so, so what we do is we look in their Akashic records and we'll say, oh yeah, you definitely have a contract with them, you know, so that's why you keep getting abducted. Um, and maybe it's because, They've agreed to let them use their DNA or they've agreed to let them experiment on them, you know, so so that so we can definitely have those types of contracts as well. Is there a guiding force that kind of overlooks these agreements and settles in on them or is everything done on an individual basis? I would say there's probably a higher reason for it, but I would say it's more individual because we are free will souls, you know, so we all can make, you know, so we're all able to make our own choices. So as souls, we can choose to have negative experiences or, or positive experiences. What's a guiding force? A guiding force would be like your higher self or your higher guides, um, which are basically, um, our aspects of, oh, absolutely angelic or, 
our, our star families might be a higher force or even ascended masters or any types of higher dimensional beings that we have connections with. I keep thinking to, about that wonderful Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, I love where that. Where Jimmy Stewart was contemplating doing himself in. Yeah. And his angel was sent down to save him. Exactly. And uh, do they get involved that way, really? Because yeah. that sounds like a soul contract that he tried to break. But they wouldn't let him break it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've had that happen even with myself where, you know, there was times where I was down and out and there was uh, an angelic being that showed up even in my life that, you know, prevented me from doing any harm to myself. So, yeah, so I've, I've, I've experienced that personally. And what kind of harm could come to somebody who breaks a contract like that? Usually they end up having to repeat the lesson. So uh, in a different life form, yeah, exactly yeah. like a reincarnated situation. Yeah. yeah. So um, a lot of times it's it's more it behooves us, to, I think, to go ahead and as difficult as some of these contracts might be, it behooves us to get through that lesson in this lifetime and master it so we don't have to keep repeating it. Yeah. How did you get involved in this? Um. I think we talked about this in some of our prior shows, yes. but, uh, um, people here all the time, Debbie. Yeah, I know. It's like, uh, I, I was actually, um, you know, I, I was, a, a ET abductee myself. And, uh, during the time of my abductions, I learned quite a bit. Um, I just got a down bunch of downloads of right. information about spirituality, about Akashic records, about um, our connection with the universe. And also because I do a lot of Akashic readings, um, particularly galactic Akashic readings, um, I've I've seen patterns in, you know, people with certain star lineages or patterns with certain uh, um, soul groups, you know, so, um, so this is a topic that's really, I'm very, very fascinated with. So I love working with soul contracts. Now we've got another guy, a series called Initiation yeah. and the host, Matthias De Stefano talks about the Palladians as you have yeah. and the Arcturians oh, very good. as humanity's first guiding forces. Very, very good. So the purpose of Palladian people is like being those high masters and guides in the matter that tells us why we are here and what we can do to improve ourselves, what we can do to enlighten ourselves, to understand reality, how we can transform matter and time in every reality that we have created. So they are the guides of the spiritual world in the material worlds. And the Arturian people are the ones taking care of the matter, of the structures. They are like the doctors and the the scientists of the galaxy. They were the ones trying to bring all these enlightened concepts of spiral and understanding this the, the importance of these spiritual patterns into the physical ones and put them all together. So they discover how spirituality moves through DNA through evolution and they evolved in their own planets trying to take much power as possible from the spiritual world through the physical bodies. So both of them are kind of the same looking in different perspectives. 
the Pleiadians has the goal to bring heaven on earth, and the Arcturians has the goal to bring that earth to heaven. But it's not a goal that they want to leave the the material world, but they want to create a physical world that is exactly the same as the ethereal one. So improving this reality, improving the matter in order to create civilizations and create beings aligned with the light that is within the structures of the three-dimensional realities. So, Debbie, how does this star lineage that Mateus is talking about affect all of us? Oh, that is something that um, I am particularly particularly interested in with the work that I do. Sure. So um, it's a lot of what I teach um, through even some of my trainings. Uh, um, as uh, as souls have had experiences in other star systems, uh, we come here to Earth to learn certain life lessons. We learn to we come here to learn uh, the human condition. Uh, when we come from you know systems such as the Pleiades or Arcturus or Sirius or and we might right oh yeah absolutely um, I would say during this timeline uh, I would say the majority of us that have been born during this particular timeline since World War II um, are mostly star seeds um, there might be some younger souls still here on Earth that have only had Earth incarnations. But I would say the majority of us at this time are star seeds. Um, but we have forgotten. So, um, and we have purposefully forgotten so that we can go through the earth experience and learn certain lessons, including those with our soul contracts, uh, and our relationships with others. Um, as far as the star lineage, um, I do see patterns with certain star lineages. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, somebody that comes from the Pleiades, um, I do get a lot of clients who are Pleiadian starseeds, and I see patterns with some of their relationships. Uh, Pleiadians in the Pleiades, um, because they're such a, such a high vibrational star system, they have perfect relationships. They have relate, many relationships. and Is there a perfect relationship? Um, they, they do in the Pleiades, but on Earth, there certainly isn't. Okay. So we're, 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 we're playing out our 3D, you know, lifetimes. Why do they have a perfect relationship and we don't? <laughs> because they've, they've, uh, mastered their lessons. They've ascended you know. a little higher. They're, they're, yeah, definitely more ascended than we are. Um, I would say quite a bit, probably quite a bit more ascended. Um, uh, but for us here on Earth, you know, and sometimes even as star seeds, we might choose to have, those karmic partnerships or those twin flame, you sure. know, uh, relationships in order to learn certain lessons. Um, for a Pleiadian star seed, what I usually see is that because they're so empathic and they're so open hearted and so, um, they look at the, the bright side of a relationship. Um, sometimes they'll get in codependent situations in with their relationships. Um, they tend to attract at least until they get more well integrated, they'll attract narcissistic types that might try to take advantage of them. Um, well, that happens too. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times it's because the Pleiadian soul will look at the, the individual that they feel an attraction to and say, Oh my gosh, that person has so much potential. It, it, maybe if I just love them a little bit more, they will, um, they'll become this great human. You know, I just need to love them. 
And uh, a lot of times that doesn't happen. A lot of times what happens is the Pleiadian soul would just give, 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 and the narcissist will just take and keep taking. Um, until Almost the, like they feed off of it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, the, so the Pleiadian soul will oftentimes uh, do this until they finally learn that they just can't keep giving all the time and they need to take a stand for themselves and start setting boundaries. And so once they master this lesson, hmm. they usually end up um, breaking off that contract and attracting more healthier relationships in their and life. And getting another contract. Absolutely. How many contracts can one take in one's lifetime? Oh, a multitude of them. It's, it's, it's endless. It's uh, I can't even put a number to it, George. It's it's um, we we can have many different types of contracts. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to break these contracts? I would say in most of the time, if it's not serving your highest good, um, it is a good idea to break the contract. It is. Yeah. And how do you know it's not working? A lot of times what my clients will describe to me when I'm, you know, doing Akashic Records work with them is that they feel like they're, they're, they're in the stuck pattern. They feel stuck. They keep repeating the same patterns over and over and over again. And, and they're frustrated because they want to move forward. Um, and so a lot of times what we'll do is, you know, when I'm doing an Akashic Records clearing, for instance, we'll look at, you know, some of their contracts and, um, and sometimes I'll tell them, hey, I think you need to keep this contract. I think it's working for your highest good. But sometimes I'll look at it and I'll say, you know what? I don't think this is working for you anymore. Let's break it. And so we do that. How do you see their contract? How does that happen? When um, I'm doing the Kashuk Records clear, uh, reading or clearing, uh, I'm able to access that person's soul journey. I'm able to access uh uh, other souls that they have connections with. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, like you were mentioning before, we're all part of, you know, soul families. And um, so I can take a look at their past lives with certain souls and we can see, okay, have you learned your lessons from this, you know, this ongoing soul contract or have you transcended those lessons? But for whatever reason, you're not able to break that contract. Um, so um, so, you know, so you can you can uh, you can actually access a lot of information from the Akashic Records. You mentioned past lives. Do you do that and find it in hypnosis? Um, as far as me being in hypnosis or you, you hypnotizing people, do you do that? Oh, no, not at all. You're not, you're not um, I just have hypnotist. a direct connection to the records. So I don't need to hypnotize people. I do all the work. So I, I just download. Does it ever get tiring for you? Um, yes, Akashic readings can be very tiring. Um, a lot of people don't realize that when you're in the Akashic records, you're using um, all of your clear abilities. So you're using clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudient. Um, and so you're getting information from many different types of avenues. And, and at the same time, you might be talking to the Akashic guides or talking to their guides. So it can be very exhausting. So that's why I can only do a certain amount of uh, certain number of Akashic readings a day. It doesn't sound like a great idea to break these contracts, though, does it? Um, and for the most part, I would say uh, there's a higher reason why we've chosen to have these contracts. So um, a lot of times we just need to play them out. But I have seen situations where people keep repeating old contracts and it's because maybe on a higher soul level, they don't know how to close them out. So if it's for their highest good, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely close it out for them. 
generally, when you've met someone that you really like, can you tell that they've got good contracts out there? As far as with other people? With other people, with the, with themselves. Can you have a contract with yourself? Oh, absolutely. I, I would say that's the biggest contract we have is with ourselves. Good. Yeah. Good. And how do you compose that? How do you put it together? Well, I think a lot of times in our lifetimes, you know, particularly when we're in a third dimensional uh, incarnation or reality, uh, we're we're playing out certain lessons uh, that we need to learn in order to accelerate our spiritual growth. And so um, so certain lessons might be, you know, even if I'm separated from source, can I still love myself? Okay, Um, even if I'm separated from source. Can I, can I still have unconditional love for others? And so throughout these certain, uh, you know, different soul contracts that we have with other people, um, we're able to replay those, those lessons over and over again in many different, um, variations and nuances. Um, and it ends up becoming a beautiful tapestry of experiences that our soul will have while we're here and helps us to ascend even further. Is it healthy for us to ascend this way? I would say, yeah, Physically. definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would say, uh, I mean, I, I would think as souls that come here to help um, the planet ascend and also to help humanity ascend, it is very healthy to play out all of these different types of contracts and to have these experiences so that we can um evolve and move forward do you find that people who have these good contracts in place are generally happier people healthier people oh definitely um i would say uh people that are awakened or on the spiritual path that have a certain level of self-awareness about themselves about others um generally i think uh tend to be people that are emotionally more um, healthier, they're, uh, they're, they're more open, you know, to maybe looking at themselves and seeing what part they play in some of the contracts they have with others. So yes, I would say definitely yes. The Akashic records, can we rewrite them? Uh, yes, to a certain degree, yes. I do that all the time with Akashic records clearings. Now when you say to a certain degree, what restricts us? Uh, there are certain things that are more in concrete. So there might be, for instance, you know, some of our past lives, you know, they're very concrete. But when we're talking about future probabilities, we can rewrite those all the time. And sometimes we can even rewrite a certain timeline, you know, through maybe neurolinguistic reprogramming or through Akashic Records clearings or through QHHT where um, maybe the contra- you know the records aren't exactly changed but our response to the records have changed so maybe our response mm-hmm. to a past situation changes and so then we're able to grow and heal from that when uh, Kelly Jones was on our program she talked about how to rewrite the akashic records yeah. and how to unlearn our human conditioning oh wonderful we rewrite our records Take off the all the time. Well, and how we do that is by shifting the matrix of our perception of that which we perceived as, as having experienced. So, for example, if I look back in, you know, in childhood or somebody's experience in childhood to say, you know, what was my mother or father doing or what were they thinking? What was the truth 
of their behavior and their act- actions. And when that information is brought forward, the the energetic um, space within one's beingness shifts. They have a whole new perspective and understanding of what transpired, let's say, in childhood. And in that, the records, their perception is rewritten. Truth has been revealed, and they know it. There's an internal feeling that says yes. How soon in one's life do they start? A little baby? When? So it's really since we decided as soul to individuate from source. So that could be almost at any time. The records are always there. And so we it, it's called the, the recording of our soul's journey through lifetimes. So it's every lifetime that we've experienced. And I, I feel like what you're speaking to might be a little different, um, which has to do with innocence, which, which has to do with Pure the innocence. truth of who we are. Exactly. And so we overlay, um, shall we say, the personality or the ego, which begins to um, judge or mask the the pureness of who we are and we start being conditioned by the human condition and what we're learning to do is actually unlearn the human conditioning and so we can access the akashic records which brings forth that wisdom that assists us in understanding even the the the, the deeper pieces are the lessons that we came here to learn and so um, those are vital and they're important to our soul journey Absolutely. and they're recorded in the records as well when people come to you for assistance, are they troubled? Some are. Some uh, are just curious. So it just depends on what that person's, uh, I guess, intention is for their, their reading at the time. How do they find you? I mean, how do people wake up in the morning and say, I got to talk to Debbie about my soul? Uh, how does that happen? I guess I've been out there for a while. Sure. Um, I have a YouTube channel. Your name's and, out there. Yeah, so my name's out there so people know what I do. But I have a lot of people that want to have readings with me at this time, and uh, which is, I think, a real blessing because it shows me that people are awakening. They're getting interested in working on themselves and on their soul and their contracts. So, um, uh, so people can generally find me through my website. You know, So I do have a website. Which is? DebbieSolaris.com, D-E-B-B-I-E-S-O-L-A-R-S.com. And I do offer trainings in soul contracts, you know, so they can they can definitely go to my website and sign up for a training. Or so they, they can, can do their own readings? Um, well, not so much their own readings, but it teaches them how to recognize soul contracts that they might be having. So With others? With others, absolutely. And, uh, and how that connects to their star origins. There's an old saying, Debbie, that... Uh, in order to heal something, you have to look within mm-hmm. and see what yourself is. Absolutely. Yeah. That's basically what we've been talking about tonight. Oh, absolutely. Um, the best way to heal our soul contracts is to work on ourselves and to work on our own spiritual growth and our own spiritual evolution. If somebody cannot connect, cannot connect with contracts, cannot connect with themselves, are they headed for doom I wouldn't say they're headed for doom, but they might be headed to repeat some of these lessons in in, um, future lifetimes. What has been for you one of the most astounding cases you've ever dealt with that you just overwhelmed you? As far as an an individual who came to you. Um, 
I would say the most interesting one that I've had was a walk-in experience. Uh, I had a lady that was uh, a walk-in and her soul actually came from a different universe and it was like triangle headed beings. And it was really, I mean, when I saw her records, I was just like, I was amazed. I was just amazed at the, the depth of her soul and um, even just the contract that the, the walk in soul had with her at that time. And I will never forget that case. It was amazing. And you can actually, if you go on my YouTube channel, you can actually uh, hear about, hear her reading because it is on my YouTube channel. How long does it take you to analyze somebody? Usually uh, when I start doing a reading, it's almost instantaneous. And it, it's not really coming from me. It's coming from the Akashic guides. It's coming from the Akashic records. Anything coming from the gut, your gut? Um, yeah, I do use my intuition. So I always tell people that, um, yes, I'm doing your reading, but I'm also doing it from my frame of reference, you know, from my intuition. So if something doesn't resonate, it might be because it's my interpretation of the records. But the records never lie. The records are always based in truth. How many contracts can an individual handle? I would say a multitude. Um, I think it depends on different souls. Like some souls may choose to have fewer contracts. Some souls may choose to have a lot of contracts. Sure. Me personally, I have a lot of contracts. Do we have contracts with everyone we're in touch with? In a, in a, in a, in a way, yes. Um, even if it uh, seems like a casual connection, there might be a certain level of a contract with that individual. If an individual dies that you've got a contract with, mm-hmm. does that kill the contract? Not necessarily, no. I mean, you can have an ongoing contract even for lifetimes. Uh, so even if that person physically dies, you more, more than likely might even see them again in future lifetimes. What is your next project? Uh, right now, um, I am working on uh, some more webinars. Uh, we're going to do a webinar on star seeds and health, you know, so so certain trends that we see with certain uh, star lineages, you know, you know health conditions, uh, you know, so those types of uh, so those types of things, uh, how to navigate through today's reality with COVID and everything else. And I'm pretty excited about that project, actually, because I'm somebody that uh, has been able to transcend and improve my own health. So. Debbie, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you for having me, really George. Really appreciate it's been it. Really awesome to have, be here with you. Truly remarkable how you can cut contracts with people you care about and people you don't care about. And the end result, of course, mm-hmm. is making you a better person. I'm George Nori, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Remember, <clears throat> we had lunch with George Nury, and <clears throat> he was with another lady. I don't remember her name, but this was back in Santa Fe, back in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were attending the Prophets Conference with us. And I don't know how that all happened, but the four of us ended up going to that. It was an organic restaurant. It's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's like yesterday. I'm just remembering that because of the the nature of that conversation. Soul paths and twin flames and soul groups and, and, oh, it's, 
yeah, there's a lot of joy in what we're doing here mm. to uh, awaken each other to more love, higher, more, more, um, and deeper. Uh, how's that? Deeper, deeper mm-hmm. energy. So we're going to take another timeline jump. This is called the Empires of Atlantis. Plural, the Empires of Atlantis. What is the evidence of the lost continents of Atlantis? And who were the Atlanteans? Researcher and author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis, Marco Bigato, shares his insights from 15 years of research into the esoteric and archaeological evidence of Atlantis. He suggests that the fall of Atlantis thousands of years ago was due to the advance of materialism and the loss of spiritual science, but that the remnants of Atlantean knowledge were preserved in the human civilizations that grew out of their advanced culture including the building of the pyramids at Giza. Well, we know that they weren't built here. They were brought here. They were already constructed on Aldebaran, which is in the Orion. Is that right? I got to look at a star chart. Aldebaran is adjacent to the Orion constellation, somewhere up there. (laughs) Um. And then they were brought in a starship. It was. The others the same way? Mm-hmm. Cheops and Khufu. Khufu. There's one more. Yeah. Um, Billy Carson said that that big pyramid in Mexico was built to his twin flame, Lady Master Mott. Billy Carson didn't say Billy Master Mayot is his twin flame. No, that's those. That was yeah. That built a pyramid in Mexico. We gotta talk to Mother about all that. That's that's a very curious story. Yeah. We will <laughs> we will discuss and discuss that and talk back about that next week. Anyway, mm. we're talking here now. Uh, Researcher and author of the book, The Empires of Atlantis, Marco Bigato, shares his insights from 15 years of research into the esoteric and archaeological evidence of Atlantis. He suggests that the fall of Atlantis thousands of years ago was due to the advance of materialism and the loss of spiritual science. That makes sense but that the remnants of Atlantean knowledge were preserved in the human civilizations that grew out of their advanced culture, including the building of the pyramids at Giza. Again, they were built on Aldebaran, and they were brought in starship and and brought to Earth. So we'll just see what thunk up itself here and see what they say. Regina Meredith discusses her own experiences of past life regression in to Atlantis with Vigato, making connections from Vigato's work to other researchers, such as Freddie Silva's study of the Shining Ones, 
Bigato and Meredith share their knowledge, share knowledge of human civilizations throughout periods of destruction. As we rediscover the knowledge of Atlantis, we can learn more about humanity's future. So this is another 46 minutes, and we're going to start this right now. Mm. Here we go. search for Atlantis was uh, starting with the evidence of it, the physical evidence. We forget it's not just about a lost continent of mythological proportions. It's about us. These are Atlanteans who were human-divine hybrids. They had a physical body, but it was possessed uh, divine, highly spiritual souls. If we only stick to the literal interpretation, we are never going to really get to the core of the esoteric meaning of the spiritual truths that these people try to communicate to us. Yeah, it's a sort of a catastrophobia. Yes, catastrophobia. I do believe that the pyramid might originally have had some functional purpose. Which of the places you've been to blew your mind and was far more than you ever expected when you went there? Atlantis has captured the modern imagination for millennia now, beginning with accounts from Plato. Today, far more evidence for this lost civilization is available than back then. When placed alongside esoteric accounts, we begin to piece together what life on that magnificent continent may have been like. Toward that end, Marco Vigato has dedicated 15 years to documenting the evidence, and he's here with us today. And welcome, Marco. Thank you very much, Regina. It's the first pleasure. time we've met. Yeah, this yes, is it's wonderful. Pleasure being here. Thank you. What's wonderful about what what you've done here with your book? You're a very good writer. Um, wonderful research amazing pictures. You have put your body all over the world um, in uh, search of this story. But you also do put together some of the esoteric elements of it. I would like you, before we even get going, to lay the framework of why your deep curiosity about Atlantis and how these two sides of you come together. Yeah, I think there are always two sides to the Atlantis story. On the one hand, you have the scientific Atlantis, the search for physical evidence of Atlantis. But then on the other hand, you also have uh, the esoteric Atlantis, mm-hmm. uh, that of the esoteric tradition. And uh, for me, these two sides, they will always coexist, they're like living next to each other. Um, what really prompted me on this search for Atlantis was uh, starting with the evidence of it, the physical evidence of visiting, uh, as I say, hundreds of archaeological sites around the world. I started getting the picture that uh, the wayward tool, history, the evolution of civilization was uh, fundamentally flawed. There was a missing episode uh, in our past, in our mm-hmm. history. And uh, that's how we made the connection with these esoteric traditions of Atlantis uh, and really came to the conclusion that Atlantis was really the missing piece that could make sense of all these inexplicable, unexplained structures and advanced science that you find in ancient times at these archaeological sites. And similar symbolism, similar, similar mm-hmm. artwork, but in parts of the world that theoretically had no connection with one another at the time, but in fact all had a connection with one big item sitting right in the midst of all of these different uh, continents and also cultures. And it's true, everyone was left scratching their head. How did that thing in the Yucatan 
end up with the exact same symbol we saw on that piece in Ireland, for example. Yeah. yeah. So Atlantis is the piece. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, this is something that is largely missing uh, in our modern scientific worldview. I think there is a strong push uh, towards uh, specialization, and we have specialists in so many different fields, which uh, it's it's a great thing uh, in many aspects. But in a field like the study of our past, of our history, I think one needs to also piece together all these different uh, pieces. Uh, One needs to take a much more holistic view, because otherwise one runs the risk of not seeing the forest that's true. And I, I noticed this was, I've, I've interviewed quite a few people that look at the archaeological evidence and have devoted decades of their life to doing so. But what I'm also finding is I interview other people who, for example, um, in their regression practices, um, their hypnotherapy practices, have people suddenly popping through and talking about a time that they identify as Atlantis and technology they were using in the day. Now, this, there's a lot of this out there now. It's not uncommon for this to pop up in any random housewife's regression, right? Mm-hmm. And um, when I say housewife, I mean someone you would kind of least expect to be pondering mm-hmm. the theme when you got a bunch of kids around. So that's common now. To me, the story of our past, because it's about us, mm-hmm. we forget it's not just about a lost continent of mythological proportions. It's about us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the story is getting interesting. And you and I are going to have a story taking both of these elements into account. So first of all, you, you live in Mexico City now, but your background, you you were in Harvard Business School at mm-hmm. one point. So people say, how did you end up from there to studying Atlantis? <laughs> yeah, I think I've always had uh, this passion mm-hmm. for ancient civilizations uh, since a very early age of uh, visiting archaeological sites uh, throughout much of Europe, uh, the Middle East. So we always have had that uh, to, to the side. And uh, more recently, particularly also after I moved uh, to Mexico, started getting uh, very interested in the archaeology of Mesoamerica, Central mm-hmm. America, South America as well, visiting many of the archaeological sites there. So that's really what started piquing your curiosity even more about Atlantis, right? Yes, yes. yes. I think of that, that curiosity about Atlantis started also earlier, but that gave me the opportunity mm-hmm. of really uh, trying to go on the field and looking for right. some of the evidence, like the physical evidence for that. And you're originally from Italy? Yes. Where? Yes, from Milan. From Milan. Okay. Wonderful city. <laughs> I love the Duomo. Of course, everybody loves the Duomo there. Um, okay. So first of all, let's begin the story with the peopling. Let's assume that Atlantis exists, existed, and is now under the sea. You have maps mm-hmm. of what happened during the various phases of Atlantis and its final, up through its final destruction. Mm-hmm. And in these maps, you'll see how far north mm-hmm. Atlantis reached. To me, what's always been curious about that was the nature of the beings or humans mm-hmm. that occupied that land at that time. It was a very different reality. Mm-hmm. So explain to us your understanding in, into the Hyperborean mm-hmm. story as well of the people that were incarnating to that continent, mm-hmm. the upper part of that continent in particular, the northern parts. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to think about Atlantis as a huge continental landmass that stretched across much of the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. or even the North Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. So it would have had a very broad a variety of climates and ethnicities as well, of different people that inhabited Atlantis. 
Now, something that is suggested uh, both by the esoteric tradition as well as uh, by some of the latest anthropological and scientific evidence uh, is that uh, modern humans, or what we consider as anatomically modern humans, mm-hmm. may have uh, first appeared on a now sunken mid-Atlantic landmass. So Atlantis mm-hmm. is really, in a way, the place of origin of all of mankind. It's the first place on Earth where, if you believe in the accounts of the esoteric tradition, some higher spiritual beings uh, incarnating by taking bodily form on Atlantis. And this is what also prompted the cycle of uh, physical as well as mental and spiritual evolution of mankind, eventually giving rise to our modern humanity. So I really believe, and that's what it suggests in the book, that Atlantis was the true cradle of uh, the human race. And from there, humanity spread uh, to all these other continents. Yes, and our audience, uh, a lot of our audience, are versed in different aspects of Atlantean information, a knowledge of Atlantis um, from different traditions, but also are versed in as much as anyone knows, right? Mm-hmm. In Lemuria, yeah. which was now, at one time it was thought everything was sequential, mm-hmm. you know, now is thought to believe that Lemuria in the people there who you say uh, in early Atlantis were a little less substantial in nature. We're going to get to that. The same thing was going on there, as many accounts say, that you had uh, them existing simultaneously Mm -hmm. or concurrently. So here you have people that you say are were advanced in their knowledge and understanding Mm -hmm. that were insubstantial. When now, what do you mean by that in the book when you say insubstantial? Yeah, I think uh, there is a lot uh, in the esoteric tradition uh, about. uh, the, the idea that some spiritual beings or entities are uh, incarnated on earth, they took on a bodily form. Yes. You can call these entities however you want as advanced souls, multidimensional beings, but there is this very strong suggestion. This is something that uh, we find uh, since uh, the earliest times. So, so even even in Plato's account of Atlantis, uh, he talks about uh, this incarnation of a divine principle. So from the very beginning, these uh, Atlanteans who were sort of human divine beings, human divine hybrids in a way, they had a physical body, but it was possessed uh, divine, highly spiritual souls. This is a key part of the Atlantis narrative. Yes, a key part. I mean, that's a critical part for us today. Mm-hmm. We are the progeny of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is a, this is what you call the, um, the conflicts we have inside that are called mm-hmm. having a dual nature. Yep. You can really go right back to that time mm-hmm. where that new kind of hybrid being was created of sorts. Mm-hmm. I think it's always a cyclical repetition uh, yes. in a way, in the same way as Plato suggests that the, uh, original Atlanteans were these uh, semi-divine beings that were still very much attached uh, to their spiritual roots. So then what happened and what eventually led to Atlantis's downfall was a fall into matter, a fall into materialism, which is very similar to what is happening today to our own civilization, to our own society. We're losing sight of our spiritual origins. So we're falling into these uh, uh, materialism, uh, like the cult of science uh, in a certain way. Uh, and that, that, that's probably one of the reasons, if not the main reasons, why the Atlantis story resonates so much with our modern audiences. I agree with you. There's this deep curiosity we have. In fact, I think at Gaia, whenever they do research and kind of look at what people are interested in, Atlantis comes out almost number one most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's way at the top of our audience interest. Why is that, right? Well, mm-hmm. 
perhaps it's because many of the people who are watching that, many of the people who are researching and writing, um, were there in the day. Mm -hmm. If you look at that, where souls continue on their own cycles of learning and reincarnation and so forth, um, it would make sense that we'd have an intense curiosity Mm -hmm. about Atlantis, but also something else. An intense fear and propagation of the story of mass extinction. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of uh, catastrophobia. Yes, catastrophobia. You should find it. And I think, uh, as we say, there are many different uh, explanations for that. The one possibility is that we still keep a sort of genetic memory in a way of these times. It's it's part of us. as we, our ancestors, at least, they live through all these events. And right now, because the circumstances, of, uh, you can call them the cosmic cycles, or the point where we are in the path of human evolution, sort of mirrors the circumstances that existed back then, we're forced in a way to relieve all of that, or that triggers an activation, in a right. way, of these uh, genetic memories. On the other hand, uh, there's also the very strong suggestion in many traditions that uh, or a belief in reincarnation that souls that lived at that time are incarnating again today. Uh, yes. So uh, that that makes me believe that uh, uh, in a way our civilization were at that place at the time in history when we are repeating many of the events that occurred in the Atlantean past. Uh, I'm on the same page as you. Okay. So as we tell this story, um, I think let's begin first with as you said, you had these beings. Let's talk about the Hyperboreans, mm-hmm. okay, and who they were, what they were, what the nature of the beings were. Mm-hmm. Well, in the esoteric tradition, uh, going back to theosophy, the Hyperboreans were considered to be the first uh, uh, human race, uh, in a way. So, you know, theosophy had this system, this very complex system of multiple different human races. Yes. And races. So Fruit the, races. And, right. Yes, uh-huh. Right. So the Hyperboreans were really the first. They were still spiritual race, meaning they did not have uh, a bodily form, a body necessarily that would be identified as purely spiritual souls or multidimensional beings. And uh, according to the other tradition, they settled uh, in a now lost uh, northern land uh, that was called Hyperborea. Mm -hmm. Now, this is particularly interesting also for the Atlantic's uh, Atlantis story, because uh, there is actually a possibility that this Hyperborea later became Atlantis, or was in a way a northern Atlantis, where this incarnation first uh, took place. And then because of geological upheavals, uh, that originally northern polar land was displaced towards the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Yes, and I love how clear you are in your articulation of this because most people don't go this far on it you know you kind of stick to there's this land mass and this evidence and there was carving over here i love what you do so taking that story forward you had then an embodiment as it was mm-hmm. called an embodiment into a uh, human form mm-hmm. what became the human being the homo sapien homo mm-hmm. sapien sapien now one account of that is that those beings those original mm-hmm. spiritual beings were from uh, what you would call a higher or less dense dimension of earth itself coming into this lower dimension of or this physical mm-hmm. third dimension of earth edgar casey talks about the various reasons everybody has their reasons for why these beings did it some said it was adventure it was simply to look into mm-hmm. something to experience the senses for the first time so we can speculate as to why they chose to do it but they chose to do it mm-hmm. yes yeah. so they came to choose to be part of this incredible incredibly diverse, beautiful, physical creation. 
maybe not fully understanding the implications. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have to ask yourself the question why it happened at that specific time. Yeah. Right, and I think the answer is because it was at that time that uh, a bodily form became available for yes. these spiritual beings to incarnate yes. and take on that bodily form. So in a way, uh, I think uh, the, the theory of uh, evolution, this idea that uh, um, like our, our bodies are like bodily form evolved uh, uh, throughout millions and millions of years is fundamentally correct. What these uh, forget, however, is the parallel process of spiritual evolution yes. as well. What is it that really triggers civilization? What makes us human? It's not necessarily just our bodies. Right. It's our mind, our soul as well. And this uh, is uh, what uh, came from uh, these uh, uh, the and according to the esoteric tradition, we're essentially spiritual beings, multidimensional beings that uh, uh, guided, in a way, also the process of yes, physical. Yes, absolutely. And so now we have physical beings that are being that are embodying these these souls mm-hmm. with advanced knowledge. Um, but now you're down into a complex of time, gravity, mm-hmm. um, survival, even survival, and that's not perhaps. Wherever that part came in may not have been the immediate part, but the reality is ultimately the human, the human, the physical reality here has a time stamp on it. Mm-hmm. These other beings did not have that. These beings were able to live because they were non-physical for vast, vast expanses of time. So now you have these two together in this northern part of Atlantis. What happened? This That lasted for many, many, many thousands of years. Mm-hmm. What happened that that you can understand from archaeological evidence that created the collapse of the first upper part of Atlantis? Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, there were like spiritual root causes that had to do with the fact that the primitive Atlanteans were dual beings. He had yes. this spiritual and this physical component. So even Plato himself suggested that the cause of the decadence of Atlantis was a fall into materialism. In the end, yes. the physical aspect of these beings took the upper hand. And this is exactly what caused ultimately their, their downfall. Now, from a more like archaeological and geophysical <laughs> point of view, around that time, we have the first Atlantean cataclysm. So we're talking about the time around 35,000 years ago. This is confirmed by a number of different sources, a number of different accounts, like Kingsley's ancient chronologies, as well as just it was at that time that a major terrestrial upheaval occurred, which was identified, for instance, in Babylonian accounts, with the first great flood, the first deluge, which uh, caused uh, uh, the downfall of uh, the first Atlantean Empire mm-hmm. and triggered a new age uh, or a new time period in the history of the world, which was the second Atlantean Empire. Which there was foreknowledge of. Again, mm-hmm. these beings had foreknowledge. They had the capacities for even telepathy and for... Uh, precognizance and so forth. So there were those who left, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. They had left and they took that knowledge with them. So not all was mm-hmm. lost just because the landmass went down. So let's talk about that for a moment. And I just want to say one thing. Even though the material, animalistic part of the mind took over for its own survival and started blunting mm-hmm. the effect and the information uh, coming from spirit, we are still that dual mm-hmm. nature. We just aren't yeah. letting it talk to us so much because survival has mm-hmm. been at stake. 
So let's talk about what happened when that went down, yeah. the beams. Yeah, absolutely. So according to the esoteric tradition, two different factions developed on Atlantis uh, when it was still attached to the original spiritual roots uh, of uh, these early Atlanteans. And another one that was uh, a much more materialistic uh, was uh, rapidly uh, degenerating. So a war ensued uh, between these two factions, which is what triggered uh, the first mass migrations uh, outside uh, of Atlantis. It was uh, in part caused by geological upheavals, mm-hmm. so the first uh, major sinking of landmass in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, but was also triggered by this intense warfare between these two different What was factions. that warfare like from, from the Vedas and uh, uh, other mm-hmm. documents you've been able to discern? Well, there is the suggestion that uh, uh, these uh, warfare involved uh, the use of devastating weapons, so what we would call today weapons of mass destruction, in a way. Uh, and so it was quite possibly as a consequence of this war, of this war, that the first major sinking of Atlantis occurred. Such as an atomic explosion of sorts, but some uh, other of technology. Sorts, of sorts. Right. Uh, and there are some suggestions. Uh, you mentioned the Vedas, uh, for yes. instance, in the ancient Hindu text, uh, that it was in fact the case uh, that weapons of mass destruction were employed by these different factions uh, that uh, Uh, through some sort of uh, technological imbalance uh, in a way that we do not necessarily understand that actually triggered the first major sinking of Atlantis. So according to what you've been able to discern roughly around 35,000 years ago, then culture started receding itself. Mm -hmm. Now, let me look through this. Uh, You call it something like this great vast period, I think after the second destruction, Mm -hmm. was it? Long period of time where there's nothing. Yeah. Can't find anything. Mm-hmm. Now, timing, you know, timing is always the most difficult part of all of these things. So what happened then at that 35,000 year mark after the first, the top part broke off and sunk? Mm-hmm. Now you have the middle Atlantean period, yeah. which still had very sophisticated mm-hmm. technology and beautiful technology. Yeah. So let's talk about how that was receded. Yeah. So that's, that's a time period that lasted for over 20,000 years. Mm-hmm. And is, as you say, Immediately after the first Atlantean cataclysm, there was sort of a hiatus in a way in which uh, we do not have many records. So it's as if uh, Atlantean civilization uh, receded uh, or almost uh, uh, went back uh, to a stage of uh, um, much lesser development and sophistication. But it's also a time in which Atlantean civilization spread to other parts of the world. Yes. There is evidence around that time, uh, a second center um, of uh, civilization developed uh, in Central Asia, in the region of the Gobi Desert in mm-hmm. particular. There was in a way antagonistic to the original Atlantic uh, or mid-Atlantic center of uh, Atlantean civilization. And so you have uh, these uh, two same factions that were responsible for the first downfall of uh, Atlantis around 35,000 BC that uh, uh, continued uh, in a way these uh, struggle, this warfare, uh, but from two different centers. So on the one hand, uh, you still had an Atlantic center located on what was left uh, of uh, the Atlantean landmass in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, but then you also had a new center of civilization established in Central Asia, and that this two culture, which, by the way, uh, this Asian center was what in the theosophical doctrine was called uh, the center of Aryan humanity. Aryan, yes. The fifth, uh, India, out of India, yes. And, Correct. Yes. 
Correct. And so you have to imagine you have to picture this struggle between mm-hmm. uh, the remnants of Atlantis, which in time were also able to reestablish mm-hmm. a new Atlantean civilization, what they call the Second Atlantean Empire. Yes. And this new Aryan humanity that detached itself uh, from the main body of Atlantean humanity to give rise to a wholly new civilization in Central Asia. And now let's for just one moment, we're going to just go back and finish up the story of the North because we went there and didn't finish it. Mm-hmm. And that is the more uh, spiritually oriented, uh, highly knowledgeable, understanding laws of nature, harmony with nature, and so forth. Those people were able to emigrate elsewhere. And a lot of this happened on uh, the western coast of the UK, and even going up somewhat into uh, Scandinavia, right? So that knowledge was kept. And in some uh, circles, it's and Fred Silva's work, for example, mm-hmm. is called the Tuatha de Danann who ultimately later became the Druids, as some knowledge is lost but still much retained. Mm -hmm. So you have that knowledge still going both directions and being maintained Mm -hmm. and probably taken to many other places around the world as well, right? So that knowledge still exists. Now we have the reestablishment from the remnants. Technology technology has been, um, in a sense, uh, has overtaken wisdom and spirituality by this time to Mm -hmm. an instance. And you go into this destruction at 35,000 years. Now, it starts reestablishing with some of those higher principles again, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, there is the suggestion that at that time you had uh, once again the incarnation of some spiritual beings. We were called mm-hmm. uh, some spiritual guides of mm-hmm. mankind. In the Hindu tradition, for instance, the, uh, the Manu of that age uh, that... Uh, uh, pre-incarnated on earth in order to help guide uh, humanity towards a path of survival, of spiritual evolution after the cataclysm of the first Atlantean period. But then you see again a repetition. So you see how history is cyclical yes. again. And so, the same kind of beings described the same way, um, mm-hmm. show up all over, all yeah. over the planet after cataclysm. Mm-hmm. And, and indigenous peoples all over the world talk about these beings, these magnificent advanced beings who came and helped them get back on their feet mm-hmm. again. So the same thing was happening in Atlantis. And so now we have a life. What kind of life from what you've seen emerges? And I'm going to share with you a piece from a couple of regressions mm-hmm. with Dolores Cannon and what I saw from that era, which was at the very, 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 very end. Very unpleasant end, I might add. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a towards the end of that second Atlantean period uh, that uh, another cataclysm occurred. Now, uh, in this specific case, and we're talking about a time uh, around 13,000 years ago, around 11,000 BC, there is a suggestion that this cataclysm had uh, uh, a cosmic origin. It was probably the impact of a comet, like something completely beyond the control of the people that existed uh, at the time. Yes. Uh-huh. But uh, it had uh, the effect, on the one hand, uh, of uh, once again causing this uh, civilization to collapse, to go back uh, to a much lesser stage of uh, evolution and uh, sophistication. It caused a further exodus and migration from Atlantis yes. to other lands. So large spread. exodus. Yes. Because the destabilization of the land was taking place over such a long period mm-hmm. of time, it was known this was coming, this mm-hmm. this seismic or whatever activity you want to call it. You diagram it in yep. the book, actually. So what I've been trying to figure out all these years is after having this experience, totally unexpected uh, regression experience with Dolores Cannon, I ended up 
right in the middle of that. And I was one who was mm-hmm. still among those who could work well with the mind. And we were working with the mind and our energies to subdue the mounting disruption that was going to happen. And everyone knew of it. This wasn't uh, a secret. Many had already left. Some were still working with it because mm-hmm. of the concern for the loss of knowledge, technology, mm-hmm. and everything once again, because that's painful, right? And there, what we were not aware of is it, 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 we'd only heard rumors of the ones in the city who were working with the high technology. This is, you know, pyramidal, crystalline, and other types of very advanced focused technologies. And our understanding was they were trying to play God and mess things up in a blue. When I was able to speak with my own group of beings later on on that, they said, no, you misunderstood because you were myopic doing just what you did. You didn't have full knowledge of what they were doing. They were doing the same thing, but with technology. Mm-hmm. I think this has been misinterpreted and misunderstood historically, unless I'm in the wrong destruction, unless it was the first, and I don't know which one it was. I've never known which mm-hmm. one it was. I just know what earth life was like then, which was pretty sophisticated and mm-hmm. magnificent on many, many levels. But when that went down, these other people with technology were trying to subdue it the same as we were. No one wanted to see this this landmass loss mm-hmm. again. And what I also noticed is that there were beings from other places. There mm-hmm. were, you could see little uh, spaceships in near atmosphere. They were working with humans too. Everyone was trying to stop this and there was nothing that was going to stop it. And so with the ramping up of that technology that was used from the city center, it became a very violent end. Mm-hmm. And I remember everything blowing. It was horrible. And mm-hmm. fish were boiling. And it was just, and the thing I said to Dolores, oh, my God, we're going to sleep for a very long time. We've lost mm-hmm. everything. Now, that's the part you write about in the book is this long, fallow period, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. It really sounds like it was almost a second chance that was given to mankind after the first Atlantean cataclysm, after this time of decadence. And they did well with it. They were using technologies mm-hmm. in a beautiful way. It wasn't all corrupt. But then again, that's it from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, this is uh, probably what happened during this second Atlantean period, when um, Atlantean civilization itself uh, transitioned from uh, a mastery of what uh, in the esoteric traditions called the life force, so mm-hmm. certain things that came naturally mm-hmm. in a way to the Atlanteans because of their spiritual and mental faculties in earlier times that did not require technology. Right. Transition towards a technological type of civilization. Right. And technology was almost a development uh, that uh, was required in order to compensate for the loss of exactly. some of the spiritual and even though it was high technology and even though it was used for beautiful purpose in terms of healing and growing and so forth that is stepped down from what was originally Mm -hmm. done where you could just use the mind pretty much use the mind and work with soils and work with you know work with elements and so forth with mind only so here we have it stepped down still lovely way beyond where we are now so what do you think what was the lesson then was it still trying to assist humanity or suggest to humanity let go of the technology and go back into the true knowledge Mm -hmm. do you think that's what was attempting to be to express itself 
think the same forces uh, that caused the first destruction, the first fall of Atlantis, uh, they were still at work uh, in a way. So for, for a time, uh, yes, Atlantean civilization did uh, resurrect uh, in a way. It also went back uh, to the original purity, but then the same uh, forces, the same materialistic forces uh, came back. And uh, that's uh, what probably led uh, towards like, the second cataclysm, the second fall of uh, Atlantis. Okay, so that was then about 13,000 years mm-hmm. ago, right? Yes. So then the fall or the great deluge that Plato mm-hmm. um, recounted in his day, when was that? Well, there were many. Plato mm-hmm. himself uh, says uh, there were many destructions of humanity by fire and water. Will mm-hmm. you remember the last fire one? Fire and water, so yes. The, the, the cataclysm that Plato alludes to is uh, probably this last Atlantean cataclysm that ended up uh, with the sinking of the largest portion of uh, the Atlantean landmass. But there were certainly others before that, uh, which are recorded in a number of uh, both esoteric and historical traditions. So what Plato describes is a very specific point in time in human history, uh, which is uh, called, to use a more scientific language, the Younger Dryas yes. Cataclysm. So this is a time... Uh, 11,600 years ago. Right, correct. Mm-hmm. This is a time around at the end of the last ice age, and now, interestingly, scientists are coming up with the idea that this was, in fact, a dual cataclysm. It was probably an initial a first cometary impact at the beginning of the Young Dryas around 13,000 years ago, which was followed by a second impact uh, around 1,500 years later, which mm-hmm. uh, remarkably uh, points uh, to the same date given by Plato around 9,600 BC yes. for the final sinking and destruction of Atlantis. Now, again... At this time, there were people who were able to get out, take knowledge out. I mean, technology was lost. Uh, Basically, technology was lost, except for those who still had the spiritual mental technologies. Mm -hmm. And so we had civilization developing. You write here, at that time, 16,000 B.C. seemed to have been an important time in development, Mm -hmm. right? And you have here in uh, in, uh, Egypt and South America, but also Sardinia. Yeah. where we went on an adventure mm-hmm. here at Gaia and looking at the Nurage mm-hmm. and such of that area and going into and in, in, uh, psychically tuning into what had happened in these places mm-hmm. at that time. So tell us what about 1600 BC was really important for uh, distribution of that knowledge in these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but actually, when uh, you think about the fall of Atlantis, this was not a point in time episode. Uh, it took thousands long, of years. It was a, a process uh, during which Atlantean civilization and culture spread uh, to other lands uh, around the world. So towards that time, Atlantean civilization did in a way become um, almost like a colonial type mm-hmm. of society. Because of geological instability in yes, the Atlantic very Ocean, unstable. Uh, yes. massive migrations of people were triggered from mm-hmm. that uh, uh, mid-Atlantic homeland towards both the old world and the new world, where civilizations were established, modeled on that of the motherland, modeled on the civilization of Atlantis. So that's the time when the first uh, pre-dynastic Egyptian civilization uh, appeared in Egypt. Yes. Some of the earliest megalithic monuments in the European continent that were constructed. You have a great surge of construction in South America, for instance. Think of these uh, incredible megalithic ruins of Peru and Bolivia. These are all relics from that time. From and pyramids was. everywhere. And, it could be a yes. ziggurat, which has a different mm-hmm. purpose than a smooth side. Everywhere, whether it's in Egypt mm-hmm. or South America, you can have smooth side ziggurats, stepped pyramids and the like. 
So this was that same technology from Atlantis that had been um, brought brought into these other regions mm-hmm. through those who emigrated. Yes, yes. So they spread their technology, their science. Yes. Uh, and that's the reason why you find uh, the same symbols pretty much all over yes. the world. So starting from uh, the pyramid. I do believe that the pyramid, uh, they might, it might originally have had some functional purpose, right? Yes. But then it became a symbol as well, the cosmic mountain. And so that's the reason why we find it in so many different places around the world. Many of these monuments were actually built on very specific points on the Earth's surface, uh, characterized by uh, certain uh, uh, levels of terrestrial energy, so particular hotspots of activity. Ley lines and so forth. Yes, yeah. these type of things like mm-hmm. ley lines, uh, uh, telluric currents. Yes. And so you have this idea that these people were really engaged uh, in uh, creating a world grid of ancient sites, uh, locating pyramids and megalithic monuments, a specific places, uh, specific points on the Earth's surface uh, in order to produce uh, some sort of uh, effects uh, that had to do with the advancement of consciousness, the advancement of, of knowledge. There's also the suggestion that this global network may have served uh, the purpose of uh, generating energy well, as well. I was going to bring that up next. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Energy generators. And many, many people who've been in regressed states have seen that that these were energy generators and for the very earliest people that used them, perhaps generating their own personal Mm -hmm. or sustaining their own personal energies as well. well. And so here you have things, then things start getting bastardized where Mm -hmm. you start building a pyramid because, hey, they were in the hot spots of the great cultures of the day. But it reminds me of of more like the Mayan cultures Mm -hmm. where you have these awful blood sacrifices uh, at the feet of these amazing pyramids who were not necessarily built by them. Mm-hmm. They were built far, far, far in advance and all they have is a distant memory of the, the powerful beings that once occupied it and then it descends into something as barbaric as, you know, sacrificing yeah. someone to serve that intelligence force. Mm-hmm. So this is a lowering of consciousness. Yeah. So how does that work with all of this, the waves of rising and lowering consciousness? Mm-hmm. Well, the purpose of many of these structures was no longer understood and yeah. that's why uh, some practices like human sacrifice mm-hmm. just degenerated uh, over time. Yeah. So because of, uh, for instance, if you think about uh, the Maya pyramids and many of these uh, of these yes. structures clearly built in uh, specific hotspots, uh, there might have been uh, still a memory of uh, some of the scientific practices uh, and that were performed at these places. They might have had to do with the release of energy yes. at these spots. But uh, in the degenerate practices of later cultures that took the form of human sacrifice. So yes. the real meaning of many of these rituals or operations were conducted at these places and was lost. That's why it gets so confusing when people are reading history. The Mayans built these pyramids and they have mm-hmm. them with blood, you know, dripping down the sides of their altars. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, that, does, that doesn't quite make sense to me that those people built those. And this is true all over the world. We have mm-hmm. these same kinds of stories as we have a degeneration of knowledge, memory mm-hmm. and consciousness. And so what I'd like to ask you now, um, the pictures in your book are amazing. You've been all over the place and you took some fabulous photos and you're in a, a lot of selfies at a long distance. <laughs> so let me ask you, with this incredible curiosity of yours, and I would even speculate, it's not for me to do, that you may well, very well have been one of those people there long ago that are trying to bring back an understanding of what what, mm-hmm. what can be and what has gone wrong. Which of the places you've been to blew your mind and was far more than you ever expected when you went there? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think I had this a very strong feeling of connection in, in Egypt. Uh, again, I think uh, there is something special about uh, the temples of Egypt um, or the pyramids there. Uh, you you can still like feel the presence uh, in a way of that uh, very ancient uh, civilization. They have these uh, very strong uh, feeling, uh, particularly at Luxor in uh, in Egypt, uh, like this magnificent temple in uh, ancient Thebes, so, because of the, not only there is evidence uh, that uh, many of the temples, the megaliths there, may actually date back uh, to much earlier than... Well, Robert Schock said privately, I probably shouldn't say it because then it's not mm-hmm. private, but, I mean, he has said privately he can't publicly speak of what his first impressions of the Great Pyramid were, mm-hmm. but this, he told another person that his first impression is this could be a 100,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Then you have to go find the evidence and you have to stay within the framework of that for whatever you're going to do academically, of course. That's natural. You don't want to mm-hmm. make fun of, you don't want to lose tenure. But then John Anthony West, at least 35,000 mm-hmm. years. So what's your perception? Well, to me, what is impressive is also the continuity. So if you look at uh, many of these buildings, many of the structures, I do believe uh, that some of these, uh, they can go back uh, to at least the Neo-Atlantean period, so over 10,000 years ago, after immediately after the last terrestrial cataclysm. Mm-hmm. What is remarkable is the continuity, because that civilization did not stop. These mm-hmm. are places that continue to be rebuilt, uh, they continue to be sacred places. Yes. So even if you look at the site like Giza, you actually find a stratification of different cultures. The origins of the site may be well over 10,000 years old, but then multiple different civilizations, including the dynastic Egyptians, they kept building on top of that. Yes. Uh, they kept, they continued in a way this project. So that uh, these, uh, this great project that was started during the Atlantean period did not just stop there, it continued for thousands and thousands of years. There is evidence yes. that this project continues to the modern day in a way. And always there were people that kept uh, the fire alive uh, in a certain way, this fire of Atlantean civilization. So that's why I think it's even more important uh, that we today rediscover those roots, because that uh, can really bring forth a new renaissance, uh, a rediscovery of the Atlantean past. What for you pers- on a personal level have you learned that really has kind of changed where you thought you would go with this whole um, endeavor, with this story and the development and the research of it? What has changed in you? And I want to know then what you're going to be doing next. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, to me, is, uh, it's it's really the search uh, for um, the, the the remnants of that past, uh, as you also mentioned before. I do the spiritual, psycho spiritual, mental. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the records yes. of that time. I yes. really do believe uh, that uh, before, particularly before the last uh, cataclysm, mm-hmm. people who had foreknowledge of the events that were going to happen, they created time capsules, they concealed uh, part mm-hmm. of that knowledge so it could be rediscovered for the benefit of a future humanity. So it came to the realization that many of us uh, nowadays uh, are tasked uh, with uh, the rediscovery of that knowledge, uh, rediscovering uh, those time capsules, uh, rediscovering that ancient knowledge for the benefit of modern humanity so that we do not repeat the same mistakes of the past and we don't go down the same way that led to the downfall of Atlantis. Beautifully said. If we take into consideration, as the Hermetics would say, for example, that early, early, early Egypt was concurrent with Atlantis, as you said, Mm -hmm. this is even evidence. So we have then the survival of great amounts of hieroglyphics and such. Mm -hmm. And it was told to me one time that if humans 
learned how to really read it. And there are those being born and those that exist now who are learning how to actually really read it, not just Budge's work, but way beyond that, that that is going to tell us of our history. Do you believe there's truth in that? Yeah, yeah, I do believe that. I think uh, particularly with hieroglyphic writing, there's yes. a literal interpretation and symbolic interpretation. Exactly. I think we have focused too much on the literal, literal. interpretation. Mm-hmm. So we can read hieroglyphs, uh, mm-hmm. but we do not necessarily understand them, meaning that... Uh, we don't understand them yet. That's what I was told. Mm-hmm. If some people take it upon them in this lifetime to truly understand them, the answers we're looking for regarding Atlantis and the laws of nature, etc., are all right there. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're just sitting right there. Yeah, and there is this idea, there has always been that esoteric knowledge, uh, true esoteric knowledge at least, cannot be conveyed uh, with words yes. or with the language of logic. That's exactly the purpose of hieroglyphic writing, yes. is to convey a deeper level of meaning, of meaning. So if we only stick to the literal interpretation of that, we are never going to really get to the core of the esoteric meaning of the spiritual truths that these people try to communicate to us. Absolutely. And finally, yeah, we're just about out of time. Finally, um, Edgar Cayce had said that there would come a time in the near future where Atlantis would rise again. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed like he was speaking quite literally. We still have in the Azores, Mount Picos, for example, mm-hmm. little tiny remnants of Atlantis that exist but said that it would be rising again. What do you take that to mean? Well, I think that that time is now. Now, I don't know if uh, uh, we have necessarily to take it literally. I think when it's to think about... Uh, what a, is it the knowledge, the spirit? Right, the, yeah. right. That's, that's the way you see it. Yes. I see it much more as a renaissance of Atlantean knowledge, of Atlantean yes. spirituality in a way that uh, uh, it's going to be triggered by rediscovery of the Atlantean past, very much in the same way as during the 15th the 16th century, a rediscovered classical civilization of Greece and Rome was what triggered a renaissance, this incredible surge of human culture and civilization. I do think we're at the edge of a very similar rediscovery, that the rediscovery of the Atlantean past is going to really bring forth a new golden age for mankind. Well... Thank you. Thank you for that. You, you have a very elegant mind. I'm very, very uh, pleased to be sitting here with you because you're not just turning over stones. You're also esoterically curious and courageous. And you've put this all together in your book and you've taken it even further in terms of conversation with me. And I'm very happy to have been part of it because you're, you had such clarity and elegance of thought to all of these things we're so interested in. Thank you, Marco. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Again, the name of Marco's book is Empires of Atlantis, which you can find through major booksellers. You can also visit his site at marcovigato.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. That was an elegant presentation. Mm. Wonderful. Wow. Here we go. On to Merkaba and the Black Cube. Our friend Robert Gilbert is back again. How does the pentagram function as one part of the Merkaba soul vehicle within human energy fields? Explore the secrets of ancient Egyptian mystery schools. Fibonacci's Golden Racial Sequence, Rosicrucian Energy Practices, and the Divine Power of the Merkabah, 
with Vesica Institute founder Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D. Transform your consciousness by changing your actions and affecting your subtle energy bodies through these time-tested techniques. So see the companion practiced in episode 13 of this series. Practice Egyptian Radiant Star. And this is 36 minutes, and we begin mm-hmm. soon. <laughs> I was not quite there. Mm-hmm. That it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sacred Geometry. <laughs> as usual with the energy field awareness practice to get a baseline for your current energy and consciousness level so that at the end of the exercise you can then see how these changed from the practice so please simply close your eyes for a moment and tune into the feeling of energy in and around your body what does the energy inside you feel like right now Also observe your mind and emotions to see what state they are in to begin with. What is in your thoughts and in your feeling life? Now we can begin the practice, which needs to be done standing. Stand up with your feet shoulder width apart, your arms out straight to your sides, and your head held high. Become aware of the pentagram created between your head, your hands, and your feet. This pentagram holds the golden proportion. Begin by placing your awareness in the center of your chest at the location of the heart chakra. Use the zero point centering technique to move all of your energy and awareness into the center of the center of the center of the heart chakra. As you move your attention dynamically into the epicenter of the heart chakra, Take a moment to experience and savor the vibration, the warmth, power, light, and unique flavor of this powerful energy center. Become aware of the beautiful rose light of divine love, the mare, which lives inside your heart. As you move your energy and awareness deeper into the core of the heart chakra, you touch its divine plane center. Now allow the energy activated from the divine center of your heart chakra to radiate straight upwards, straight up the middle pillar of the body to stream into your head to the crown chakra. Experience the warmth of the rose light of the heart, warming your thoughts, transforming your consciousness. Feel the rose light relaxing and releasing any tension in your head. Feel the rose light illuminating and clearing 
any blocked areas in your head or in your consciousness, bringing divine light to dark places. Feel the divine love, the mayor, healing your thoughts and your consciousness. Feel the warmth of the rose light of the heart. Activate the opening of the crown to the divine energy streaming down into it from above. This is the flow of heavenly chi in the Chinese Taoist tradition and the streaming in of the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Continue streaming rose light from your heart to your head and now release streams of rose light from the heart down your arms to your two hands. Guide this energy by putting your mind and attention along the pathways down the arms. The rose light energy of your heart will follow your mind power to go to the hands. Feel the warmth of the rose light fill your hands, feeling the rose light of love flow into the powerful energy centers of your palms and then into the fingers to the end of the fingertips. Feel the rose light warmth activate and heal the acupuncture meridians, the currents of life energy, which feed the organs of your body, which are attached to your fingertips, including your large and small intestine, your lungs, and your physical heart. Feel how your heart activates your hands as receptors of light and energy, experiencing what was expressed in ancient Egypt in the receptive form of the hands in the Ka hieroglyph. Continue streaming the rose light from your heart into your head and into your hands. Now release streams of rose light down your body, down your legs, into your two feet. Feel the warmth of the rose light from your heart stream into your toes, energizing and healing the acupuncture meridians which feed energy into your kidneys, your spleen, urinary bladder, gallbladder, and your liver. Now close your eyes if they are not closed already and feel inside of you the complete five-pointed spa, the star of ancient Egypt, streaming love, the mare, from your heart into the five outer points of your body and into your entire etheric body, the ka. Keeping your eyes closed, you can drop your arms to your side and relax. Use the energy field awareness practice once again to tune into your energy field and ask yourself a silent question. How has this practice structured my body of energy? How does my energy feel different after doing this practice than it did when I began it? What is in my mind and emotions compared to when I began the practice? After you feel the changes this practice has made to your energetic structure, you can open your eyes. For more complete information and practices for the six essential Rosicrucian spiritual development exercises which connect to the practice you just experienced. Please see my online training course, Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science at www.vesica.org.
Okay, we got a little quick meditation. Uh, and now we're going to do the Merkaba and the Black Cube. Okay. As soon as Rama finds it. That was a quick, mm. that was like a little interlude, everybody. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We have had our dose of Egypt tonight. My goodness. Egypt was a colony of Atlantis. Mm. There we go. All right, now this one is 36 minutes. Merkaba and the Black Cube. Here we go. Dr. Robert J. Gilbert, the founder of the Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies. In this episode, we will explore some of the most important secrets behind our human life on Earth. This will lead us into hidden aspects of the human vehicle of soul travel, the Merkaba, which have not been made public previously. This will lead at the end of the episode to your experiencing the activation of a little-known Merkaba sacred geometry pattern in your own energy field. The first thing we must recognize when we explore the secrets behind our physical incarnation is that we all struggle to find deeper meaning in our lives. Every day we have to find a reason to get out of bed and deal with all kinds of challenges. Sometimes this means experiencing overwhelming amounts of physical or emotional pain, stress, and disappointment. These painful and challenging situations of our earthly life, which we all go through, are one aspect of what classical spiritual traditions refer to as initiation trials. The reality is this, that until we decide to wake up and fully engage with core issues of our spiritual development, our initiation trials and life lessons will be through the school of hard knocks. This means really becoming conscious of our subconscious patterns. What kinds of thoughts and emotions we are constantly creating. What actions we are taking or avoiding taking, which create the conditions of our lives. This blundering repeatedly through the same painful life experiences and reacting destructively to them without seeking the deeper meaning and patterns behind these experiences, is what Buddhists refer to as unskillful action. Just like grades in school, whatever trials we fail, we have to repeat until we finally pass them. When we are stuck in lower states of consciousness, we may suffer needlessly through the same trials, the same painful situations and life lessons which we constantly recreate not just in our current lifetime, but actually in multiple lifetimes. This can become for us a kind of hell on earth, or as the Tibetans would say, a hell realm. 
As we constantly cycle through the same trial, lifetime after lifetime, until we find the way out. This way out of the hell realm we have created for ourselves means consciously understanding the situation and choosing to transform our consciousness and our actions to create a different future for ourselves. When we spiritually awaken and learn to perceive the key sacred geometry patterns which guide and control our earthly existence, we can then much more quickly resolve painful life situations, successfully completing the trial and moving forward into actualizing our full potential. This is what Buddhists refer to as skillful action. Human life is itself a grand initiation trial, created for the education and spiritual evolution of a young group of spiritual beings, the human race. Every one of us on the path of spiritual awakening has at some point the overwhelming realization that we have only a very limited time in our earthly incarnation and that we suffer from having no clear answers to the core existential questions of our earthly life. Who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? Do I have a greater purpose to this lifetime, something I am meant to accomplish? Or are we all just what modern materialism says we are, simply a biochemical machine, an accidental and meaningless mixture of chemicals with only the illusion of being conscious, with no existence before birth or after death, no spirit, no greater purpose or potential at all. Materialism has robbed so many of us of hope, of purpose, of the keys to the great spiritual knowledge which was gathered together by the suffering and striving of all of our ancestors. This is what sacred geometry can offer us the restoration of the essential knowledge of what it is to be a human being, to know our true nature, our real potential, our unlimited dynamic possibilities to become so much more than we are right now. This leads us to a great initiation saying from the Rosicrucian tradition of Europe. In the beginning was the memory. To understand the meaning of this saying, we need to see the patterns which were known to the ancients as the draft of forgetfulness and the draft of remembrance. The draft of forgetfulness means that every time our spirit incarnates into a new physical body, we have a new form which does not hold inside of its brain and body the memories of our previous incarnations. These memories are encoded instead within the sacred geometry structures of our subtle bodies our bodies of energy and consciousness, which stay with us through multiple incarnations. These memories are not in the physical body, which falls away and disintegrates after every lifetime, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. On the path of spiritual awakening, we can perform two essential types of exercises, which allow us to overcome the draft of forgetfulness and to take what was known as the draft of remembrance, to begin to clearly remember who we are and why we are here. These first exercises are designed to awaken the sleeping superpower in every human being, which is our mind power. 
First, we have to quiet what is referred to in the East as the monkey mind chatter. The constant hyperactivity of our mind stuck in loops which only exhaust us and bring no peace or meaning to our lives. Overcoming the monkey mind chatter is done through clear mind exercises, where we learn to focus on the still and silent gap which lies between the thoughts of the internal chatter, so that our thoughts become conscious, focused, calm, instead of running wild and out of control. The clear mind practices then lead to mindfulness practices, where we use our clear mind power to be fully present and really observe the true nature of our own thinking, our feelings, and our actions in the world. We then see and experience the reality of everything around us. Rather than distorting everything through our own filters and projections, once we have harnessed our divine mind power through the clear mind and then mindfulness practices, we can then enter into the deeper spiritual initiation practices. These deeper initiation practices were known to the ancients to awaken our subtle bodies, which hold the memories of our previous lifetimes and the knowledge of our core spiritual essence. Just as we need the sense organs of our physical body to perceive the physical world around us through sight, hearing, smell, etc., so we need to use our mindfulness applied to our own subtle bodies to create new organs of spiritual perception. In time, this allows us to start perceiving the invisible worlds of energy and consciousness which create the physical world and which connect us to higher realms of existence. With this in mind, we can now enter into the deeper sacred geometry patterns which will help reveal the secrets of who we are and how we came to be here in our current earthly life. The individual spirit beings, including human beings, created as sparks from the divine fire ocean of the primordial unity of the One, are known as holy monads in some traditions. These holy monads are created in groups which then go through stages of awakening to become self-aware and then to attain higher cosmic consciousness. In the Western tradition, these groups of monads which attained higher awareness and powers in cycles of development long before the human race was created are known as the angelic ranks. The angels are one step above us in the evolutionary spiral, having gone through their self-awareness stage one cycle ago. The archangels are two steps above us, having attained self-awareness two cycles ago. The archai are three steps above us, etc. The European Rosicrucians have esoteric names for each of these angelic ranks, indicating their esoteric powers and their functions in the universe. For example, the oldest and most developed of the angelic ranks of which we are aware are the seraphim, which are the spirits of pure love. The next most advanced rank are the cherubim, spirits of harmony. Then come the thrones, spirits of willpower. Then the curiotites, who are spirits of wisdom, etc. 
The human race is the latest cycle of beings to become self-aware, which happened recently enough that we are still in a difficult stage of cosmic adolescence. The esoteric name for human beings in the Rosicrucian tradition is that we are spirits of love and freedom. For human beings, our spiritual power is based on creating the perfect balance between love, which unifies us with other beings, allowing us to merge with them, and, on the other hand, freedom, which gives us the ability to be independent and make our own choices in crafting our lives. It is this dynamic balancing of love and freedom which gives us our greatest challenges in this lifetime from our original divine essence as a microcosmic emanation of the One, the Godhead. We then individualize into a unique spiritual being in the universe. Our individual experiences form our unique self, our personality. Just as all snowflakes are crystallized water, so every human being is crystallized spirit. Just as every snowflake has a completely unique geometric form, so every human being has a unique geometric form of their subtle bodies, making every person an irreplaceable, unique work of art in the cosmos. It is said in the European Rosicrucian tradition that just as our earthly religions are based on higher spiritual beings, so the religion of higher spiritual beings is in fact the human race. We are their hope for the future. We are their children who are suffering and struggling through our cosmic adolescence to become unique cosmic beings. Our goal is to complete the alchemical crystallization of our individual spirit and then to become an independent, creative free agent in the cosmos. A future that is a perfect balance of loving service and radical freedom a future of almost unimaginable adventures, explorations, challenges, and pleasures in cosmic worlds which we barely glimpse today. We need to remember this great spiritual future is what we are working towards when we get bogged down in the suffering and density of everyday physical life. Beings who are relatively young in the cosmic ranks of beings, such as the human race, may require living in very dense physicalized conditions in order to become fully self-aware. And so the patterns of energy and consciousness which make up the higher worlds, the higher planes, crystallize into solid physical matter to create a kind of nursery for young beings like ourselves. We introduce the sacred geometry structures which stand behind this physical crystallization process back in episode one as the net matrix of all creation, which was taught in ancient Egypt, India, and other cultures. This hidden sacred geometry net behind the crystallization of the physical world from higher energies was known to ancient traditions to be linked to the platonic solids, the forms of the five elements, the platonic duels of earth and air, the cube of earth and the octahedron of air are key patterns for the crystallization of the physical world. The physical world is based on three dimensions of space, each one of them an axis at 90 degrees to the other two axes. 
This is the sacred geometry form of the cubical cross. The cube is known in the esoteric tradition as the key to the secret of creating the physical world. The cube is the hidden form behind the three-dimensional physical plane. The cube is a sealed alchemical retort into which young spiritual beings, ourselves, are placed so that we can undergo the needed evolutionary processes to become fully self-aware. This alchemical chamber needed to form young spirits into their higher potential is referred to in Western esotericism as the cube of space. Because of this, we find the cube embedded deeply into multiple spiritual traditions. The cube, usually a black cube, is used throughout classical esotericism to represent the earth as the sealed alchemical chamber. In Judaism, the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon is described in the Old Testament as having the form of a perfect cube. In the Jewish tradition, the black cube is ritually strapped onto men 13 years of age and older through spiral windings of straps. Jewish women are not required to do this practice, but many have chosen to do this ritual in both ancient and modern times. In Judaism, this black cube takes the form of small black leather boxes called tefillin, which contain verses from the Torah. There is one which goes onto the upper arm so that the strap is spiral wound around the arm, hand and fingers. There is also the head tefillin, which is placed on the forehead. In Islam, the black cube of the Kaaba is in the center of the holy city of Mecca. Every Muslim is expected to make the pilgrimage to the Kaaba and ritually walk seven circles around it at least once in their lifetime. In Christianity, the alchemically perfected form of the earth is the New Jerusalem, which is described in the book of Revelation as being in the form of a perfect cube. In geometry, each of the platonic solids can be deconstructed into a two-dimensional form called a net. When the cube is deconstructed into its two-dimensional net, it unfolds to become the cross. The black cube thus creates the sealed alchemical chamber of our three-dimensional world, which opens up to become the black cross of our dense physical body. The European Rosicrucians hold deep esoteric initiation knowledge within Christianity, using as their symbol the image of the black cross with seven red roses. This geometric symbol shows that the black cross of our painful incarnation into a physical body, with all of its initiation trials and challenges, is the foundation for the flowering and perfection of the seven chakra subtle energy centers in the human body. These are the red roses coming from the black cross through this initiation process of our physical incarnation. This is part of the ongoing structuring of our subtle bodies into a perfected geometric form until our consciousness and our energy are activated to the point that we can remain fully conscious in the spiritual world after we set aside the physical body at death. This is the true resurrection of esoteric Christianity, with the corruptible physical body giving way to the perfected light body 
for every human being who completes the initiation process. This same mystery is taught in Eastern traditions with the development of the light body and the rainbow body. The esoteric tradition knows that just as every incarnated human being has a physical body on the physical plane, in addition to subtle bodies which are connected to higher planes, so also the planets and stars also have their physical crystallizations in addition to their subtle bodies on higher plane levels. When we are between death and rebirth, living in only our subtle bodies and moving towards our next incarnation in the physical body, we move through spiritual spheres, which are the stars and planets at their higher plane levels. These were known to ancient traditions as the planetary spheres, by which they meant the subtle energy layers around the planet and not the physical planet itself. This profound reality has been forgotten today in our materialistic society, which says the ancients were simply ignorant when they presented models of the world in which the earth was at the center with the planets moving around it, what is called today the Ptolemaic worldview. Modern science looks only at the physical aspect where the sun is in the center with the planets revolving around it. Modern scientists don't understand that the old earth-centered view was originally based on the actual spiritual experience that every human spirit has when we move through the subtle energy planetary spheres before we incarnate on the earth. It is based on our own spiritual experiences moving into the earth sphere from the cosmos, where the earth is the center of our destination, not on the physical plane mechanics of planets moving around the sun. As every human being descends in their subtle bodies from the higher stars down into the subtle energy net of our own solar system, we go through an incredible journey, which the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition called the Hechaloth, meaning the seven heavenly halls. The seven heavenly halls are our journey through the subtle energy levels of the seven classical planets of our solar system, from Saturn on the outer edge to the moon directly adjacent to the earth. As we move towards incarnating into a physical body on the earth, these seven heavenly halls were illustrated in ancient Egypt in the book of coming forth into light, which we call today the Egyptian Book of the Dead. In the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition, the Hechaloth school of the second century AD described this passage through the seven heavenly halls and practiced methods of conscious astral travel through the halls through the use of our activated subtle bodies, which they termed the Merkaba or Merkaba. The Merkaba is sometimes translated into English as a chariot, as in the biblical chariots of fire. This term was interpreted by materialistic religious artists as literal wheels within wheels, when in fact what was being described as a wheel is a spinning vortex, which is the sacred geometry form which creates movements from one location or one plane level to another. This description of a higher level energy vortex as a wheel is similar to the Indian tradition, where the term chakra for the spinning vortex of our major energy centers is literally the word for wheel in Sanskrit. The wheel within a wheel is in reality 
a vortex within a vortex. This vortex of movement through higher worlds is also connected to what people in near-death experiences describe as the tunnel they pass through as they leave their physical body. The tunnel is the experience of actually being inside the vortex, moving through higher worlds. A key sacred geometry form, which contains the incarnating human being, is the egg shape of the aura, which contains our multiple nested subtle bodies within it. Egg shapes generate vortices and are also the natural form to travel through vortices. This means that the egg-shaped energy field of the human being is a sacred geometry form which effortlessly fits into and moves naturally through the vortices of higher worlds into physical incarnation. There are also deeper secrets of the Merkaba vehicle of soul travel hidden within the name itself. The term Merkaba or Merkava is said to come from the root Rachev in Hebrew, meaning to ride, as in a chariot. However, there is a deeper secret here in the name Merkaba, based on the original primordial language, where every sound carries a tremendous hidden divine power. This knowledge of the hidden powers of each sound was called the Hekau in ancient Egypt and was called the mystery of the Kabbalistic word in Israel. Mer is the ancient Egyptian word for love, which brings separate beings back into unity. The ancient hieroglyph for the Mer is the form of a simple plow. The plow is what opens up the body of the earth, the physical body, so that seeds of new life can grow within that body. Mer the divine vibrational power of love is essential for our subtle bodies to grow and ripen to their full potential. Ka is the ancient Egyptian word for the subtle body of vital energy, what the Indians call prana, the Chinese call chi, and the Greeks called ether. The Ka hieroglyph in ancient Egypt was hands raised in a posture to receive or send an energy transmission. Ba is the ancient Egyptian word for the first subtle body of consciousness, which today we would call the soul, or in Western esotericism, we would call the astral body. The Ba was shown by the head of a person on the body of a bird, showing the soul and mind having the ability to fly through the cosmos. Today we refer to this as astral travel. The term Mer, Ka, Ba, literally tells us in the ancient Egyptian language how to create the activated subtle body vehicle of soul travel. The instruction is in the name itself. Merkaba tells us to permeate our own body of life energy, the Ka, and our own body of consciousness, the mind and emotions, the Ba, with the power of pure love, Mer. The true power of divine love alchemically transforms our subtle bodies of energy and consciousness, activating their inner light and perfecting their structure. Our subtle bodies become light in two ways, light in the sense of brilliantly illuminated and also light in the sense of not heavy, so that they can literally ascend and fly through the higher worlds. 
the love permeated subtle bodies are then drawn upwards through the higher planes back toward the divine plane of unity an attraction we experience internally as true love this is not an abstract philosophy it is a literal alchemical process with profound transformations of the human being to a higher level we can ascend from the black cube of physical incarnation but only when we have learned all the lessons possible from our physical plane incarnations we must first complete the alchemy of the subtle bodies through an unbreakable inner state of love the attainment of a saint or spiritual master if we were to try to ascend prematurely driven by a neurotic need to escape the transformative pressure and suffering of physical plane existence through a false type of ascension we would never reach our full potential this would be like opening up a cocoon of a caterpillar prematurely the gestating butterfly would be incomplete and would never reach its full beautiful form with wings to fly this merkaba sacred geometry soul vehicle has been described in some recent esoteric teachings as a star tetrahedron however this is only one geometric aspect of the merkaba the european rosicrucians teach that there are three key sacred geometry forms related to three different levels of creation the first level is the godhead manifesting through the point in the circle which we discussed previously and experienced directly through applying the zero point centering and radiance practice in our own energy centers the second level is the macrocosm manifesting through the hexagram the six pointed star known popularly today as the star of david the third level is the microcosm manifesting through the pentagram these grand creative forms are reflected into the human energy field as key sacred geometry structures of the human merkaba in 1907 the great rosicrucian initiate rudolf steiner revealed the secret of the pentagram form of the human etheric body of life energy the ka of the egyptian merkaba and the hexagram form of the human astral body of consciousness the ba of the egyptian merkaba steiner noted at the time that the pentagram of the etheric body is a flat plane form however the hexagram six-pointed star form of the astral body is in fact a three-dimensional form this means that the hexagram of the astral body is in fact a stellated octahedron also known as a star tetrahedron the secret of the five-pointed pentagram form of the human etheric life energy body was embedded in the ancient egyptian tradition where the hieroglyph called spa meaning a star showed a raised central point radiating five lines in the same direction as the points of a pentagram in the human body the raised center of the spa is the human heart chakra which in spiritual initiation becomes the organizing center for all the streams in the human etheric life body from the heart energy streams to the five points of the pentagram of the human body to the head the two hands and to the two feet awakening our awareness of these streams from the heart is one of the six essential exercises 
in the Rosicrucian system of Rudolf Steiner, designed to activate and organize our subtle bodies. As the ancient Egyptian mysteries gave way in time to the Christian mysteries, the pentagram form of the etheric body became more commonly shown than the earlier star form used in ancient Egypt, which showed the etheric body streams from the heart directly to the five external points of the human body. In reality, both the ancient Egyptian star and the modern pentagram forms both exist in the human energy body and each has specific applications. The pentagram form of the etheric body also holds within it the key sacred geometry principle known as the golden mean proportion or the phi ratio. This is known classically as the proportion of beauty. It is the golden series of numbers which create a precise proportion with particular energetic powers. Although it has a universe of manifestations, the key to the golden or divine proportion is that it manifests the divine thought form of perfect balance and harmony through dynamic movement. Rather than cutting a line in half, which creates a more static balance, the divine proportion cuts the line at the location where the smaller portion is in the same proportion to the larger portion, as the larger portion is in proportion to the entire line. This is an expression in sacred geometry of the dynamic relationship between the macrocosm, the larger part of the line, and the microcosm, the shorter part of the line. The golden series begins with the proportion of one, the original unity, to 1.618, dot, 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 which is a transcendental number that never ends. It reaches into infinity. The numbers in the golden series continue so that any two adjacent numbers in the series create the same powerful proportion linking macrocosm and microcosm. The pentagram of the etheric body holds the perfect divisions of the golden proportion. The golden proportion can also be expressed in whole numbers rather than in fractions through what is known as the Fibonacci series. As the Fibonacci series progresses, the proportions between two adjacent numbers come closer and closer to the golden proportion of 1 to 1.618, providing a way to use whole numbers in energetic design the way nature itself does. The Fibonacci whole number series creates the golden spiral, a dynamic and powerful growth pattern found in nature. This Fibonacci series is a foundation for harmonious natural growth patterns in humans, animals, and plants on the earth. So when we consider the pentagram of the etheric body as one part of the Merkaba soul vehicle, we can understand that the pentagram contains embedded within it the powerful dynamic growth pattern of the golden proportion, or phi ratio. This is the sacred geometry of dynamic life force and growth, which is the power and purpose of our etheric life body, the Ka of the Merkaba. The golden proportion expressed through the pentagram creates a cascade of dynamic energetic effects, including the creation of a fractal growth series of pentagram shapes reaching into infinity. We can now conclude this episode by experiencing 
the ancient Egyptian sacred geometry pattern of the spa, the star in our own etheric life body, as a foundation for Merkaba activation. If you'd like to do the practice now, please see the companion video for this episode. Otherwise, please set an intention to come back and do the practice at a later time. I'm your host, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. Please join us for our next episode, where we will explore in more detail the Merkaba, and you will also learn how to complete the activation of the gold, the grid of life design, in your own energy field. This will help us on the path to take the draft of remembrance and remember who we are and why we are here now in this place and this time of our current incarnation. See you then. Okay, well, we got one more, everybody. This takes us to another part of the world. Uh, Light beings and shamans of Peru. Can shamanic rituals facilitate ET experiences? Author and contactee Ricardo Gonzalez, Cor Pancho, shares details from his direct contact with beings of light through a shamanic ceremony in Cusco, Peru, exploring how these luminous beings could actually be pure energy and consciousness. Ricardo explains how these beings are always coexisting around us, yet they are not limited by our perceptions of space and time. So here we go. This is 24 minutes. Mm. Getting to that bewitching hour, it's Disclosure, we're with Ricardo Gonzalez, author and researcher for Peru who has experienced multiple direct contacts with an extraterrestrial species called the Apunes. Ricardo. Thank you. Well, hey. hello everybody. I don't know, but I think that our kitties pulled the cord or something. Yeah. That's wild. Hey. But, um, um, Things are coming along here. Take yeah, it. and uh, Doug, you can uh, maybe get uh, Rainbird. Now it would be good to get Rainbird. <sighs> How much more of that do we have, darling? I don't know. <laughs> maybe what I could do is... I don't think there was much more of that left. Um, <laughs> well, that was a um, a shift in the energy. Everybody. Huh? Yeah, I was going to say maybe I could just read Caroline's message. 
this is taking a little while. Okay, I will shift our energy. And I, I hope you heard me. Uh, Doug, you can uh, call Rainbird. The timing is there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to fix the clock. Can't tell. All right, so this is from our sister Caroline. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fae Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. So Caroline, she speaks here. I've been thinking about how difficult it is for starseed here I'm this is yours how difficult it is for for starseed who come from planets in terms of soul origin come from planets that are just that that don't have millions upon millions of people starving or several million people sub subjected to the horrors of war at any one time. Mm -hmm. They don't have lack. They don't have people living in their cars. Mm -hmm. They don't have people shut out from jobs or held at the border for a year or more in unsafe conditions. All I remember these little ones dying at the border everybody, not but a few years ago, all of these unjust situations, and those are only a few, they just don't exist on other higher dimensional planets. So, starseeds, come here. So, starseeds, come here. And they have to deal with a lot that just does not make sense to them. It makes zero sense. Yeah. I speak with Lady Master Portia at times, keeper of the violet flame, goddess of justice and opportunity. I asked if she would speak to us today because I feel like it's just so difficult at times to make sense of what's happening on this earth. You might have to call Doug because I can't tell whether Doug is. Uh, um, we're here. We're on. Yeah, but well, I want Doug to get Caroline. I mean, oh. Rainbird. Rainbird. Um. So when you get settled there, you can call, call, call. Um. And I know we love this Earth, whether we originally come from her or not. Probably most of us come from elsewhere in terms of soul origin. And it's just difficult, isn't it, to see all these situations where you want things to be on keel and you want there to be peace and fulfillment. And you're thinking, isn't this the Sat Yuga? And where's the Sara? And what about all this light pouring in? Mm. Shouldn't things be okay? She's got a picture here that I re- I recognize. There's 
uh, people in front of, oh, I don't know, a, 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 a parliament building or something in some other country. But this young woman, she's holding a sign above her head and it says, more equality, more love. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's from a cutoff side of a box. <laughs> That's what it's got to do. And you're thinking, isn't this thought you got? And what about all this light pouring in? And people will email me and ask me these questions. How can we be in the fifth dimension? Or how can we be moving into the fifth dimension? And yet there's all of this madness going on. So let's call in Lady Portia. Let's see as she will speak with us about divine justice. Let's go into our breathing for a moment. Breathing in through the nose with mouth closed. Breathing out through the open mouth with sort of a ha sound. Ha. Yeah. Remember doing that before. Ha. Ha. And well, we'll call her forward. Just a moment. Lady Master Portia. Well, greetings, dear ones. We, we better go call first before you get that set up. Oh. Okay. I think I hear Raybird. <laughs> okay. Well, Greetings, dear ones. We are quite honored to have this moment to speak with you. And we are aware of these inequalities that this dear one was just speaking of. We are aware of how strange it is. How it feels as though the fifth dimension is very far away. Indeed, some days. And this is understandable. Yet all of us in the higher realms and we are both in the higher realms and upon the earth we multi-locate as all of you do as well at times without realizing it hmm yet all of us are are desiring very very much that you come to understand that you didn't come to this earth for perfect outcomes in the same paradigm, that you view the issues and the challenges and what people call problems, which are generally of their own design. So, maybe you could fix the clock, Rama, so we can tell what time it is. So one night, so one might as well look at an issue, a problem, a challenge, and say, no, that's not a problem. It's my design. It's humanity's design. We decided to learn in this particular way. Yes, it looks like a mess. We realize. But we're not getting, or we're not going to trouble ourselves about the actual form of that mess. We are going to move into a space where we remember that we didn't come here 
just to move things around outwardly, physically, and fix issues physically. Perfectly wonderful to help others. Look at this lovely garden. Beautiful things can be built outwardly, certainly. But in terms of the larger issues, dear ones, you come in to shift the vibration that created them to begin with. There's a bigger job. Yet it's also the one that's going to do it. But it's also the one that's going to do it for you. The one that's going to really work for you. Hmm. So, in my capacity, daily, working with the law, working with issues of justice, and working with issues requiring certain shifts and changes on this planet, and opening portals for that, not fixing everything, not rescuing you, this Lady Master Portia, you don't require rescuing, yet just helping to shift things a bit vibrationally to where all of you are capable of waking up a bit more and realizing you're being assisted and realizing your extreme and complete empowerment, which you haven't claimed completely. And you haven't claimed them, all those beautiful gifts, because you have been thinking that isn't Nassar going to happen? What about my star nation families? How about the fact that I feel so disabled on this planet? Things are so strange. Things are never what I expect them to be. It's just strange. Feeling to be out of sorts. Feeling to not fit in. And we understand this completely. All of the Ascended Masters come from elsewhere. They come from planets of peace and galaxies of peace. And they come here not to feel discouraged any more than you did, but to feel empowered by the realization that even when one is in the physical, a beautiful gift and a experience no one could talk you out of it but even when one is in the physical one still has the ability to shift vibrations this is not at all unusual you do it all the time without realizing it now take an issue that is difficult for you dear ones and put it into that transforming and transmuting violet flame of Saint Germain. He is by my side as I speak. And now, put in your entire self. Step into that, into that, <laughs> that violet flame. Mm-hmm. Turn the pitch. <laughs> if you're not good at imagining, that's all right. Stand up and take a step forward. Image that flame in front of you in that moment. Or, if you can't do that, that's all right. 
Just know that you are moving into it. You can do this at any time. Put whatever heaviness you are carrying now, dear ones, put that into that flame and say, I command you to move to a higher level. Your vibration increases daily. And you can do this with the issues that are plaguing you on the earth and the issues that plague you personally. You can find the time by looking on the TV. Doesn't matter what they are, how they begin. Do what you can to come out of the self-blame, the self-criticism. Release all that, dear ones. It's not who you are. Who you are is pure love. Who you are is divinity itself. And call out to your star nation family. You know they are constantly with you. You know this. You visit with them so, so often. In your sleep state, you are reaching out to them. They are there for you. You're aboard the ships. You're doing so much, dear ones. You're doing so much to assist the earth. You're doing so much to grow and to ascend. You must give yourselves beautiful credit for that. And know how loved you are. You're not left behind for an instant. So use that violet flame, especially when you feel nothing else has worked. Wonderful, perfect. That means you're really moving up. So, all of us, we send you much love, dear ones. And I extend a special line of light to your heart. Are you ready, honey? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. That you will feel encouraged in these days and allow yourselves to come home to who you really are. Namaste. That's to the point. Okay. Well, we'll visit Peru again. I don't know where we have finished. Um, it didn't even start. Oh no, we were we listened for about 15 20 minutes already. Really? Yes. Okay. See where it is? It's halfway, it's more than halfway through. No. Yes, I saw that line. I have to bring it up and see. Well, I wanted to make sure you're ready for the end, because... I am. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I have the song and everything. So do you know where, it must be in the same place where you left off. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, let's go see. Hmm. We have a few minutes. I'll pull it forward. At least halfway through. Um... I don't think I really got started with it. Yes, we were listening when it went on. Okay.
Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Ricardo Gonzalez, author and researcher for Peru who has experienced multiple direct contacts with an extraterrestrial species called the Apunians. Ricardo, welcome to the show. More halfway through. We don't have time for anything. Okay, let's see what that does. Okay, we're going to try Different. In the case of these beings of light, of energy, who are natural guardians of the vortices of the Earth, I would dare call the experience initiatory. Because when entering these vortices, it's like entering a temple, a temple that is not governed by our laws of space and time. And they function as true oracles. So the level of information that emerges in these vortices with these beings of light has that initiatory and spiritually revelatory seal. And these type of vortices, of course, do not only exist in the Peruvian Andes, all over the world. And it is likely that someone has lived experiences with these vortices and with these beings and has labeled the experience as extraterrestrial, when in fact, it was another even deeper phenomenon. Is there a connection with these ethereal white beings and the UFO phenomenon? I have no doubt about that connection. I wouldn't dare say that these beings of light were together with aliens of physical aspect. I do not know how to describe that kind of relationship. But what I have understood is that the extraterrestrial beings that are in our reality, who manifest themselves through vehicles and devices in the zone of power, are fully aware of the existence of these vortices and their guardians. And regarding those vortices, I'm convinced that every approach of extraterrestrial beings is connected. In fact, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. In the extraterrestrial messages that I affirm to have received, both in my case as well as from others contacted in Latin America, these extraterrestrial beings suggested that we go to this or that place in the world. Because important information that we had to know was located in those places. As if we were going to cosmic information terminals on Earth. And that's why I traveled all over the world, as you know, living extraordinary experiences, guided by extraterrestrials. Although this sounds like a dream, a science fiction movie. But they led us to these vortices to meet these guardians. At first, obviously, I lived this in a very naive and simple way, like the experience I just discussed in Cusco. But we came to know, and now we are convinced, that everything is connected. You call them the guardians of the vortexes. How do they refer to themselves? That is a very complex question to answer. I will try to develop an explanation. Because they, although it is true, do adapt to our reality and can assume human form, do communicate with you through dreams or in person, and you listen in your own language what these beings are transmitting, Usually these beings do not present themselves describing names or functions. They just exist. And what they tell us is that they have long been flowing through the consciousness of vortices. And they are like the ones who maintain the balance or guard those manifestations of energy. So in one way or another, they describe themselves as guardians of the consciousness of the vortices. Let's go back to the cave when you were inside the cave. How did they communicate with you, and what did they say, Ricardo? 
As I said, when that being of light arose, it approached me. It had acquired a human form made of that bright fog and brought what I call its arms closer to me in this position. And at that moment, I had sensations, visions, and a voice in my head speaking to me. What I felt came from that entity, which gave me the message I told you minutes ago, that we are not alone, that in some manner these beings have been with us. I believe that the main method of communication that these beings have is through the dormant faculties of our mind, which allows us to listen, feel, and interpret subtle information. Because these beings have no brain, no physical body, no flesh and blood like us. I would not use the term telepathy as we know it. I would call this phenomenon spiritual communication. Let's see, I'll try to better explain it, because it's very difficult. For example, in extraterrestrial contact, when we have received messages or had some kind of interaction with extraterrestrial beings, the connection is felt in a mental form when they have communicated. I'm sure this has happened to you with your own experiences. You feel that communication is more in this area, but with these beings of light, It's happening at the same time in your entire being. It is more like a communion of spirits. I know this may sound like a new age thing or too mystical, but I have no better words to describe it. It is a spiritual communication with beings of light who live with us on earth. Can we initiate contact with these light beings at will? Remember I told you that the first contact happened at a time in my life of great innocence? Because I'd only been living these phenomena for a few years investigating them. I tried to face the experiences without overthinking them. Obviously, as the years have gone by, you become more pensive, more intellectual, trying to discern, to explain everything. But it was precisely, Emery, that innocence which in reality was nothing more than purity that opens something. I have the feeling that these beings feel powerfully what you are, what it is that you think. And I think I opened my heart. I innocently turned myself over to the experience, and they decided to manifest themselves. In fact, in ancient shamanic traditions in Peru, to connect with the gods of the Huacas, the natives fasted for prolonged periods. They went through many purification techniques to deserve to enter those places in altered states of consciousness. They even made use of hallucinogenic plants to try to more rapidly enter into these vortices. They used psychotropics to help their minds to penetrate these other states of reality. However, What these beings have somehow transmitted to us is that we do not need anything outside ourselves, only our consciousness and our true intentions to open the portals of the invisible worlds. It doesn't matter how much you jump, dance, what you drink, what external things you do. If you don't have an open heart, and if these beings do not decide to, no matter what you do, it will be in vain. That is why many researchers who go to these types of special places pursuing an experience almost always fail 
Because these matters should not be lived as if you were Indiana Jones. You have to live them with humility and respect. What do you think their goal and agenda is, especially when they communicate with humans? I believe that there must be a very deep purpose for these beings to manifest themselves to human beings. And I think in this sense, the shamans are right again. These beings want to give the consciousness of the earth back to us from the sources of wisdom of the Pachamama or Mother Earth. And when we feel alone or affected by all the things that happen in the world, we may always return to the lap of Mother Earth, to their natural temples, to their vortices, which in a way touch our lack of knowledge in an attempt to try to help us become wiser and more responsible. I believe that the goal of these beings is to reveal to us that there is this magical structure in our world connected to the universe, which has important information. Ricardo, why do you think they chose you to have this personal experience? My answer is not going to be much different than what I've told you in other interviews. When we have spoken, for example, of my extraterrestrial contact, without falling into a false humility, I'm not a special person. The special thing is the experience, the message, not the messenger. But in both extraterrestrial contact, which we've already discussed here, and this phenomenon of beings of light and vortices, I think these intelligences took into consideration my ability to reach other people. I don't know how, but these creatures, these entities, felt beforehand that I was going to reach a lot of people in the world. Think about this. I come from Peru, a poor country considered third world. How could I imagine, being so young, that I would be traveling all over the world sharing this information and these experiences? This shows that, as contact witnesses, we are not important. What is important is the agenda behind it. I don't know how, I swear, but these beings knew ahead of time that I could reach many people with this message. And look at us now, Emery. We're back together on your show, sharing this information which I am convinced, beyond reaching only the intellect of the people who are watching us now, we are also reaching their hearts. Very well put, Ricardo. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emery. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. The extraterrestrial beings who are in contact with me, these beings were very insistent in telling me Different groups of extraterrestrial origin were involved in our reality a long time ago. And this connection we have with ancient extraterrestrial civilizations, all that information is in us. It's not only in our genetics, but also in our being. This cosmic plan, what it seeks is for us to find the glimmer of light in the darkness. And through it, we gain redemption. I just was like going to take a moment to go over the astrology for today. <coughs> um, with our friend Kate Hodgson. Love is more than I have been told. It's the teacher and purpose of life. It breaks my heart open again and again, exposing my truth and my lies. This week, 
is an interesting mix of sweetness, Venus trying Jupiter, and possible illusions, delusions, as Mercury opposes Neptune. It's a good time to watch ourselves and others as we tell ourselves stories that may or may not be actual reality. There is sometimes a fine line between imagination and deception, and we are walking it this week. So keep those eyes and ears wide open. Hopefully, you have been taking joy, building confidence in your creative genius, and shining like the sun this last month of Leo time. The more we have, the more we can give. And the bigger the heart, the more generous, loving, and tolerant we become. When criticism challenges, fault-finding, or condemnation come along, it is helpful to have a large reservoir of self-love to avoid being taken completely down. Man's entering Gemini, excuse me, Mars entering Gemini, will bring a slew of new contacts, relationships, and opportunities. Take this time to clear your relationship space of old, outworn, ill-fitted connections to make room for the new. As one door closes, another will open. But just as in walking, you need to pick up your back foot, let go of the past support, and swing it forward to take that next step. Blessings on your journey. How about some eagles for this week's mantra? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to pass this talking stick with eagles and angels <laughs> and uh yes and hawks and falcons and yeah let's keep the big birds in here yeah big bird too <laughs> that's this talking stick to you rainbird and all of the other friends we've got fairies and feathers and rainbows and crystals here it comes Caroline, are you there, Rainbird? Rainbird? Oh, okay, I finally unmuted. I had to turn the phone off to turn it back on again. Oh, dear. <laughs> so does your dog. So does your doggy, Wuggy. And our kitty witty is looking like, where is that dog? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why she's talking. Stop it, little bear. Oh, yeah, little bear. I'll I met that bear when he was six weeks old. <laughs> I can't no, get her to stop. There she is. Yeah, I closed the door on her. Okay. <laughs> oh, what a full day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was so wonderful. I really enjoyed it all day long. Me too. And just so much gratitude. I had a really fun aha when you were playing the Hyperborean, uh, the Atlantis piece and about the Hyperboreans. Yeah. And, and you said they went to this place 
the these people that and became the the Tiwa Pabidia. And Tiwa got me right away because it's the mystic language that's used with the Native American mystic Joseph Rael talks about. He he just uses the language. He said this language is Tiwa, and it's not. And you know, it's very very ancient. And and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Tiwa. <laughs> so that those those people then became the Druids, and so that was like placing all that, and, and it was just really fun to have that aha, so I thought I'd share it. <laughs> yeah, and Rainbird, the Native American culture goes back to Atlantis. That's the same. That's their brothers and sisters. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally got that. Yeah. Plus, they're the, they're the, they're, they're, they're the Pleiadians, so they were connected that way. As and well. Pleiadians, uh, I remember being told today that um, Pleiadian, Pleiades, Ceres, and Arcturus are are the the core of the representatives from the galactic worlds on our planet. They really do represent a a substance of core uh, teachings on our planet. And, I'm very familiar with all three of those. Yeah, yeah, we, that's what we heard today. So that was just wonderful. So much, it was so rich today. I just, it's, it's I like we all we're all on our same page. We're all on the same page. Everybody's realizing something is up in the zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish it was everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I know Don and Doug are saying, oh, these other critters are going to whoop up something else for us to look at I'll just say call them all in calling all angels yeah. it's the Starfleet command yeah yeah <laughs> so very exciting very busy very stretching <laughs> I feel stretched <laughs> I do too but it's just been it's been it's very exciting all of these ones that we've been following and they're all saying Pretty much, yeah. We're we're yeah. doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're doing it. So great show, and I pass this talking stick over to you with all those eagle and condor feathers right on it. So here it comes, Rama. Okay. So what do you have for us tonight, Ram? This is Alan Watts. The acceptance of everything flowing away. Okay. Nothing is more terrifying than the state of chronic anxiety, which one has if you are subject to the illusion that something or other in life could be held onto and safeguarded. And nothing can. So the acceptance of uh, everything flowing away is absolutely basic to freedom being uh, an unsui, a cloud water person who drifts like cloud and flows like water. But in this, we mustn't take ourselves too ridiculously. I mean, naturally, all human beings have in them a certain clinging. So you can't let go totally. 
You wouldn't be human if you did. You can't be just a leaf on the wind, or just a ball in a mountain stream, to use a Zen poetic phrase. Because if you were that, you wouldn't be human. Just as I pointed out with a person with no emotions, who has completely controlled his emotions as a stone Buddha, so a person who would be completely let go would also be some kind of an inanimate object. So Zen very definitely emphasizes uh, being human, being perfectly human as its ideal. And so to be perfectly human, one must have not a state of absolute detachment, but a state of detachment which contains a little bit of resistance, a certain clinging still. They say in India of a Jivan Mukta, a man who is liberated in this world, that he has to cultivate a few mild bad habits in order to stay in the body. Because if he were absolutely perfect, he would disappear from manifestation. And so uh, the, the, uh, the yogi, great yogis, maybe he smokes a cigarette or has a bad temper occasionally. It's something that keeps him human. And that thing, little thing is very important. It's like the salt in a stew. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, it grounds him. Well, this is another way of saying that uh, even a very great sage, a great Buddha, will have in him a touch of regret that life is fleeting. Because if he doesn't have that touch of regret, he's not human, and he's incapable of compassion towards people who regret very much that life is fleeting. So the mood aware is that touch of regret of nostalgia, of, you know that poem which speaks of the feeling of a banquet hall deserted. Here it is, there's been a great banquet, you know, and it's where all the guests have gone home, and there are empty glasses and dirty plates and crushed napkins and all sorts of things all over, and somehow the echo of voices and merriment is still there. And so this mood, aware comes up. So even a very great person, uh, you should feel that, because the price otherwise is not to be human. Thank you for your kindness, everyone, and for the sharing that we get to do every week. It does wonders. And I just thought that Caroline made it really clear that we are very powerful. And when we do something together like this, it affects the whole of creation. So much it be. Blessed be. In Salah and Satnam. And so it is. Satnam G. Thirteen thank yous, honey, in the heart. No evil. Until we meet again, and come and join us tomorrow and Monday. I haven't given this out for a long time, but I'll have to say it real quick. I know the time has has taken its turn here. Um, I'll just take a, one second here. 
at 7 p.m. Mountain, that's 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the number is, when we do this kind of work together, it really does move powerfully uh, and expand powerfully all that we can be together. So the number here is 425-436-6260, and the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. Uh, 946-7441-POUND. See you manana, and in your hearts and in your dreams. So aloha for now. Namaste. Mahalo, Nui, Loa.